Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. But things are a little bit different this week. We are at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. We are streaming live, or trying to stream live, from New Hampshire, which is a pretty much impossible thing. And there's a lot of interesting people here in our live audience who have seen people try and fail and crash and burn before. We'll be able to get over here. And we'll be able to uh, bring you tonight's show in two parts. So the first part's going to go on live from here, and the second part's going to go on live from co-host and tonight's host, Tony Myers, and his special guest, Brett Finot. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to cover some stories. Now, usually I got like a, a, a tablet in front of me. Tonight I have a paper plate with my notes, and it looks like this. All right, so... <laughs> It's Porkfest. I got a pen and paper and no excuses attitude. This is episode 86. It's uh, June 26, 2022. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the first time live studio. Well, that's not even a studio. It's like outdoor nature audience for Grand Theft World. Uh, we're going to look at the peaceful protests that have been going on the past week from the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision. There's also, uh, let's see if there's ketchup on here. No, I'm just kidding. Tedros, the lab, leak now is a thing uh tedros came out this week we got a, a piece by ben swan it's going to break that open all of a sudden now it's not a big thing to say that the thing that happened over the past couple of years came out of the lab that was eco health alliance and nih funded that we've talked about for the past two years but now the rest of the world safely <laughs> with covid in the past they can know that it came from the lab uh bless you joshua uh also <laughs> The, the title of this week's episode is a little harsh. I know the show card, you, or the, the thumbnail, you might see that and you might be taken aback, but there's actual child sacrifice. And we've talked that, uh, talked about that before with uh, Franklin Coverup, but there's new type of, uh, uh, type of uh, sacrifice that they've brought out. Uh, that monitor is too loud. That's driving me crazy over there. All right, so that's um, <laughs> part of being live. We're doing it live. And we're going to have snafus, and I'm entertaining the live audience by having things not go correctly. That's what they're here for. They don't want to see a smooth show. They want to see me go like this and try to read blue ink and blue light, because that's entertaining. They want to see Grace right, under so pressure. Idea, yeah, right. So these uh, uh, six months old and older babies can now be injected with concoctions, experimental concoctions, from cartel provably criminal organizations, multi-billion dollar international organizations that don't have studies on any of this, but it's being popularized. So that's a problem. And they got this program out there called Shots for Tots. We're going to talk about that tonight. It's a hard story. On a lighter note, speaking of tots, Luke Radowski, your tater tots are at Site 19, Autonomy Cafe. We've kept them for you. <laughs> I know he left to go to the Minds Conference and it didn't have anything to do with him not picking up his taunts. We're going to go to Luke Radowski right now for the kickoff, and then we'll be back with a few live intent guests uh, before we turn the show over to trusty Tony. Touching 
Well, well, let's at least be honest here. It's nice to see political discourse in America return to normal. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Lukradowski here of WeAreChange.org. And oh boy, do we have some crazy bombshell news to get into today, especially when it comes to the story of the decade. A story that a lot of very powerful people do not want you talking about as, of course, it implicates them in some of the most egregious, nasty, disgusting behavior that you could ever imagine. What's going on here? What's the latest developments? We're going to be talking about that, plus a lot more, all on this independent media broadcast, as well as the latest, very important details that, of course, the corporate media is spinning for you to be distracted by. So much to get into. We're just... We're just going to jump right into it since, of course, I, I usually like to save the, the, the main story for, for the end of, of videos, but, but I'm not going to do that here. As, of course, just moments ago, we found out that Ghislaine Maxwell, the counterpart to Jeffrey Epstein, the lady that was integral in the 30-plus year international trafficking and extortion operation of very powerful people, was just placed in solitary confinement under watch to make sure that she does not hurt herself. This, of course, was the same thing that has happened to her counterparts, who have mysteriously, under this watch of them not hurting themselves, hurt themselves to the point where they no longer exist. Yeah, that's that's the official story that they want you to believe, and it looks like something extremely sinister and fishy is going on with Ghislaine Maxwell as she is staying in an extremely corrupt federal jail system here in Brooklyn, New York, that of course is known for committing illegal and abusive actions against the prisoners that are there. Now, of course, the big question to ask here is why was she put on this solitary confinement watch to not hurt herself when even according to her own lawyers she does not want to hurt herself yes you heard that correctly Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyers are coming out and publicly saying that Miss Maxwell is not a threat to herself and does not plan to hurt herself at any time so why was she placed in this specific solitary confinement well we don't have an official explanation to that as of course her lawyers are asking her sentencing which is supposed to be happening in just a few hours from now to be of course postponed because of this major move now this is not the first time that maxwell had confrontations with the prison staff as she of course is known for filing over a hundred complaints against the prison its staff and its facilities as even four days ago we foreshadowed how there is some significant problems here in our video where we said hey something fishy is going on with maxwell it has led to this crescendo with her being put on this watch as four days ago we reported to you on this independent media channel how lawyers have officially on record put in paperwork claiming that her fellow cellmates were offered money in order to take her out when she was sleeping specifically strangle her which would be very easy to of course make it look like it was something that Ghislaine Maxwell did to herself. And of course, the parallels here of, of her counterpart, Jeffrey Epstein, going through the prison system tell a very similar story. As of course, if you remember, Jeffrey Epstein, the man who Whit Maxwell has all the secrets on very powerful individuals in our society, was put into jail. Allegedly, he made an attempt on his own well-being, which of course, very conveniently, the first time there was no video footage of because the video footage somehow malfunctioned. There's reports of other prisoners trying 
trying to, of course, suffocate him and take him out. Then he was put on this specific watch, which Maxwell was, and then allegedly cameras again magically stopped working. Prison guards fell asleep, didn't do their job, didn't fill out the paperwork, didn't check on him like they were supposed to, even though he was supposed to be watched. And allegedly he hurt himself to the point where he no longer exists. Again, that story has absolute holes in it, bigger that a Boeing 767 could fly right through it. But again, that's the official story that, that they want you to believe. It looks like Maxwell was going under very similar circumstances in the same corrupted jail system inside of New York City. And officially through the court records under oath, according to Maxwell, there are three cellmates that are willing to corroborate the story of being told that a cellmate was offered money in order to strangle her in her sleep. Now, this is this is a major story. This is a big story. Some people say that Ghislaine Maxwell could be making it up in order to be released from jail early. As again, it's still unclear how long she will be in jail for, as of course, she is not yet sentenced. She's supposed to be sentenced in a few hours from now. That looks like it will be postponed. Now, with some people saying that she's making this all up, I would say, well, there's a lot of coincidences highlighting how the threats against her safety are, are absolutely real comparatively to what happened to her friends. Not good people, of course. Individuals like Mr. Epstein and Jean-Luc Bernay that, of course, also mysteriously hurt himself in jail to the point where he no longer exists. Surveillance footage cameras magically also didn't work. And this man that had a lot of secrets on a lot of powerful people also died with his ability to testify against those very powerful people snuffed out. Again, Jean-Luc Bernay, under all accounts here, was most likely taken out. This is the same individual that, by the way, according to a lot of evidence, has procured thousands, and we're talking about thousands, of children to Mr. Epstein, as of course he was known as Europe's Epstein was also very involved in the modeling industry, just of course like Mr. Epstein, who many times publicly said that he was behind Victoria's Secret. Les Wexner, of course, was was also tied into him in many different ways. And and truly, what happened to Jean-Luc Bernay deserves a lot more attention. But but his demise happened at the start of the Ukrainian conflict between the United States and Russia in their proxy conflict, and has garnered very too little no media attention, which is absolutely incredulous. But now that marks two very close associates to Miss Maxwell. And of course, there's overwhelming circumstantial evidence highlighting how Ghislaine Maxwell is next. Why is she next? Why do some people want to see her gone? Because if she is taken out, so is the possibility of any kind of real legitimate justice. Justice that would hold a lot of powerful people accountable for participating in these larger unspeakable activities that are absolutely disgusting and we can't even mention here on this broadcast. Who are some of these powerful individuals? Well, of course, the Clintons, heavily implicated here. By the way, there's a very close Clinton associate that was responsible for personally signing in Mr. Epstein to the Bill Clinton White House on numerous occasions that, by the way, just passed away under mysterious circumstances, allegedly hurting himself as well, which now we're finding out, according to RadarOnline.com, that a judge just ordered that police reports surrounding the bizarre death of a close Clinton associate that, of course, was tied in to Mr. Epstein is to be sealed, kept secret, classified away from the general public 
why is this happening where of course it's it's raising a lot of suspicions as of course it's important to note here that bill clinton ditched secret service protection on numerous occasions to hang out and party with the man that procured small children for very powerful individuals another individual that did this was of course bill gates to the point where even nbc news accredits his relationship with mr epstein that led to his divorce with melinda gates yes you heard that correctly Melinda Gates divorced Bill Gates because of his close association with Mr. Epstein, with Bill Gates refusing to stop hanging out with the procurer of small children to very powerful individuals. As of course, it's also most likely that some of the salacious details here of what was happening behind the scenes is still not known to the general public. There's also, of course, a tie between Bill Gates and Mr. Epstein with their passion of population control, which they, of course, shared together. They were also very much involved in the scientific community and working on a lot of secret projects that we still are not aware of as of course the two are involved more than than we know about and then of course there's individuals like kevin spacey who are now facing some serious charges of hurting underage children in the united kingdom three of his fellow previous accusers have also met a mysterious end to their existences but but if we look at these three individuals kevin spacey bill clinton bill gates these are just some of the individuals that are public imagine the individuals that are not public but with these three individuals we have the most important individuals in in, in politics in in entertainment in in tech in the corporate private world and this is again just scratching at the surface of some of the most influential individuals that essentially are being protected here as of course they have yet to face any real repercussions for whatever they may have done with Mr. Epstein as it's also important to note here that Ghislaine Maxwell's client list is still being kept away from the general public the DOJ has a list of clients that Maxwell is charged for procuring children to that of course they're not releasing to the general public the DOJ routinely likes to leak information for political purposes to the corporate mainstream media. They have not done this, even though there's a lot of people demanding to know what in the world is going on here and who was participating in this larger trafficking and extortion operation. That's a question that a lot of people demand to know, that, that they want to know. But the government here in this Ghislaine Maxwell trial has sealed a lot of important documents and essentially Maxwell was going down for providing a service with no essential clients, which is a, a big mystery for a lot of legal experts and scholars who are saying, how in the world could she go down for a crime selling a product that there's no customers to? That that doesn't make sense to a lot of people and it, and it doesn't make sense to me. Now this is an important story, a story that deserves a lot of attention. This story is not getting any attention comparatively to the other distractions out there. Now, obviously, Glenn Maxwell, Epstein, Jean-Luc Bernay, these are not good people. They do deserve to meet their reckoning, but a lot of them are meeting it prematurely to cover up and protect some of the most powerful individuals in our society. And that, to me, stinks to high heaven. And hey, we, we, we called this out. We, we called this out for uh, a while now. Before we get into that divide and conquer agenda, I, I think it's very fair to say that what has brought us to a point in time where not only this country is being divided, but very powerful people are getting away with some very sinister acts is because of, of 
the corporate media not doing their job and either obfuscating the true reality of what's going on, lying for special interests that profit off of human suffering, or just distracting us with pure nonsense. But there's also the divide and conquer agenda that pins people against each other, creates echo chambers along with big tech social media. And I think that is perfectly represented with the latest Supreme Court decision here in the United States that allows local states to decide for themselves what to do with the future of babies inside of mother's wombs. Now, I'm not getting too philosophical about this larger debate and topic, I think it's also important to highlight a lot of the hypocrisy surrounding some of the protests that are happening, protests that are happening in states that, of course, will still allow women to do whatever they want with their fetuses and their babies. Tyler Fisher, I think, perfectly highlights a little bit of this hypocrisy surrounding the latest protest by saying, quote, I'd go to the My Body, My Choice protest tonight but I'm not pumped up with a procedure, so I wouldn't be welcome there. And I think his point uh, is, is felt by a lot of individuals, as, of course, the same people protesting right now for my body, my choice, were making arguments that you had no choice for your body but to do what they wanted you to do with it. And I think this conversation, especially about my body, my choice, should be described, talked about, and debated a little bit further, as, of course, it's important to highlight here that my body, my choice is an important virtue that's Sadly, people pick and choose when they want to stand behind, all of course for political purposes. There's of course world leaders that are decrying the latest Supreme Court decision here in the United States that of course got rid of bodily autonomy in their countries like Justin Trudeau and have essentially created a procedure that is mandatory in its country or you can't even travel. So Justin Trudeau standing up for the right for people to choose what to do with their bodies is, is a little bit asinine as much as it is hypocritical. It's also very interesting to see a lot of people calling for riots and protests and chaos as of course there were the same ones talking about the insurrection in Washington DC that allegedly happened on January 6th. Now, again there's a lot of bad takes here not just from the left some from the right as well. There's also another issue here with a lot of major corporations announcing that they will provide coverage for women to get rid of their babies if they will choose to do so allowing them to take significant time off in order to do so covering their travel expenses facilitating their travel to a state that allows them to have this procedure, paying for it, purchasing their flights, and uh, of course, they have an invested interest in order to do so, as of course, women with children aren't really as loyal to corporations as of course, women who don't have children. As of course, women who don't have children work harder for their corporations, have less of a life, and essentially are, are better corporate slaves that are able to devote their life towards the corporation rather than, of course, families. Also, it's it's a lot cheaper to pay for a procedure getting rid of, of a future baby than, of course, it is to cover maternity leave, increase the cost of insurance, and we have to understand what Amazon, Starbucks, Tesla, and many other corporations are doing here are, are doing it for essentially themselves. Again, at the end of the day, we have to understand a lot of people are in it for themselves. A lot of special interests don't want you having families, don't want you having babies, as of course the population of the Western world is dramatically going down in very grave ways. And, and in my personal opinion, if we had an informed public, if we had people paying attention to what's going on, there would be massive protest surrounding the FDA's latest decision inoculating children under the age of five newborns and infants 
with something that there's no scientific data providing the need for. If we were informed, a lot of people would be up in arms and, and protesting this, according to my own personal opinion and perspective. And hey, I might be wrong. If you think I'm wrong, let me know why in the comment section below. All right, so now we're yeah. back. Yeah, thank you, Tony. Mm -hmm. um, now we're back. We're live from the Pork Fest 2022. All week we've been in this uh, speaker's tent. We've got uh, speaker's chairs. We've been interviewing people. I've had to go around, Tony, with this bullhorn and announce it. <coughs> I remember uh, that bullhorn. In all directions. Yeah, right? Interesting story behind that, but I'll leave that for private. And also, Porkfest, it gives you the freedom to wear something like this. I'll try not to hurt my co-host here, but I have my, uh, my blade because I learned from uh, Jeff Bezos that uh, the... the the hunting knife during the meeting is a very effective negotiating tool. Made him sweat a little bit. That's a true story. It's in a book no, called Stealing yeah. Time by Alec Klein. We read it on the podcast all the time because yeah. when people bring up Bezos, I'm always saying, let's put the guy in his context. Here's a young, skinny Bezos at this meeting with AOL trying to strong arm him. And one of the guys at the meeting pulls out a hunting knife. A quote in the book by Alec Klein who wrote for uh, Washington Post, he says, Bezos's eyes were as big as saucers. I think we just read that a couple weeks ago. Probably. Yeah, we did. We read it a number of times. Yeah, that's the so. gist. That's, mm -hmm. that's the hunting knife no, a joke. But seriously, there's a lot of freedom at Porkfest. You feel uh, very safe. There's uh, not a lot of drama. Everyone's very polite. There's a non-aggression principle in effect. And I know you guys have heard about it because we've talked about it, but those of you who have never been here, we have a short video Joshua Hale went around. He captured some video early today. And today's the last day of the festival, so you're not going to see, like, all the cool stuff. But just to give you a little taste. And then, as a bonus, we've got some VIPs here in live attendance. And uh, we'll give them a couple minutes to, to uh, answer a few fun questions, probably. But first, we're going to go. Uh, so, Tony, from a production standpoint, it's the YouTube link. Yeah, they got it. Production chat. Yep. All right, cool. Let's go to that video. And uh, we'll be right back with live people from this live festival in beautiful New Hampshire. Uh, what's my favorite part of Porkfest? You can't, that's an unfair question. It's not just one. It's being outside in the white mountains in New Hampshire for a week, fresh air, sunshine, and then the people. So there's layers to the people. We got all the autonomy graduates, staffing the speaker's pavilion, staffing the kitchen. And then you have the speakers themselves who presented during this week. And you got people like Jordan Page playing his heart out for five hours last night under the circus tent. No dark sarcasm from the classroom. find people here uh, that's why you come back year after year after year because it keeps getting cooler and we've already booked for the next year we've already got our list of how to improve it's about each other it's about freedom 
Joe, what was your favorite thing about Porkfest? The community. I love all of these enthusiastic people. They have been wonderful, and it's been refreshing. So, thank you to everybody that made this amazing. I think just really the, just getting to meet people. Just getting to meet people who I'd already known a little bit through the internet, and this was an incredible opportunity to get to see how much more you can know about people in real life. The internet gives you something great to get started with, but everyone that I met was really kinder and smarter and more, I mean, hilarious to be around than I would have imagined. And um, just getting to see everybody kind of come together in a community setting. David, what was your favorite aspect of Porkfest this year? Well, aside from finally spending some time with you in person, Joshua, I mean, where do I begin? It was absolutely amazing. Uh, probably tops on my list was getting to, you know, talk with some of the most brilliant minds in the, you know, freedom community. Gene Epstein, uh, Scott Horton, these guys were amazing. And, you know, Rich, Rich is right there with them. Uh, everybody in the community was incredible. There's such a great vibe here. Uh, we really rocked it in the kitchen. Like everything just held together naturally. It was. It was. Perfect. Excuse my language. I apologize. <laughs> Let me reiterate. It was perfect. And uh, thank you for everyone who came. And I hope to see everyone else next year. All right. So one of the most profound things about Porkfest is the community here. Everyone is very respectful and no one, you know, bothers anyone or says anything rude. And it's not just because half the people have guns on their hips. It's because we really care about what we're trying to accomplish here. One of the things Josh said during the autonomy graduation dinner is never in his experience in a kitchen has there been such little conflict. Nobody yelled at each other, there was no bickering, no one accusing anything of any, you know, not doing this or not doing that. And I said something to Jordan Page, I said, look, you know, we're all circle around, a, circling around a goal, right? And instead of wondering what other people are doing, we're wondering what we can do to get to the goal faster. So, you know, if we can sort of boil it all down here at Porkfest, it's about caring about others, and about keeping your eyes on the prize, you know, and if you want an impromptu statement, there it is. My favorite aspect of Porkfest this year was all of the autonomy grads who traveled here from all over the world to be here with us, and they came to our home to help us pack and get prepared, and they've been here all week, and they're going to be here again tomorrow to help us pack up and go home, and this has been an amazing it's just been a great experience no to connect with everybody in real life and be able to spend a whole week together. That's the best part for me. And I can't wait for next year. LD, what was your favorite part of Porkfest? My favorite part of Porkfest was getting together with all these good folks and running this kitchen and uh, just getting in the zone, doing something simple over and over again. Cooking burgers, cooking quesadillas, just getting really good at it and having people appreciate that. And I miss I miss the hustle and bustle of, of working in a restaurant or bar. So this is this is a fun uh, revisitation of that. 
And uh, yeah, it's a low pressure situation. The people are very grateful to have uh, hot food. And uh, we've made a lot of friends and people were stopping by that appreciate the podcast. And it's really gratifying to hear from them in person. So yeah, it's, it's been a fantastic week and uh, I've been loving it. What was your favorite part of this week? Well, oh man, there was lots of good little ones, but last night was really epic. of people and um, as I said like being able to perform and, and play DJ for uh, you know a community that I share values with and that yeah the dance floor was just on fire <laughs> so uh, uh, that brought me the most joy and then runner-up is like how proud I am of the uh, autonomy cafe and just yeah. how well the kitchen ran and just the concept behind it of, you know, bringing, putting together uh, a business and coming and serving the general public and then making revenue. And there's so many levels of learning and opportunity in the whole thing. We're back live from Porcupine Freedom Festival. Live from Porcupine Freedom Festival. As soon as Justin mutes the monitor. All right, so we have an audience here. I'm just going to explain it because that's the, the best way to do it. We're, I have to get up on the mic. We have an audience here. And when there's clips playing, there's a projector, and they get to hear the clips. I know. It's been... It echoes through you guys if we don't mute it. So we mute that. We come back strong. All right, so... There's a couple special things we'd like to share. Tony, there was those two short clips that I dropped in there that I just filmed at the beginning of the show. I wanted to give the audience a sense of uh, who's out here in the audience and uh, where we're broadcasting from. Let's see if those play. They can play, but it'll be through my Discord, um, which is a little bit of a problem. let's try it. The audience doesn't mind to get these candid, behind-the-scenes, never-before-seen perspectives of the live, outside audience. And so far, uh, Starlink... Is uh, our taxpayer dollars funneled through Elon Musk um, that are still working for us? I think I can download these real quick. Let's make it a little easier. So I'm just going to do that. You guys cut out. So let me cut to these clips that Richard is talking about. And I'll be back in just a second here. Ian Becker, because he hooked up uh, the Starlink for us. Like We were just hanging out trying to set up the show. And all of a sudden, Starlink comes over on the back of a pickup truck, and he's hooking it up. And I was like, well, let's see if it works. And then LD's, like, got it working. And he's got quite a setup here, too. And then uh, through the evening, I've been saving this all week. LD brought Joshua and I these nice Cohiba cigars. 
And uh, I've had it waiting for the right occasion, so I think I'm going to enjoy that and the great outdoors tonight during the show. In fact, a lot of people around here seem to have cigars. Oh, I see whiskey over there being poured. Oh, my goodness. What kind of show? Is this Flagrant 2? Is this uh, Kill Tony? Jesus, what's going on out here? All right, so. I got um, it. You got it. Did you get those open? Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. We're going to go to uh, personal footage from my camera, and you're going to come to uh, my perspective at the desk. I think that's how it finishes it. Just watch as four days ago we reported to you on this independent media channel how lawyers have officially on record put in paperwork claiming that their fellows put on this watch. There's another one here, and just give me two seconds to bring this up here. Let's see what this one looks like. You remember, Jeffrey Epstein, the man who Whit Maxwell has all the secrets of very powerful individuals in our society, was put into jail allegedly in an attempt on his own. If you remember, Superb. All right, so here's what we're going to do. LD's going to, he's going to remain in his position, right? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a spicy intro, and then I'm going to have somebody come up and sit on this seat and be on the spot. Now, I know it's really dangerous, my first move, right? This is like playing chess. My first move, you're going to think it's really risky, but I'm going to give the mic over to Ernie Hancock. The real godfather, grandfather of the freedom movement. You know, he's not the tip of the spear. Uh, he's the guy making the spear to be thrown. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's the edge of philosophical ideas. He is uh, a mentor to many, many people. He got, how much accolades did he get last night during that Jordan Page concert? Very many. Very many. Very big influencer in many people's lives. And, uh, He's the guy who inspired me to become a father. Here's Ernie Hancock. No fear, no fear, no fear. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong foot. Hello. Now, are we good? Yeah, you got to turn me down, man. It's always loud. That's just the way it is. You know, yeah, when I, when I started doing radio, you're the only libertarian in a major beer market, your morning show, afternoon, that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until like three years I was doing it, and then I went in the control room, and they had the slides, you know, the old boards that had slides. And they had, you know, everybody else was marked, and then it had a piece of masking tape way down on the, on the, near the bottom that said Ernie. And I go, is it that bad? You know, so I guess it is. You know, I wanted to, you know, I, I'm just going to take a, a minute. I was wanting to hear uh, Howard Lichtman talk about his uh, new rendition of his book and the success that he's having. And um, uh, I just wanted to let everybody know, Porkfest, this is my 14th, you know. So we're 19. Next time it would be 20 years. And I've seen an evolution and I just want to share this, my perspective. I probably won't get a chance with this audience that often. <clears throat> it's gone from, dude, man, there's just like this party. You can walk around the grass folk dope all the time. Guys got ARs on their back, and it's like, dude. So, dude, next year, dude, we're dudin'. 
So they they come here and they bring a lot of their friends and you got drunks passed out on the lawn by the pavilion on the angled grass over there and Crosby's coming in to work and one really seriously you know he's always been cool Crosby the owner of Rogers God give it up for Crosby come on I mean you know the guy is cool and uh, I go golfing with him every year so I know what's really up how many clipboards he had to put up with the previous year to be able to do this you know there's like COVID are you kidding. You know, Porkfest, you know, saved that. So I'm just going, I've seen it evolve and the people are more mature. They started having families. They started being more respectful of each other's space, you know, not less. And they were much more neighborly. The neighbor, um, to demonstrate to the world what people of this mindset, the leave me aloneist, you know, the, the, the proper old government defense of individual rights. You know, I'm not bothering you to bother me, golden rule, wherever you want to call it. It's been around a while. And it is exemplified and on display here. And autonomy, I knew once Richard came, he came, I don't want to, how much time do I got? I can tell Richard's story. Take it away. Take it away. Okay, okay, Richard's story, Richard's story. This is awesome, Richard's story. Richard and I started doing radio together, each other's shows and stuff back in like 09 or something. I mean, it was a long time ago. And uh, got to tell his story and, you know, he came up with tragedy and hope and the brain and all the stuff that he was doing before he developed into autonomy. And uh, I kept telling him, you need to go to Porkfest. You got to go to Porkfest, man. You can see it on display. It's some of my best friends, you know, come. I try to get some of my family to come. Just experience it. Just as possible. People are just, they're just polite. They're, they're just nice and they're respectful. He comes and we got a place for him to stay and he brought all, because it's Richard, you know, so he brings all his rig, right? And he did a whole bunch of interviews at that time. But I was doing the show early in the mornings from the media room. We used to broadcast it out and stuff. And I had to be here early. Richard, I wanted to make sure he knew where to go and it was Sunday night. So we came about nine o'clock at Sunday, Sunday night and we we're right over here, like one aisle over and it was a juice caboose or something. It was kind of a trailer, kind of like the pizza place down there. And uh, all of a sudden a car pulls up they turn off whatever they were listening to in the car, and they go, oh, I, well, there's Ernie. I can hear him across the thing. You know, that's just the way it is. So they come they come over and talk and say, yo, what's up? And one of the guys goes, you know, I heard you one time when you were interviewing Richard Grove, interviewing Richard Grove, you know, because he's a Richard Grove fan, so that's the only time he ever heard of me. So I go, well, he's standing right here. Immediate entourage, the rest of the night up and down every single aisle. It was like Pied Piperville, okay? So I'm like, cool, man, I got to go bad peace out. So I go back. He, what they had done, they told me, when they started their trip, they were a podcast that started after Revolution called, I think it was Revolution Podcast, something out of Florida. They started listening to Richard's Grove uh, 23-hour New World Order or whatever the heck it was, Okay. So they started in, in Florida by, they finished it right when they pulled and parked in that parking lot right there. They just, boom, done, Richard Grove. And he thought I did it on purpose. You guys set that up, didn't you? I go, no, I'm told you, man, you got fans here. And now you guys have taken and built and, and have such, already it's a tradition, it's only a second year. It's already a tradition. 
So I look forward to seeing you guys next year. You've been very kind to me. I, you know, have, you know, a project that we're working on. We're going to be doing some business, you know, because I know the quality of the people and the character that are involved in this. Thanks all of, to all of you. All right, Howard, come do it, man. <laughs> Thank you, Ernie. At the end of the boat, yeah, squared. Yeah, your job. I'm going to introduce him. Yeah. Oh, awesome, 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 awesome! I get to introduce you guys. Introduce whatever the hell his name is. So, so this is how I know. God dang, get over it, man, Howard. So, the this is how I know Howard. He was on my show promoting some long story, but he made this book. And the book was really a way to counter all the crap that's going on in the schools for his kids. Man, if you're going to be in and you know how that situation, whatever. But he's like, look, man, there's some stuff you need to know. And you look to it and it's very visual and it's awesome. And it's a it's a definitely right between a book that you leave in your bathroom for your guest and the coffee table. I'm not sure which one. But in there where the guest room that's right anybody comes stays with us man howard's book there along with a couple of others and so on it's very effective at getting your mindset around what you're with and this has been keeps going round and round and round he's moved to arizona at one time we got to spend some time together done events together he's always fundraising he's going to different parties he's gone to our parties i mean we howard and i we're we're tight and the thing is is that i feel so comfortable having in this movement someone representing this this tact this method of opening up people's minds and howard is always blessings brother all right thanks ernie Who's this Howard guy? My name's Etienne de la Boise Squared. Get up on that. Get up on that. Get up on that. <laughs> <Stay> slow. <laughs> there go. So good to be with everybody on a Sunday evening from New Hampshire. Uh, so it's good to be with everybody Sunday evening from New Hampshire. And where we are at the Porcupine Freedom Festival is you kind of kind of see it to believe it. And I had a couple of my friends that came up and joined me right from college who had never been to a libertarian anything. And he brought his cousin who had never been to a libertarian anything. And uh, I think they're almost ready to move here. They had such a good time. I think they had a better time than I had at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. And I felt like I was a proud parent watching their kids excel at camp it was such a good time and uh and you really got to sit when you actually see anarchy and you see the spontaneous uh order of porky of the porcupine freedom festival as it continues to grow every single year it continues to get bigger and so two years ago, I think there were like twelve to 1,400 people here. And then last year, there was 2,500. And this year, there's 2,700. And they're trying to figure out like how big they can push it on this facility. We wipe out the we wipe out the uh, we wipe out the uh, well sometimes. There's uh, you know there's a capacity issue here, 
But it's so cool that people keep coming and it keeps getting bigger and it keeps getting more sophisticated. And people that come, uh, they come the first year and they figure out how to do it. And then they come back the next year and they do it twice as cool. And it's you just kind of kind of see it to constantly evolving, constantly getting better, constantly having more people, constantly having more events, constantly having more, uh, you know, something for the family, something for, you know, every person that comes here can find something to do at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. Well said. Thank you. This is my second year, but yeah, it's fantastic. And y'all came back and y'all did it bigger and better than you did last year. We did. We definitely learned from uh, from the experience, and we had a great uh, group of people that just worked together well. Yeah, and then absolutely. And everybody has a blast. And so I was here, I'm promoting my book. Uh, my book is called Government, the Biggest Scam in History Exposed. And as uh, Ernie said, the main idea of the book is, you know, how do you take somebody from zero to 60 in the shortest amount of time? Uh, and most people are visual learners. And so what I did is I, I kind of put together a, uh, a book that's very, very compelling. So more people would engage with it than they would uh, just like a regular book. And not only would they engage with it, but they'd come to that moment of insight because I'm using a lot of tricks of learning or techniques to accelerate learning, including uh, you know repetition of the of the patterns, so you can see that the you know the U.S. government is running the same tricks as the Nazis and the Soviets and the East Germans, and and I do a lot with visualization because visualization makes things that were invisible now visible through visualization. Uh, whether that visualization is how uh, reporters and editors and publishers and ostensibly dozens and dozens and dozens of independently independent news organizations are all connected together uh, in three to four uh, organizations, including the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, the World Economic Forum, and the Trilateral Commission. If you don't know that that dozens and dozens and dozens of, of ostensibly independent publications that their reporters, editors, and publishers are all in the same small handful of organizations, then uh, then you're, you don't really understand how the media is being delivered to you and who's making the executive uh, decisions on what you get to see and what you get to understand and what you don't get to see. And so uh, when you can see it, there's something about, you know, seeing it with your own eyes that brings you into kind of a deeper understanding and improves your retention and your kind of overall understanding of the topic. And so that's like, that's kind of like what I try and do in the book. And uh, the book has been, you know, selling virally and I'm in the process of updating it to a fifth edition. I'm renaming the title and the new and an improved edition will be called Government, the Biggest Scam in History, or sorry, Government and the COVID the two biggest scams in history exposed and we're going to bring the book into the age of the COVID and we're going to explain how the magician did the trick and our thesis is the COVID was the engineered manufactured reason for trillions of dollars and quote unquote bailouts and stimulus and other uh, you know everything from disaster capitalism to uh, you know uh, massive foreknowledge we're going to kind of uh, bring that out in the book 
Uh, the release date is probably in the next month or two, and so I'm probably about 95% fi finished with the book. I just need to uh, I need to uh, be somewhere that is not the Porcupine Freedom Festival for about a week or two to finish it up, and so uh, so that's coming. But I think uh, in about a month we'll have a we'll have a, a brand new fifth edition of Government: The Biggest Scam in History exposed. Excellent. I think my mic's on now. All right. Thanks, Howard. Um, Tony, I think, I think we'll go back to you. Sounds good. Well, thank you guys very much. Very exciting to see you guys having, being very successful, having a great time. And was that, where is that? Lancaster, New Hampshire, the Porcupine Freedom Festival. So very cool. In the White Mountains of Lancaster, New Hampshire. White Mountains. Never heard of them, but it looks That's beautiful right. there. And looks like you guys are having a great time and really appreciate, uh, getting to share with our, our audience, what it looks like to be a part of a community, to be part of a larger organization that where people come together and share the same values, ideas, sentiments, um, you know, sort of moral predilection. So we greatly appreciate sort of giving our audience an insight into what that looks like and the fact that it is possible uh, without having sort of a recognized hierarchy to sort of bring that together in a sort of self-organized fashion. So very cool. Uh, with that, Brad, you still with me? Oh, on mute. There I am go. here, Tony. Yes. Okay. So what I want to do next, and I think I'm getting, uh, if you want to mute on the porcupine side, just uh, I think we're getting some background feed. Um, yeah, perfect. Okay. Perfect. The, uh, you guys are welcome to chime in anytime. Just letting you know, like, you know, all the logistics of the, what's going on with the sound. Uh, I want to cut to this Gata video. I want to talk about some of your upcoming projects and what you've been uh, doing recently. So do you want to give a preface to this or should we cut to the video and then come back and talk about it? Yeah, I'll, let's do a little bit of a preface. Okay. So uh, I'm Brett and this is what, my third, second, third time? Third time, I think. World? Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And uh, yeah, so this is actually a project that I'm looking to revive now that there is uh, a lot of new interest and anger and concern around what's happening in uh, public schools. I actually started my project in 2009, uh, warning people about the direction that public school and higher indoctrination or college was headed uh, based on where it had been, based on where it had came from, uh, come from, excuse me. And all of us are familiar with the work of John Taylor Gatto. He was uh, an award-winning public school teacher in New York City, and uh, he resigned very publicly in the early 90s, um, criticizing uh, you know, what he thought he was doing, which was hurting children as a public school teacher, and shifted his career into um, helping people understand the, the history of the system, the intentions of the system, the different interests that had converged on the system. So when Rich uh, made the documentary, uh, The Ultimate History Lesson, I guess that was, geez, that was more than 10 years ago. Yeah, 2011. Uh, we were spending some time together one summer, and I said, I have this idea that might be a really great way to promote the book that I, I, you could say, in a way, The Ultimate History Lesson was, was based on a lot of the themes of the underground history of American education, which is Gatto's like college textbook size uh, investigation 
of uh, of the the public schools and higher education and its origins. So um, I, in 2013, started working on this video series, and I've continued to go through the book. Danny McCarthy, who sat in uh, on the show with us the last time I was here, um, I was out in Cleveland with him, and we were just flipping through and just uh, realizing like how prophetic uh, parts of this book are, even though they're talking about you know different times and places and people. There's so much overlap with the themes of Grand Theft World that uh, I, I, I thought it was an interesting thing to include in the conversation tonight. You could pick any of these 15 videos that I made. And like I was saying, like um, the ultimate history lesson came out and I proposed this uh, to Rich as number one, an idea, a way to promote Gatto's work, but also a way to promote the documentary films. So there's like links to the film at the end uh, or in the notes and at the end of each video. And uh, yeah, I'm going through the book again and just finding more and more stuff uh, and thinking about and actually planning on revising this. I've actually started working on the first one, which jumps all the way to chapter 15. Most of the videos that I made were from earlier on in the book, um, but they're all like short, shareable, uh, easy to digest. And I hope you know, if I'm doing my job as the, the uh, you know, the narrator and the creator, um, inspiring interest in, in Gatto's work and, you know, in both the, the Ultimate History Lesson documentary and the underground history of American education. So um, the, the background of this, too, is for the last <clears throat> month and a half, I've been doing something called The Essential School Sucks. I stopped doing the School Sucks podcast last year, and I realized that there was such a demand, and you know, we were still getting downloads, we were still holding the number one spot uh, in education on Podomatic.com, we were still getting a lot of web traffic, and I wasn't doing anything with the message. So I said, you know, there's a lot of people looking for stuff like this, and I wanna try and build a bridge to you know, people who have these questions, people who have these concerns, and all the work that we've done which is, you know, me and a, a I would say, a really impression, uh, impressive collection of uh, guests and uh, voices, people who are not just, you know, have valid criticisms of the public school system or higher ed, but also people who are building the parallel institutions that give people more and more options outside of just being stuck on these public school tracks. So I started this in mid-May. I'm about 40% of the way through, uh, but The Essential School Sucks is 50 episodes that I think are the most important kind of sequenced, categorized, and put into a kind of curriculum that a new parent, or a parent who is new to these concerns could you know, come across this and go through these 50 episodes instead of encountering hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes and not knowing where to start or not knowing exactly what to do. I'm trying to like streamline the, the entire collection of uh, School Sucks and make it something that is clean and comprehensible for the people who need it now. So that will probably go on for the rest of the summer and uh, the Gatto videos will be a, a part of that soon. But I think uh, the one I sent you was from like eight years ago. Yeah, I was just going to say, this uh, is a project you started, yeah, good eight. This would be almost nine years ago now. 
2013, mm-hmm. so eight and a half or so. And so this was something that sort of evolved, I guess, as a project, as in my understanding of what you're attempting to do now with like having stopped your podcast, but moving on to sort of a different different thing with your university and potentially a new podcast coming forward, but to sort of uh, amalgamate, synthesize all of the knowledge that you are able to obtain from your research, not into this John Gatto, but then into the uh, documentary that I had the pleasure and, um, uh, you know, fortune to help film um, in regards to the ultimate history lesson. So it's sort of like, I guess it started sort of as that expose or just sort of a you know basic advertisement for that what we did but then sort of like paid it forward later on with a lot of thanks to covid i got this too brett where a lot of parents would come into the town halls and be like uh, what do i do about educating my child i see what they're teaching them on zoom that was a pretty familiar uh sort of rhetorical regurgitation i would hear and i said well you know i can point you to a lot of different methods and techniques but um you know, I don't think a lot of them had the context for how long this actually had been going and how much they are a product of that same system. So, I mean, this goes back, what, eight years ago to trying to formulate and synthesize a lot of what Gata was saying and make it intelligible and communicable to a larger audience where, you know, our the documentary that Richard uh, filmed and that was a part of, that's five and a half hours or something. So the cut it down in the short sort of, I hate to say it, but YouTube style you know, rumble, Odyssey, whatever style clips, just makes it much more digestible and starts to get the message out there. So that's, is that my understanding? You started this earlier and sort of trans transforming it now into something digestible for people coming into this. Yeah. So the, um, the underground history of American education is written. I mean, there are chapters and sections, but Mm -hmm. when you break it down to its most basic pieces, there's a lot of like really short and punchy vignettes, like Gato's writing style. And I, you know, so I was sitting at Rich's house uh, one day in, in 2013, and I'm thumbing through the book, and I said, I think you could make videos out of this stuff that would feel kind of like movie trailers. And that, that could be short. That could be like three, four minutes longer than movie trailers. But then I, I think I started becoming more ambitious, and some of them grew to like eight minutes. I think the longest one might be like 15 minutes. Um, but trying to make them like high energy, fast paced and accessible to what I thought the YouTube audience was Mm -hmm. at the time. Right now, of course, uh, the YouTube audience has changed entirely. What YouTube rewards is good content has changed entirely. So I'm kind of like trying to uh, reinvent what this was and, and find out like what's really working. Like what is the closest thing to this on YouTube and who is doing a style uh, of video like this that works. So like Academy of Ideas comes oh, to mind. Sure. Yep. I love that guy's videos. I yeah, think he's same. an absolute genius. And yep. I'm so happy about uh, you know his success. He's got over a million subscribers. Yes. So yep. so like that, I, I'm, I'm studying right now. I've already found uh, chapter 15 of the book is a gold mine for things that were written in the 1990s and you wouldn't know that they're not about today. You just change a couple places and names, and um, it's it's a very very similar story. And it's before so, the time of the internet. You know, let's not forget how much research went into what Gatto had to essentially go through in order to extricate all this information, then present it in a format that, or in a book, um, to make it intelligible and understandable for a wider audience. So I think I always try to juxtapose the fact that like we live in a very different time to what Gatto and other Anthony Sutton and other great researchers in history uncovered in regards to, um, 
you know, these, these sort of enigmatic historical perspectives, philosophical and historical perspectives. Oh, by the way, uh, the film, some, uh, one of the, the guys I've been watching a lot, the filmmaker you guys just had on Samuel Rivera, mm -hmm. Samuel Rivera. Yeah. Nice. And I started watching his stuff and I was like, wow, this is powerful. Oh, he's fantastic. He's really, really great. That's, that's a lot of work putting that many cuts into a video. In a two-minute video or a minute 30 yeah. seconds, that's an incredible amount of production work. Like, uh, I know it's a stock footage, but to, to time it with the music and to make sure it all balances it, like, that's, that's for anyone who has done video editing, you'll know what I'm talking about. That's <laughs> a lot. Really, really fantastic. I'm glad you're checking those out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really enjoy it. So, so those are the kinds of people that I'm looking at and trying to figure out what, what the new style will be with this. But still, as it was true, you know, whenever you guys started that that um ultimate history lesson project over 10 years ago mm -hmm. more people need to know about this man's work uh gato's work and we all got to stand on his shoulders yeah. i mean you have to think I about agree. the the exhaustive processes that he must have had to go through to get some of this information writing letters making phone calls like things that i mean i think we're all old enough to remember when you had to write a letter and make a <laughs> phone call to find out a thing but uh, the tools we have at our fingertips that he didn't have and still managed to put together this body of work, it's, it's extremely impressive. And I really, really hope his, his legacy lives on and we can continue to do our part to amplify it how, however we can, even, even in like parallel kinds of messaging, like what happens here at Grand Theft World and sure. you know, building this integral picture of, of history as it's happening. Uh, I think that was something that, you know, he, he looked back at the past and did it, but he also had the wisdom to understand what was happening in his time in school and beyond. So um, I, I should mention that. Real quick, like, if, is, yeah, is it possible ahead. to turn your mic up a tiny bit? People were able to hear you, but it's a couple messages from the, uh, have you turn yourself up a little bit there so you can get the. How is that? Is better? that better? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so his uh, the eulogy that I created for him that I think will ultimately become the foreword in the second volume of the new edition of the Underground History of American Education. That's the the first episode in this 50 episode collection. Um, I divided it up into five sections. So the first section was the problems with schooling, and I did 10 episodes on that. I'm coming to the end of the second section, which is uh, leaving institutional schooling and finding educational alternatives. We'll move on to uh, the principles of self-directed learning and critical thinking. Oh, From there, that's a nice segue into uh, media and information literacy. We did a lot of content on that, so I picked out the best 10. Uh, and a lot of our shows were about personal development too, so that will be the last 10 and make up the, the 50 episodes. And um, you know, the video series will be a part, the continuing video series, I should say, will be a part of that soon. And people, just to give a sort of insight, Brett Vinod, you started your, Brett, you started your podcast in like 2009, 2010, yes. somewhere in there. So you have gained an incredible amount of information and experience over the past, and you stopped in 2021, so over the past 11 or so years. And so what Brett did and what I became such a fan of is you explored so many different topics, but also explored a lot of different uh, um, solutions in regards to home education, self-help, time management, critical thinking, things that sort of where we were focusing more on the history and of the ruling class. You were doing a lot of great work 
helping to give people the tools necessary to better themselves and and better their own situation in life. So you gathered so much, you've, and you used to do these podcast series, when, you, as you said, you sort of collated them into these nice little sort of like, you had the series on critical thinking, the series on, I think, um, on uh, getting, I don't know if it's getting things done in general, but it's this uh, time management and those sorts of things. And that's what, Brett, you're alluding to, essentially, as, as I understand it. And you're trying to sort of like now synthesize it into a whole collection of 50 or so episodes of the best, most pertinent, hard-hitting episodes that you've done over that the podcast over that 11 year podcast um or 11 years that you were years. conducting your past 12 years i want to very important to mm-hmm. point out that it ran for 12 years okay. very intentionally 12 years that's how long yeah the school the school uh, i see so it's 12 years very yeah, good so you can do a side by side at the end each, each takes 12 years and uh you can decide which one's a better education <laughs> there you go fantastic well that's an amazing endeavor it's something that needs absolutely be done because you've done so much good work so many different series and as you know with podcasting you do it, 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 especially over the course of time there's so many episodes that are done that are great but it's sort of to condense it down and make it intelligible for new audiences that are coming in for this 12 years of work that you've done is just of immense value and something that needs to be um, made available for those individuals. So kudos to you for taking that on. And once it's available, let us know because we'd like to get you back on. We can market it and let people know that this is out and uh, give people the opportunity to get a sense of your work and what you've done over the 12 years and your understanding of education. One of the great things about your podcast is your own, much like riches in regards to the pow- the rulers and the powers that be and uh, sort of the, the managerial class, you also had an experience in the school system being a history teacher up in the New England area as far. And so it was sort of like we got to see it vicariously through your eyes, your own experience of what happened in regards to how you came into question being a teacher, like what's happening here? Why is the school acting this way? The pharmaceutical representatives, a whole crazy story you had in the beginning that really caught my attention. And then you sort of, then we all got into Gata's work sort of at the same time. Rich had already been, uh, you know, doing deep dives into it. And, and that's when he reached out. But then you know, from there, he sort of branched out and took different perspectives and different ways of communicating with God I was talking about and either trying to find solutions or dive, diving more into the history that God presents in his book. That's sort of the side we went down. You went into the side of looking for solutions and, you, and, and other things. And I think it's just important that, uh, you know, the fulcrum here is Gatto. Um, but I really appreciate your perspective as though it was going through like a, a a sort of description of your own experience and you're very candid very humble and very down to earth uh, it's just it's just, it felt like someone i could just sit down with that i've known for years as a good friend listening to your podcast long before i ever knew you and so i just wanted to give you those accolades and appreciation and give people a sense of what to, the experience would be like going through uh, this more condensed version of these 50 episodes yeah so i would say it's great for parents first of all thank you so much for saying that to oh, absolutely. Me. i really appreciate that but um it's definitely i would say essential listening for the parents in this audience and grand theft world listeners will uh should know that rich and tony were both mvps of school sucks uh you guys each probably appeared on the show i don't know 15 20 times and we did even shows the three of us i was i was commenting before we went live tonight the last time the three of us were on a podcast together was probably almost 10 years ago and we were talking about uh, productivity mm. and time management and organization. So uh, you will see and hear Rich and Tony in this collection of shows as well. Uh, that will be coming along soon. But 
uh, people can go and they can just put School Sucks into whatever podcatcher you use. The direct podcast link is schoolsucks.fireside.fm. Uh, but you can, you know, add it to whatever feed and it will just be for now. It's just the essential school sucks. The entire archive is uh, hidden from the RSS feed at, the, at this point. So I just want people to, to focus on our most important 50 shows for this current moment. That's perfect. So what do we say? We play a clip, come back for some commentary before we let you go for the evening and uh, give people a sense of what was sort of the progenitor for this project and what you had envisioned with uh, what you did here with this editing. So, sure. From the beginning, there was purpose behind forced schooling. Purpose which had nothing to do with what parents, kids, or communities wanted. Instead, this grand purpose was forged out of what a highly centralized corporate economy and system of finance bent on internationalizing itself was thought to need. That, and what a strong centralized political state needed, too. School was looked upon from the first decade of the 20th century as a branch of industry and a tool of governance. For a considerable time, probably provoked by a climate of official anger and contempt directed against immigrants, social managers of schooling were remarkably candid about what they were doing. In a speech he gave before businessmen prior to the First World War, Woodrow Wilson made this unabashed disclosure. We want one class to have a liberal education. We want another class, a very much larger class of necessity, to forego the privilege of a liberal education and fit themselves to perform specific, difficult, manual tasks. By 1917, the major administrative jobs in American schooling were under the control of a group referred to in the press of that day as the Education Trust. The first meeting of this trust included representatives of Rockefeller, Carnegie, Harvard, Stanford, the University of Chicago, and the National Education Association. The chief end, wrote Benjamin Kidd in 1918, was to, quote, impose on the young the ideal of subordination. At first, the primary target was the tradition of independent livelihoods in America. Unless Yankee entrepreneurialism could be extinguished, at least among the common population, the immense capital investments that mass production industry required for equipment weren't conceivably justifiable. Students were to learn to think of themselves as employees competing for the favor of management not as Franklin or Edison had once regarded themselves, as self-determined, free agents. Only by a massive psychological campaign could the menace of overproduction in America be contained. That's what important men and academics called it. The ability of Americans to think as independent producers had to be curtailed. Certain writings of Alexander Inglis carry a hint of schooling's role in this ultimately successful project to curb the tendency of little people to
to compete with big companies. From 1880 to 1930, overproduction became a controlling metaphor among the managerial classes, and this idea would have a profound influence on the development of mass schooling. I know how difficult it is for most of us who mow our lawns and walk our dogs to comprehend that long-range social engineering even exists, let alone that it began to dominate compulsion schooling nearly a century ago. Yet the 1934 edition of Elwood P. Coverley's Public Education in the United States is explicit about what happened and why. It has come to be desirable that children should not engage in productive labor. On the contrary, all recent thinking is opposed to their doing so. Both the interests of organized labor and the interests of the nation have set against child labor. The statement occurs in a section of public education called a new lengthening of the period of dependence, in which Cubberdly explains that the coming of the factory system has made extended childhood necessary by depriving children of training and education that farm and village life once gave. With the breakdown of home and village industries, the passing of chores, and the extinction of the apprenticeship system by large-scale production with its extreme division of labor, an army of workers has arisen, said Coverley, who know nothing. Furthermore, modern industry needs such workers. Sentimentality could not be allowed to stand in the way of progress. According to Coverley, with much ridicule from the public press, the old book-subject curriculum was set aside, replaced by a change in purpose and a new psychology of instruction, which came to us from abroad. The last mysterious reference to a new psychology is to practices of dumbed-down schooling common to England, Germany, and France, and three major world coal powers other than the United States, each of which had already converted its common population into an industrial proletariat. Arthur Calhoun's 1919 Social History of the Family notified the nation's academics what was happening. Calhoun declared that the fondest wish of utopian writers was coming true. The child was passing from its family into the custody of community experts. He offered a significant forecast that in time we could expect to see public education designed to check the mating of the unfit. Three years later, Mayor John F. Hyland of New York said in a public speech that the schools had been seized as an octopus would seize prey by an invisible government. He was referring specifically to certain actions of the Rockefeller Foundation and other corporate interests in New York City, which preceded the school riots of 1917. The 1920s were a boom period for forced schooling, as well as for the stock market. In 1928, a well-regarded volume called A Social Psychology of Education claimed, it is the business of teachers to run not merely the schools, but the world. A year later, the famous creator of educational psychology, Edward Thorndike of Columbia Teachers College, announced, academic subjects are of little value. 
William Kirkpatrick, his colleague at Teachers College, boasted in Education and the Social Crisis, the whole tradition of rearing the young was being made over by experts. Fantastic work. I'm going to cut over to you. you, So what are your thoughts about that, seeing this all these years later? I mean, you probably saw it recently, but, you know, presenting it again like this. I can't hear you for some reason. Uh, You're on mute. You're good. No, you're good. Sorry about that. No, you're all right. I was was noticing I sound very somber in that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> very subdued. The, the the subject matter maybe wasn't that fun to uh, to report on, but I, I think there's lots of parallel themes with what you guys do here. Like that that term overproduction was a legitimate concern, um, or a, a serious concern about uh, this kind of spirit of America at the turn of the 20th century, of like people having too much ambition and too much autonomy right and like how do how do we remedy that through uh the schools yeah uh, that's a major like issue long another yeah another great tie-in is a phrase like long-range social engineering <laughs> like all this stuff that i just know, have to laugh let me just get this on the record because you say that and i'm gonna have maddie on soon and i'm bringing this up because we're gonna talk about the rockefeller foundation tonight, and i had to so I, you can see all these bookmarks i've just going over the Rockefeller Foundation, that's that's explicit. And uh, foundations, their power, for, power <clears throat> and influence was this Wormser, which is the special counsel, Norman Dodd, Cox, and Reese Committee. So it's just interesting because as I was reading through some of this, it's just you see it all over the place. Like they had, they were essentially sharing board members between all the different foundations. And their essential number one goal was to get an education in social sciences. Number So then I was like, well, that's interesting. Education, social sciences. Then I went to this book. Um, world as laboratory talking about sort of the rise of behaviorism and the history of that and it's literally talking about that sort of exactly what your video is alluding to in regards to social engineering how much the rockefeller foundation was so intimately connected in funding some of the the great early um, progenitors in uh, behaviorism and there's different stages of behaviorism i'm not going to get pedantic with it but the point is like it was they were very interested in viewing the world and this that they could shape emotions, behaviors, ideas, that it's no longer this sort of like mind-body dichotomy. It's all just epiphenomenon of essentially matter and that we can control behavioral processes of matter and mind is nothing more than an extension of that. This interesting philosophy and then the psychological studies that were done after that. And so when you alluded to Alexander Inglis, for example, or Coverley's reflection on what had happened with education, it sort of brought some memories because I can't help but remember um gato and you referenced this just before we showed the video gato saying that he called i think harvard he literally called harvard and said can i get can i get the uh, alexander inglis's speeches you know from the harvard review committee or whatever it was and they're like well why do you want it you know what do you want what's your interest in that and he's like well you know just i'm writing a book on the biography of you know and i was i was laughed because just the way he very sort of in a very coy fashion but professional was able to get actually what alexander inglis said about all the various functions of schooling 
and the functions of schooling were very much in the the mindset of this new science, the emergence of the scientific society, this sort of scientific dictatorship that's emerged, where they can perfectly manage all the components, including the human components of the society, and that education was the key to making that become a realization. Yeah, so the book, uh, the videos, like what's presented in the Ultimate History Lesson, what's presented in these videos, what's presented in the book, uh, I think provides some really good insights into the mindset of mm -hmm. the social engineers. And maybe like there would be some disagreements even within this community on what kind of continuity there has been all the way through. I mean, I, I look at um, the history of public school really as three major revolutions, like bringing the system here from Central Europe 170 years ago was the first one. Uh, the progressive attempts to update it at the turn of the 20th century, going probably all the way to the 1930s. And then, as you mentioned, the behaviorist mm. um, injections really through like um, higher education, like the teacher science behavior education program, yeah. the things that were spearheaded by teaching departments or uh, teaching departments at universities that were then brought into the schools that was happening in the late 1960s. And that's how we get things like outcomes based education. Right. Um, those are like three. But but the spirit of each is all the same as far as like how the average person that the system will be forced upon is regarded by the social engineers themselves. So I think, you know, people can learn a lot about uh, what's in these people's heads, the kind of pathologies that mm. that inform these designs on strangers uh, and how that certainly extends beyond the schools as well. I'm trying to think it was a horse man who did the famous uh, letter um, when he was observing the Prussian education system. I forget if it was him or someone else. Yeah, he yeah. used to do annual reports mm -hmm. and he was the one who went to Prussia when... Uh, the schools were out of session and he interviewed teachers and schoolmasters and didn't really see any students and didn't really see any teaching. Um, but I, yeah, I think that was that was circa 1850. Mm -hmm. And that was his I think it was called his seventh annual report. His sixth was on phrenology, which uh, is the head bumps, like learning people's personality traits from their bumps on their head. So the such contours a... of their head. I, I don't want. I don't want to downplay it as like pseudoscience. Contours, right? it, nepotism, it's not just about bumps. It's about contours, head shapes. There's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. But yeah, he was a phrenologist. That's uh, that was another thing that he did. But yeah, he's the the father of uh, public education in the United States. Horace May. It's interesting. I know. I love the way Gatto talks about him uh, in regards to the story he tells. It's as if he was enjoying himself quite heavily while he spent time in Europe, and sort of would write back. Uh, you know, s seemingly as though he had been so diligent in his analysis of the education system, particularly Prussian education, when in fact he had done little uh, analysis at all in regards to following up with headmasters that you talked about, the school, uh, children that were part of the education system, you know, uh, different dignitaries that were associated with it, so forth and so on. Is this an interesting sort of tragic yeah. tale, but strange? Yeah, go ahead. I think it's important not to make not. I know you're not doing this. You're mm -hmm. actually very good about not doing this, but not making cartoons out of these people. Oh, no. But, yeah, I'm against. You know, yeah. He, uh, and, and that's true for all of them. That's true for the progressives. I, I could even defend, you know, like a lot of this behavior stuff that was put into higher education in the 1960s, where that could easily be sold to the average uh, graduate student as 
you know, improving uh, equality and opportunity in the world with yeah, the yeah. things they're trying to do, even though it's planting the seeds for a massive surveillance society, um, you know, similar to like the, the Chinese social credit score. Uh, Gatto talks about that in the underground history book. Like he, he talks about, he calls it the Dangan, uh, which is this, this Chinese public record system that eventually became like social credit scoring and how that's going to come to the United States. He's writing about that in the nineties, but that has its roots in, you know, the sixties, as far as like tracking and tracing, not just like academic performance, but in terms of outcomes based education, like making sure that curriculum can actually produce the attitudes and values outcomes that the managers of society want for these people. But like you can you can find you can at least understand some justification or at least how this would be sold to a kind of uh, obedient person without a lot of wisdom or without a lot of perspective. And I think in man's case, like he understood that the Prussian system that he was going to bring to the United States was oppressive, that it was used for oppressive purposes in Prussia, but they needed solutions to problems in America. One was the problem of immigration and all these different cultures spilling into the country at, a, at around that time. Um, the end of slavery was kind of a, a labor problem in a lot of places. And um, it, it, so it's like a it, pragmatic it, it, value. It, it, yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, you know, no one ever says, uh, watch me do the evilest thing. No. Uh, you know, Road paved to hell impressive. is with good intentions as the old cliche goes. And that's unfortunately studying a lot of this history. All these people are ideologically possessed with these ideas, believing it's going to be the best for society and the way to move forward. Yeah, and that, that that is also the academic world. I mean, you can go oh, to the yeah. World Economic yep. Forum's YouTube channel and you can watch people who are really trapped in a bubble enjoying the smell of their own farts, right? <laughs> like, you, yes. and, and that that was no different uh, in, in these environments. You know, Columbia University, Harvard, um, they, from inside those protective bubbles, they were looking out at a very scary world. That was true in the middle of the 19th century. It was true in the early 20th century. It was true in the 1960s, where, you know, from from their safe vantage point, it looked like society was descending into chaos and the smart and responsible people needed to do something about it. So are, are they actually wise? Did they have noble intentions? I would say probably no to both of those questions. But it's 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 a more complex story than, you know, just pure evil. Yeah, yeah, 100 percent. And the other big thing we have to put into perspective here, I have to switch back to my camera. So if I forget, just, you know, that's just yeah. anyways. Point is, uh, it's also the rise of modern science. So we were getting to see the industrialization of uh, many major countries around the world. And now America is going through the Industrial Revolution. And all of a sudden you see the impact that science is having on society, no pun intended, and all of a sudden the public can see that. They're seeing their quality of life increase dramatically. They're seeing a complete different way to have to engage with uh, technology, with our social systems, with the with labor itself is changing dramatically. We're no longer agrarian. We're moving to the cities. We're working in factories, very artificial. So it's like combined with the success of science, you know, it's no surprise that they would have this outlook of designing or believing in this sort of utopic vision of 
this 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 movement forward combined with science in regards to how to engineer so, uh, social systems and the population yeah absolutely so uh thank you for the time tonight Tony. Yeah, this was really enjoyable as it always is and it was uh nice to see uh glimpses from pork fest as well i haven't been there in a couple of years maybe three years now you need to come back brack you gotta come back I think There's next mos- year will be the year. It's too late the, this the year. The mosquitoes <laughs> miss you. The mosquitoes miss you, man. What, what happens if I'm there? Right in, now. I can be there in 10 hours. What happens if I'm there in 10 hours? I miss everything. You can help us pack up okay. <laughs> in the rain I'll tomorrow. I'll see you next year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you can be here in 10 hours, he said. Get him here. Get him here, they say. <laughs> Do you guys need to cheer for Brett? If, if he, Brett! Yeah, see? <laughs> see? Oh, see? All right, I got my keys. Here I go. He's got his keys. All right. Hell yeah. Brett, that was was outstanding refresher of good work done in the past. And I'm glad that, uh, like, because people forget how good they are and how relevant and evergreen they are. And you've produced a ton of value over the years. And it's good to kind of get that back out in front of people who haven't seen it before. You know, it's a lot of people really haven't seen it. Yeah. And it's necessary. And your production value and editing skills, like they've grown since then, but it was really good back then, too. So hey, that's my first thought. 2013, like your production, your editing skills are great back then. I mean, I know it's improved, but anyways, go, go ahead, Brett. Sorry. Okay, go. Yeah, back, back then, I noticed that, too, when the video started to play. I was like, oh, this looks a little dated. But uh, yeah, back then it was good. Um, so th- those are the skills that I'm trying to improve now. But uh, I actually recently learned a marketing lesson to what Rich just said. Rich, you might already know this. You might already teach this. But I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty clever. And I was pretty surprised that it was just occurring to me as I learned it. But um, we produce media. And too many of us have this sense that we're speaking to a crowd. We're speaking to a group of people that is standing still. And, uh, you know, for me... It was always like, well, I don't want to repeat myself. I don't want to say the same thing over and over again. And um, one of the things that I've learned was that we're kind of it's more like we're speaking to a parade, like people are moving by. And if you keep going forward with the same consistent message, you're always directing it at new people or there always is the availability of new people to direct it at. You might have some people step out of the parade because they see you on the side giving your little talk and they think you're great, so they stay. But there's always new people who are ready for that message. And, you know, I I learned that recently. It was like April or May. And I said, I have to unearth what I think is the most important work that I did on this topic and, you know, get it back in front of this parade. So uh, I appreciate you saying that. And so you're like Ferris Bueller crashing the parade. Yes, yes. That's it. <laughs> well, this right, alchemical man, we dis- this alchemical uh, distillation of your work. Sorry, go ahead, Rich. Okay. No, you're good. Uh, I was signing off and telling Brett to get some rest. It was nice to have him here tonight. And for him to see the festivities and the, su- the first successful live audience for Grand Theft World and the first successful Starlink live video streaming type thing that I know of. Yeah, this is really awesome. I'm excited to be a part of this, having been there for eight years uh, where you couldn't even make a phone call. Thank you. Thank you. Now, that's that's how far we've come. That's my point. Yeah. So, Rich, it was great to see you and talk to you. LD, it was great to see you. And uh, Tony, thanks for hosting and thanks for having me on. I look forward to doing this with you guys again. 
Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. And we look forward to having you back on once you get the rest of the project finished. And I know you have a podcast coming up you're looking to do as well. So uh, looking forward to explore those new projects with you as they manifest. So thank you Excellent. again. Excellent. Have a good night, guys. Yep. Take oh, care, you Brett. Too, man. Thank you, Brett. All right. So I got a couple. Uh, we got an audible. So uh, mm-hmm. let's see. First, I have Maddie coming on. So I just say, yeah, yeah, you're good. Yeah, you're good. I just right. want to let you know in case you had something bigger. Yeah, good for it. I was saying hey to the people in the Rockfin chat because we don't often get to see the chat, but I have it here and I can see it tonight. So I see the folks watching. How you guys doing? Thank you for the kind and gentle feedback. We're <laughs> slow on the uptake. We've been through a hard week here. We're trying to get it done, and uh, we appreciate you. God bless the um, Rockfin right, chat. Right, right. And then uh, I have – so it's going to rain like a 4 in the morning, and uh, I'm going to try to break down some of this stuff. So I have a second chair color commentary person. You know how they do it on Crowder, Tony? They're trying out somebody new in second chair. Yep. Maybe it works out. Maybe it doesn't. I got a character named Boston. Boston Delaney. No, no. He's from Boston. His name's Delaney. He, uh, yeah, see? That's, he just said use his last name, Delaney, because we all just call him Delaney all week. But he's from Boston, so he's got this accent. He can describe his accent. I don't want to step I on his I thought it was show. Hot Mike. But. Hot Mike. Well, <clears throat> truth be told, truth be told, one time in a Zoom meeting during the autonomy course, Mike was putting in an air conditioner. He could tell the story himself, but I'm going to just give you the gist. He was put, he, this is how he got his nickname, Hot Mike Delaney. He had an open mic while he was putting in the air conditioner and said a couple different things. And so we, we were yelling, hot mic, hot mic, like his mic was open, but nickname. So now he comes to Porkfest and he purveys meats. And I said his branding, well, he'll tell you about his business. Anyway, Mike Delaney, I'm going to get up. He's going to sit. And uh, Tony, you have the, uh, you got the Captain Picard chair, right? Delaney, he's oh, yeah, got yeah. a crowd here, see? And Tony does have serious work to do later, but I wanted to share. Some yeah, yeah, go. Love. Let's hear the story. Uh, get them. Um, then I'm gonna get. I'm actually gonna get Maddie set up and ready to go here while the story is going. So I want to hear the. This guy. All right. Welcome, like, welcome, hot Mike to the stage. Yeah. Who is this guy? Seriously. I don't know if I can live up to the hype. Crying out loud. So, uh, Mike, why don't you just give us a little insight of who you are, how you came to know Richard and Tragedy and Hope, the community, and uh, why you're sitting there right now, or how well, you got to be I've sitting there right now. I should get say. up on that mic and, and from the diaphragm. It speak nice. from my tenor oh, is that, what I need to loud. do, like Frank Sinatra, right? So I've been following Richard Grove for well over 15, 12 years probably now. I don't know what year is it, 2022? So... Um, it goes all the way back to 9-11 synchronicity, on and on into the Peace Revolution podcast, and then, you know, the Gatto interview, I, you know, contributed to, you know, help fund that. And um, when he started doing Grand Theft World, you know, I was following all of that and, you know, became friends with him and joined the autonomy community. And so, you know, here I am. That's kind of the elevator pitch of that story. And what was your experience like at uh, Porkfest? Porkfest was tremendous. This is my second time coming to Porkfest. Second time? Okay. Good, um, good. So, we, you know, we're running the Porkfest kitchen. Everybody. Autonomy you know, kitchen? Hell yeah. The Autonomy Porkfest kitchen. And uh, everyone's behaving with excellence. We call it excellence in motion, and sometimes food happens. And so, <laughs> yeah. Like that. that's so, that's kind of like, you know, what it's been, you know. 
every time I leave the kitchen, I feel like I'm missing something back there because that's where all the action is happening. The main stage wasn't down at the proper main stage. It was, you know, where Josh was doing his thing um, on the decks playing music. Um, yeah, Porkfest has been a really exceptional experience. Um, the most wonderful people on earth. I think that sums it up. Well, fantastic. It sounds like you guys had a ton of fun, uh, extremely successful, obviously the type of people that would frequent uh, a community and uh, a festival such as that are people already have embraced sort of the non-aggression principle and the ideas of liberalism and freedom and, you know, uh, self-betterment. And so it's just really encouraging to see that that can be done, that people can come together and, you know, be, what was it in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, be excellent to one another or something like that, you know? Be excellent to one another. Yeah, That's you know, one of the... With all know, the, like, harmonized of, guitar solos. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I said, you know, in my segment on the little clip that Josh made um, was that, uh, you know, people... <laughs> if you ever worked in a kitchen, it's rare that there isn't a boatload of conflict. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know... There wasn't any of that because we're all circling around a common goal, and that's to you know provide good food to people, good conversation, demonstrate you know what it's like to live in a you know a, a society where you know people have mutual respect, and you know no one's worrying about like what everyone else is doing. You're just focusing on how you can contribute to that goal, and um, you know there's a lot of that going on here at Porkfest. That's awesome. That's encouraging to see that, first of all, that you got to be there, that all the many autonomy grants from, I don't know if this recent season, but prior seasons also sort of made the sojourn, so to speak. What do you think, LD? Something like that. That's amazing. And you guys had a tent this year, right? You had your own little tent, some speakers. You had your own thing going on, I guess. I don't know if that actually manifested, but I think that was the original. We had Gene Epstein, Scott Horton. Scott Horton was earmarked for like an hour. We know that Richard doesn't do an hour with anyone. It, it, <laughs> went to, it probably two and a half Yeah, do you ever see the, the podcast that we do goes on a little What's bit? What's that? No, I'm, just, I'm being facetious. And, um, yeah, Rich, no. An hour is uh, an hour equals like a minute and when we do podcasts <laughs> together. so Yeah, time, time does something funny with that guy, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, you guys really have grown. And, yep. I'll turn those headphones up. I just want to say that that's awesome um, that you guys each year are growing and increasing the community uh, and the community perspective, doing your own tent, the autonomy kitchen, also just, you know, increasing your footprint, showing like what we're trying to do, the message we're trying to get out there in regards to bringing context to history and not just bringing context to history because I know that's very, that's the word I'm looking for. It's uh, It can be a little bit harrowing to witness what's going on right now, but then to also juxtapose it to a situation like where you guys are at with Porkfest, where there's so much, there's peace, there's love, there's community, there's people coming together out of their own uh, volition to engage with other individuals in a peaceful manner and in the sort of self-organized fashion. It's just wonderful to have that juxtaposition to see like, yes, this is our systems from the past, but this is a system that could be imagined in the future if we can find a way to communicate to larger audiences that we don't have to live under these consistent uh, regurgitations, reiterations of tyranny throughout time. Absolutely, Tony. And very much to your point, right? This is a group of people who, for the most part, you know, in contrast to, you know, the, the non-player characters we deal with on our, you know, our day-to-day <laughs> lives, a lot of these people have outgrown the vast majority of the false narratives. So mm-hmm. 
one, you get wonderful conversations, but two, you get this unbelievable like German uh, germination of thought and ideas just erupt out of some of these conversations, you know, and it like just the excitement of it all, you know, when you when you see like, okay, like this dude's got a farmer and he's doing like crazy things and you know, like there's this company called Bardo Farms and they want to do pig coin, which is basically like you, you buy like a coin that you know represents a pig that you get to claim at any point in the future and so it's like you know you're putting money in the bank but instead of you know <laughs> JP Morgan Chase where you get wiped up by inflation I mean inflation in this particular circumstance would serve you because you get to set you get to buy in when the price is low and if there's inflation well you got a claim on a pig right so tied to a material a commodity lot. yeah yeah and also a yeah. control inflation because based on the available production or output. So yeah, there's, I mean, that's the yeah, interesting that's thing example. is when you, when you network with people of like minds and sorry if I'm not cutting to myself, I'm speaking, but I'm not going to do that right now. When you get to network with people of like minds, especially when there's all that pent up energy, right? Cause they can't communicate with other friends and family and you get them all together for like one major event for one week. It's just an explosion of ideas and uh, networking and community. And I think that's one of the big things you're alluding to is the ability to actually like it, the brainstorming that takes place you know, the, the creative processes that take place and the, the conversations you guys have, that's something that's oftentimes missing because a lot of people have a lot of great ideas, but it's hard to communicate them, um, especially when we're behind these digitally mediated interfaces that we call computer screens and monitors, yeah. but they actually get together with people and feel that shared energy and actually discuss a lot of these ideas and actually get to find people of like mind for whatever you're interested in, whether it's farming or maybe it's Bitcoin or maybe it's philosophy in regards to liberty or, you know, whatever one might be into. Um, you get to actually meet other people in real life and discuss that with them and, and share ideas, share perspectives, share what works, what doesn't work and you know, build a community from there and take that back with you after Porkfest is over. Yeah, most of my good ideas are wasted on the multinational corporation I work for them in my in my fake life outside of Porkfest. This is the real world. What happens outside is so. What happens at Porkfest stays at Porkfest or doesn't stay at Porkfest? Oh, we're gonna we're gonna try and make sure it doesn't stay here because go. I think oh, yeah. you know this is an idea whose time has come. Well, with that being said, Fantat, thanks for jumping on. I'm going to have Maddie join us now. I want to get into a little bit of deep dive into the blogs that she's been doing on James Jordan's blog, Manufacturing Reality. And uh, then we're going to get into some clips and get back on with the show. But uh, awesome to see you, Mike. Or Delaney, excuse me. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll tune back in if you guys, LD, if at any point you need to chime in or you're going to be around, just, you know, hit me up. I'll switch it over. But um, All right. right now I want to bring Maddie Cheers. in now. Let's see if I still, yep, take care of my, or Delaney. Delaney. Sounds more badass, right? Delaney. Call me whatever you like, but it's not a big deal to me. <laughs> more badass. Uh, hell yeah, though. Um, let me see. Do I have... So with that, I want to get... So, Maddie, you're welcome to come on now. Let's see if... Uh... Hi, Danny. Hey, Maddie. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. Please excuse the dogs. Oh, you're good. Don't worry. Um, we have dogs where I live too, but my cats are the ones that get precedent. Peanut's been area. the star of the show here. Everyone here at Porkfest is like, oh my God, look at Tony's cat. That's because of Skeletor. So it's a big, uh, and Yona calling me the cat. I don't forget the name of what he, he named me in Cherokee, but, but anyways, uh, it's finally, 
it's an honor and a pleasure finally maddie to speak with you tonight um i don't know if you have camera or not if you don't feel comfortable you don't have to turn it on but if you have camera no i do i am not sure how to turn it on on my end so okay on zoom or ld once i made i might have to do that yeah ld will get you set up it probably has the option turned off for you but while we do that i want to get up i have my evernote of your blog which i highlighted various sections but then i just want to get up the blog and advertise that first and foremost so people are aware that uh you're sort of a participator a con- contributor to james's blog which he's had for quite some time and shout out to james jordan by the way like this blog is badass i have not gone through your older work james but this is really well done um let me see if i can get this on screen here so the blog space is called manufacturingreality.org james jordan who's a autonomy graduate who's a member of the gtw community he has uh, been doing his own blog spot, I think, for long before he even discovered autonomy. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Let's see when his first post was. Let's see how far back we can go here. Uh, March, so about the time probably joined autonomy. And he started getting his voice out there, started getting his message out there. And do you want to give us a little insight, Matty, how you, how you met James, how you got started on this project, and sort of his, your relationship with him helping you get started in, in regards to uh, getting your own, your own voice out there and what you're you're researching and stuff like that. Oh yeah, sure. Um, there we so, go. yeah, okay. it, it all just started. Um, I was looking into Rockefeller grants, um, trying to put together some notes about how things are operating. Um, you know, just trying to, I was taking some notes on my computer about the Rockefeller grants and, um, I ran into Did that start at the beginning of COVID. Grant. Was that like the beginning of COVID or was this before COVID even began? Um, uh, it was, it was the same year that everybody got locked down. So 2020, um, I had been furloughed from my job. Um, but I had, I had returned to work, but, um, I had recently learned about ID 2020 and that kind of got me started looking into these things. But, um, yeah, I ran into a a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to uh, the University of Virginia for a COVID commission plan- planning group. Um, so I was looking into that, and then I ran into the name Philip Zillikow. Um So I I posted in uh, the Media Monarchy Discord. Uh, I just asking who if because it, it sat the name sounded familiar to me, but I couldn't place it. Um, so I just. Threw out, threw out a message asking if anybody had heard uh, anything about Philip Zelikow, and James said yes, definitely. Um, so we kind of had a side conversation about that and and who he was, which got me more interested in in the uh, COVID Commission Planning Group. And so I just started looking into it and ran into a bunch of uh, familiar characters and. Uh, started taking notes and wanted to um, write something giving a good picture into the group but it ended up being a really really big project and um, there were a lot of lines a lot of people I wanted to look into and so I just start decided to throw it out in little bits so there are probably going to be a few more pieces coming out soon um, and it, it could really go on forever. There's a lot to explore there, but, um, yeah, that's an understatement. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to, <laughs> yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to get through as much as I can. Um, Philip Zelikow is definitely the, the cherry on top of everything. 
Let's talk about that real quick because uh, I'm going to bring this up here. So put, I have to cut back to myself. So if I forget to cut back to myself, don't worry about it. It's a big deal. Um, okay. Because it's, it's without LD here, I have to do all the manual controls, which usually Zoom does that for me. But I want to bring up your first, this is, you just call it the COVID collaborator. So it reminds me so much of how Whitney Webb does her research in regards to having a general theme, uh, a name for this particular uh, blog post, but then you have like sub themes. So you have like, um, uh, let's see here, the 9-11 commission aftermath, parallel crises. I really like that. Some of my favorite blogs would sort of break things down into sort of sub themes or subcategories within the larger blog posts that you do. And it just makes it sort of, so I can digest it in sections within sections of this larger narrative you're building out. Um, and so I, I just really appreciate the way you sort of edited that. It reminds me a lot of Whitney Webb's work in regards to your sort of your erudition and just your knowledge. And also you speak with diffidence. You're just allowing the evidence to speak for itself, which is very important because a lot of bloggers get called into um, uh, conspicuously sort of projecting their own viewpoints. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with doing so, but you do a good job of staying a bit more in the background, which reminds me of more of a professional journalist. And I know you were trained in, I think, philosophy and education. I think when I talked to you in, uh, before, and so I'm not surprised to see you have that sort of sentiment, that sort of uh, education, that sort of ability. Um, that's something that they really sort of push pretty heavily uh, when, we're, when we're writing or when writing in philosophy or in philosoph uh, departments of various colleges of philosophy. So they're really big about staying away from personal prejudice and just trying to analyze the text as you understand it to exist and as you read it. So... Um, yeah. yeah, very important. And I wanted to stress too that all of this is publicly available information. So I'm not looking into, you know, I'm not, I don't have any special access to classified documents or I'm not submitting any FOIA requests. These are just things that the people who I'm looking into, they have said themselves. So I'm just using their own words to describe what they're doing. Which makes it even more pernicious and powerful because the things that these people say, I mean, holy shit. Um, let's, and by the way, I mean, you cite everything below. I mean, you can see here. Now I'm on my Evernote, so bear with. Um, let me give a sense of what just the normal editing format looks like for people. Um, so this is, start with this one. This is your March 8th, the COVID collaborators. This is sort of your introduction to this blog series that you'll be doing. And so you get a sense, like she has the introduction here. You have the, you know, the name of it. 9-11 um, Commission Aftermath. This is what I'm talking about, sort of the sub-themes that I really like. The parallel crises where you, you juxtapose, this is one of my favorite things you do in this initial one, it's a juxtaposition between 9-11 um, and the threat of terrorism, but then COVID-19 and both how both lack sort of visibility. They're sort of conceptual, conceptually derived from very complex processes it reminded me so much of like we've been covering from a psychological domain, the whole Matthias Desmond angle of like free floating anxiety, but that's sort of, it alludes to that a little bit, right? In regards to like this juxtaposition between you can't identify it. You can't see a virus. You can't see terrorism uh, quite literally. Um, it's, it's this, the end result of these intense processes, complex analyses by experts and data gathering simulations, all this sort of stuff. And that's, I really, that was actually one of my favorite things you did with this initial um, blog post and see if I can bring up the Evernote now because I actually yeah so you can see how much I highlighted maybe I highlighted too much but if you don't mind I might just like read a section or two here just to give people a sense of like um, what you're doing to sort of set the stage for then what's going to come in the next as we go through some of the other because if you don't mind forever long I got you tonight I want to kind of go through 
um, your work progressively from each blog, and you have four out now. If I remember from the inter- if we count the introduction, mm-hmm. four. Yep. So just let's just give sort of a I'm going to give some of a foundation of what Maddie had written here, and I think this juxtaposition to which I'm alluding that she she highlighted and uh, made available for everyone in her own um, her own research. So 9/11 Commission aftermath. The recommendations in this report led to the creation of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the National Counterterrorism Center, new roles and responsibilities for intelligence community members, and bolstered the concept of quote-unquote domestic spying to thwart terrorist plans on the ground. The Patriot Act, the Department of Homeland Security, a beefed-up national security agency, information and data sharing, biometric screening, and a general ambiguous fear of quote-unquote radicalization were proliferated through and tolerated by a traumatized nation. Global intervention in the Middle East, access of evil, and preemptive war became national responsibilities with the goal of protecting the national nation by forcefully promoting democracy in alleged terrorist harboring countries. 20 years later, the world watched, perplexed, as as Americans and their allies fled from Afghanistan through the Kabul airport, while the powers of the Taliban and ISIS-K swiftly gained traction in the area. After two decades of resisting the world's greatest military intelligence, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not laughing because it's funny, it's just absurd, right? It's, this whole thing is just, after two decades of resisting the world's greatest military intelligence and surveillance infrastructures and diplomatic assays, Afghanistan, the political entities therein persist mostly unchanged. Hmm. Was that really the goal? Spreading democracy? One has to question Back to the text. The Western vision of democracy remains unrealized, and the Taliban now enjoys a seat at the table with the United Nations. That being said, <laughs> can't believe that now they're part of the United Nations. That being said, the federal response to 9-11 attacks shows little evidence of building dem- democratic institutions in the Middle East and f- or flushing out American-hating terrorists. This, there is ample evidence, however, that the response led to the strengthening of federal powers and severe reduction of privacy and civil liberties for American citizens the federal government claimed it was protecting and this is i'm gonna see if i can um we'll skip because this is important let me see if i can read this first paragraph and i want to jump down to the problem reaction solution i want to get your take on sort of how you came to sort of realize this you know the intent to cause now this is part of your parallel crisis section within this first blog this is the first sort of paragraph of it the intent to cause terror and pathogenic viruses share the characteristic of being unobservable to the common human faculties of perception i think that was such an important opening and understanding that you're able to sort of glean from the juxtaposition between 9-11 and COVID-19. Um, to see the intent to cause terror, you need a massive amount of data and the tools to sort and decipher it. With those, you may observe patterns and make inferences as to why or as to who may have the intent to cause terror. This still is insufficient to reasonably declare someone, quote unquote, a terrorist if you define a terrorist as someone who has the intent to cause terror. While you may be doing, which is circular, by the way, while you may be doing your best to see unobservable, that is a mental state, an unspoken purpose, etc., inferences like this can lead to many mistakes, and we have proof that many mistakes have been made. So I thought, you know, you go on to mention the PCR test, COVID-19, um, yeah, PCR, you go on to talk about viruses, the inability to observe them, analyzing them, and understanding them are very difficult, requires electron microscopy. It requires um, uh, antibody testing, requires genetic an- analyses, and there's a whole different, that's a whole cornucopia of bioinformatics and, you know, the different sort of metrics that are used to understand sort of genetic, um, the, the genetic nature of viruses and the contrast that exists between viruses and other s- cell tissues. It's very complex, in other words. Um, and unfortunately, in that 
and that veneer and that zeitgeist of complexity, if you will, what's we are sort of left hapless because we're now conditioned to have to be forced in a position to accept the word from authorities. And that's what's very terrifying, at least in regard. Now, that doesn't mean we have to believe the authorities, but none of us are specialists in microbiology or bioinformatics or genetic sequencing. None of us are necessarily um, experts in bioterrorism, or not bioterrorism, in terrorism in general, talking about, uh, you know, Middle East uh, uh, cells of terrorism and, you know, John O'Neill, we all know what happened to him. He was an expert in terrorism, but he happened to die on 9-11. So take me sort of through your process of sort of identifying and realizing sort of like that, that realization, that juxtaposition and sort of seeing the parallels between 9-11 and what we're experiencing today? That's a big question. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to answer that. Um, I just, I, I think that when I was younger and in the, the years following the events of 9-11, I remember, um, you know, just walking around and, feeling a latent sort of uh, ever-present fear that somebody around me might be or have ill intent of some, sure. of some kind. Um, and the same, the same sentiment is occurring now, well, um, was very, very much present in the, in the last three years that anybody around you might have um, some virus that they're going to transmit to you. Uh, and there is that latent fear there, which it's not possible for you to know that. Uh, it's, it's, um, you can't look at somebody and see that they have some sort of infection. Correct, um, right. Unless, I mean, they're, unless they're really symptomatic, which most people, when they are symptomatic, they're not going to be going out. They're going to be staying at home, you know, voluntarily quarantining themselves right. by just laying in bed and trying to get better. Um so that, to me, it just seemed a little eerily familiar mm -hmm. um, in that regard. And then, um, you know, I thought about how there were measures put in place to try to identify terrorists, right? Um, sure. So surveillance, but um, also things like when you're going to the airport, having everybody's subjected to the same sort of measurements, um, because I knew I wasn't a terrorist, right? But I still had to take off my belt and my shoes and have my my body patted down at times or, um, you know, have my luggage x-rayed. And same goes for COVID. Um, you know, in order to go into a store or a business, you're mandated to wear a mask whether or not you're sick, um, which you can't tra transmit a virus to somebody if, if you don't have it, uh, if you're not infected. Correct. So it seems very... Almost, almost identical um, yeah. Yeah. in in that regard. Just the exact, the exact same scenario, just with you know a virus which can infect anybody, which makes it a little bit more uh, pernicious than terrorism. Which to be a terrorist, you kind of have to be radicalized. You have to have a certain ideology. You have to talk to the right people, get into the right groups. There's um, intentionality and behind it. Believe what you're saying. There's intentionality. Not to cut you off, but that's the big thing to me. Just to sort of universalize. Just there's intention. There's like, whereas someone can be unintentionally infected, they may not even know they're infected. And then all of a sudden they're a spreader of a virus. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. there's that extra, what's, uh, 
that's the word I'm looking for, but concern, paranoia, fear around it, because there isn't even that intentionality. People aren't intentionally trying to get themselves infected and go spread it. At least most sane people aren't attempting to do such things. And that's what makes it even more pernicious and disturbing, I guess, with the COVID narrative, even juxtaposed to the earlier narrative of terrorism. Yeah. And and if you think about it, um, the terrorists were kind of a, a class of people who were made up of relatively younger men, mostly. Sure. Um, and with COVID, it could be anyone. It could be your grandma. It can be a, a baby. Um, it's not limited to anyone. So there's there's even more fear there because um, it could be animal you know, hosts. It just seems well. like yeah. danger is just right behind your door. Yeah, it could. It, people thought it was dogs. Yeah, at <laughs> right. some points or your cereal box. Right. <laughs> right. You can get it from a cereal box. You know, when Fauci in regards to AIDS. But that, I think that's a very important point because one of the things that's been talked about recently, not recently, over the past about a year is these animal reservoirs so no longer is it just your grandma or your dad or your mom or your you know your sibling or your loved one to your spouse or whatever but now it's you know it could be a deer it could be your cat it could be your dog it could be you know so just they're able to really push the paranoia around this sort of free-floating anxiety this very abstract way of this 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 thing we call a virus that could manifest inside someone and then spread and it can spread in all these different hosts, and you never know if you have it, and there's no real intention out. No one's intentionally trying to do this. It's just, it's like they took the playbook of 9-11 and decided to sort of ramp it up with, and I always was concerned when I worked with Richard over 10 years ago when I was spending time rebuilding the studio uh, with he and his wife. I remember ta- thinking to myself, I'm like, if they tried to do some sort of bioterrorism, that would be much more effective than what happened in 9-11. 9-11's easy to sort of, pigeonhole insofar as making identify certain groups whether those groups are actually part of it or not there is a way to sort of like point to something i guess more observable more conspicuous more even if they're wrong whereas viruses there's nothing you can do there's no way you can see it or experience it unless you get it yourself which i've had covid19 i know what the experience is like a guy from my parents who got sick and then got scared and all that stuff but, you know, not like anyone intentionally tried to do this. It's not like they have an idea where it came from. It's not like they intentionally tried to get me sick with it. It's just, it's so much more. And then it spreads in a way, especially with a coronavirus, it spreads like wildfire through resp- uh, um, respiratory droplets sort of that can be suspended in the air and persist. So it just becomes a situation where almost anything, I mean, for the hypochondriacs that exist out there, I can only imagine what the state of anxiety was for them over the past two years and ongoing because, you know, I I feel bad for those that suffer from those types of anxiety disorders because this is something more, you can sort of compartmentalize, I think, the the concept of terrorist cells and organizations where it's much harder to do so with, with the virus narrative. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, you can know that, um, you know your friends, and you mm. know your family, and you can be pretty certain that they're not terrorists. <laughs> well, unless, you but know, you you're Merrick Garland. they're not. Unless you're Merrick Garland. And well, tell, yeah. Yeah. All the white, <laughs> white Trump supporters are terrorists or something like that. Or basically anyone that doesn't support woke narratives or something, you know. But, I, you know, I want to jump into some more, because for this to jump back here, this first, like your opening sort of statement to your first blog here, not, I called it the opening statement, your first blog, to what then becomes the COVID collaborative. And you get into some of the key figures of it. We're going to get into uh, Shaw, we're going to get into Tom Inglesby, 
Um, but I just thought this was a really great sort of introduction to what your goals and intentions were and sort of juxtaposing that there's a, like this ominous continuity as God, I would say between 9-11 and now what we're experiencing with COVID-19. There's so many similarities, but if anything has been ramped up um, from what was implemented in 2001, 2002, 2003, the essentially post 9-11 world to what we're now experiencing now. And your, your blog, each post continues to show the parallels um, with biometric data, with um, utilizing te- uh, this this need for pandemic response, um, the sort of uh, National Advisory Board or committee, I forget what it's called, when they talk essentially advising a FEMA and how to deal with pandemics, like how it connects back to like some of these institutions that were started in regards to the aftermath of 9-11. And I thought that was just a really good introduction. So kudos to sort of your erudite recognition of what was going on there. Sorry, I just cut the wrong thing. Now I want to just jump to, let's go to, I love this, shock and awe. What's his name? Rajiv. Rajiv Shaw. Yep. So this is interesting. So give us a little... He's uh, everywhere. He, yeah, this guy. Yeah, well, he would be, right? Being the uh, president of the Rockefeller, current president of the Rockefeller Foundation, if I remember yes. correctly. Of course, since he's, 2017. Since 20. How convenient when the moratorium was mm-hmm. lifted. Wow. Nothing to see there. So let's get into this a little bit. Um, by the way, I love the name. Shock and all. Great play on words there. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I want to, so CC, let's clear, make this clear for the audience. So, cause when I was reading, I got a little confused. CCPG, first of all, real quick, I need to say this. So if we go back to your first, the opening blog, um, I think this was it, right? Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Philip Zelikow. For those that aren't familiar, Philip Zelikow, um, University of Virginia, he was tasked with the 9-11 commission report. And his idea is public myths. And in fact, if I can bring that up, so for those that aren't familiar with it, this all you got to do is literally go to his Wikipedia because it says it right there when he gave a speech talking about this. Um, Philip, give me two seconds here to bring this up. So I give, for those that might not be familiar with how many times Rich and I have talked about this, but I'll get this on the record. <clears throat> so he... See, uh, let's see here. Academic federal government positions. Practicing law in the 80s, Elko turned to the field of national security. Adjunct professor at uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He joined the United States Department of State. Did the standard exam, blah, blah, blah. 1989, he was uh, George H.W. Bush's administration. He was in there. Elko was detailed to join the National Security Council, where he's involved as a senior White House staffer in the diplomacy surrounding the German reunification and the diplomatic settlements accompanying the end of the Cold War. In 91, Zelikow left the NSC, National Security Council, to go to Harvard University, where he's Associate Professor of Public Policy and Co-Director of Harvard's Intelligence and Policy Program at Harvard Kennedy School. In 98, Zelikow moved to the University of Virginia, where I think he still currently resides, could be wrong on that, where until February 2005, he directed the nation's largest center on the American presidency. Strange. Uh, he served as director of the Miller Center of Public Affairs and White Burkett Miller Professor of History held an endowed chair. Uh, following an appointment at the State Department from 2005 to 2007 during the Bush administration, Zillicow returned to academics. So he was, for a brief time, um, appointed by Bush, I think to be under the Homeland Security, but I forget specifically what it was. But he's part, anyways, the Department of the State in general. But I want to go to what he's known for, besides being the head of the commission report, 9-11 commission report. 
expertise. And while at Harvard, he worked with Ernst May and Richard Neustadt on the use and misuse of history in policymaking. They observed, as Zelikon noted in his own words, that, quote-unquote, contemporary history is, quote, defined functionally by those critical people and events that go into forming the public's presumptions about its immediate past. The idea of public presumption, he explained, is akin to William McNeil's notion of public myth, but without the negative implication sometimes invoked by the word myth. Such presumptions are beliefs thought to be true, although not necessarily known to be true with certainty, and two shared in common within the relevant political community. So in any, in other words, when he's given the speech at Harvard, he's noting that William McNeil's sort of notion of public myth was had negative connotations associated with it, and he wanted to remove or extricate those negative com- connotations and say, it's uh, that's not a serious myth. In the absence of consistent data, there's nothing wrong with creating a story, a narrative that can give that can help direct national policy. At least that's how I interpret it. I don't know if you see it similarly or if you got any sort of, uh, have any feedback for what I said there. I wanted to give people some comment on that. Oh, you're on mute, by the way. Yep. Or at least your dogs are. Very good. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think he, I think he finds it in, important that, um, you know, and this speaks to the COVID commission planning group versus the COVID collaborative. So, mm. um, the COVID collab- collaborative is the action arm. So it is the thing that is pushing uh, the White House to to generate a COVID commission. They want to call okay. it a task force because uh, they don't want to call it a commission. Um, but the commission is is meant to, um, uh, as he puts it, uh, write down what the lessons are to be learned from the pandemic sure. so that yeah. we can do better next time. Um, so it is important for him to tell a story that's moving and passionate, um, so that people remember it. Um, that way, the next time they run into the same situation, they have those, um, heuristics to easily inform their behavior the next time around. And that's what's terrifying here. I mean, this is just in the beginning. Rockefeller Foundation granted $417,000 over a period of four months to the University of Virginia where he, I guess he still currently resides, towards the cost of the COVID Commission Planning Group. The aim of this group is purported to preserve the lessons learned during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Maddie's words now. Uh, and to prepare the way for, an, well, that's what she's quoting uh, in regards to what the commission's purpose and purview is. And to prepare the way for a national COVID commission that can seize this once-in-a-century opportunity to help America and the world begin to heal and safeguard our common future from new existential threats. Now let's juxtapose this to what you have down here with the 911commission.gov. Quote, an independent bipartisan commission chartered to prepare a full and complete account of the circumstances surrounding the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks, including preparedness for and the immediate response to the attacks. The commission is also mandated to provide recommendations designed to guard against future attacks. I mean, it's... Um, only a couple words really off there between their goals and intentions. Um, And it's just, it's really interesting to see 20 years later, how they, you said you heard heuristics. And that's a perfect word for it. This sort of general rule of thumbs, these sort of general characteristics, paving, paving it forward, using as a model for how they're then going to roll out the COVID commission um, report. Now that what's interesting is when did you just said you discover, was it 
the Zoacal connection because he was tasked to um, with this new COVID commission and come up with the history of what happened. Was that what you said it was uh, Media Monarchy? Is that when you posted in there? Yeah, it was about um, August or September of last year. It's interesting because I remember I joined Grand Theft World. So now it must have been like... Hmm. So it would have been like 14, 15 months ago. So it would have been I'm a little over a year. I started like April 2021. I finally had a reunion with Rich and his wife. And we got together and I was like, hell, I'll jump in on the Grand Theft World. Next thing you know, I'm now hosting and co-hosting sometimes. And what was interesting is I couldn't help. i got to turn my, I don't know, they're probably screaming at me, turn your camera back on. I will never forget that first episode as I'm sitting in Rich's, he has two studios. I think it's Studio One. And where he does his autonomy course, I'm sitting there listening to James Corbett talk about Philip Zelikow. And I'm like, man, that name sounds so damn familiar. Like, who is this dude? I know I've heard this before. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, he's tasked with the uh, um, researching the origins of COVID and, you know, plans moving forward for it. And like he's basically tasked with sort of the commission for how to understand and prepare for learn the lessons from and prepare for the future what COVID was or for the fallout and the lessons from what COVID had manifested. And then he juxtaposes that to 9-11 commission. I'm like, oh, he's the guy who came up and was the head of the 9-11 commission uh, committee where they had literally pre-written the entire thing. They had the questions first and they filled in the answers. I mean, it's uh, a classic sort of prescriptive style philosophy. Um, And I was like, oh, this dude is public myths. He's connected to the State Department. He's been a part of numerous administrations. This dude's here to spin it. And obviously, Whitney Webb sort of follows up with a welcome leap and some of the connections there as well, which is very interesting, too, as a side note. Um, but because there's also, with the welcome leap, there's Jeremy Farrar. That's also sort of a part. I don't know if you studied him at all, but he has some say in sort of crafting this narrative as well. That's also interesting. So that's that's something to look forward in the future. But the fact that this man... Direct, the Rockefeller Foundation, first and foremost, is directing funds to the University of Virginia, where he's currently residing, to develop a planning commission, or a COVID commission planning group, to develop then a collaborative to identify, the, essentially do what the 9-11 Commission Report does, which craft a public narrative, a myth that they can then justify in public policy through legislature, through the House and the Senate, and then executive branches of government to justify biometrics and you know, greater sequestering of data, um, you know, the, con- the consolidation of databases worldwide. Terrifying, but the fact that this, you would think they'd be a little bit more creative in utilizing different people, but it's the same, it's the same coterie that they're, and the fact that the Rockefeller Commission is behind it as well. I mean, that's, I'm not surprised. I've literally, and I'll get to some quotes here in a second about the Rockefeller, because I think you'll find them interesting when we get to Shaw, Rajiv Shaw, but Yeah. Sorry, I'm diatribing, but yes. it's really good work. Oh, yeah, no worries. And and just so you know, for the for the COVID Commission planning group, they've already interviewed everyone. They already have all of their questions answered. They've already laid the framework for what a COVID Commission investigation is going to find out. Um, so all they need is the go-ahead, um, which they're working on. They've gotten um, some press in the last about six months regarding the COVID Commission. They're trying to get it through um to legislators to actually get it through. And uh, the bill that they want to get it through in is called the Prevent Pandemics Act, which it's still getting drafted and redrafted and revised and all of that. But um, they're definitely working on it. But um, 
the COVID Collaborative and the COVID Commission Planning Group have um, almost identical advisory boards, okay. um, except the the COVID Commission Planning Group has, well, uh, Zelikow is the, the, the leader there. Um, and in the COVID Collaborative, he's just listed as another advisor, um, yeah, which I'm sure he acts strange. as... A, yeah, he acts as a bit of a back channel uh, between the two groups, I'm sure. Um, but I'm, I, what I, what I am imagining these two groups to be is that um, the COVID Commission Planning Group is being run by Zalikow, um to just get the 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 report done when they get the green light, and the collaborative is being run by uh, Rajiv Shah um, because see. it is okay. a Rockefeller Foundation sort of um, group there. But um, they are they are definitely connected, although not explicitly so yeah i mean i saw uh, the way i see it from your article at least um now we're referencing sort of shock and all which was interesting when talking about rajiv shaw who's the president of the rock current rockefeller commission is that the ccpg which zelikow heads the clovic commission planning group get that right say it ten five times fast um he sort of the man sort of the managing director of then what is sort of it's sort of sort of like a foundation then has these sub foundations with that to funnel the money and distribute the money um and sort of it's it reminded me of that where like now he's sort of overseeing how all the parts are going to fit together in regards to how they're going to craft this how they're going to spin the narrative, how they're how sort of managing director he's like project manager almost is the way i sort of look mm-hmm. at it um and he's then, a project manager like you'd find at darpa yes that's exact. It's exact. That's yeah. That's a perfect analogy for it, and that's what it, the parallel is, one to one there. You know. So, I want to jump into this one a little bit, and let's see. Okay, we got some time. Um, there's so much here, and this is just your second Paul post after your introduction. So I, I'm just gonna read a couple sections here to give people a sense of like where you're coming from. But well, let's see. First of all, I mean, yeah, let me read these two because this says everything. In addition to these actions, meetings have been held by the CCPG with senior White House officials and members of Congress to urge the Biden administration to formally establish a national COVID commission. Can you speak actually a little bit to that? So like this, this Rockefeller, so this private foundation is, sends almost well, $417,000 University of Virginia, which Zelikow then heads this group called the COVID Commission Planning Group. Now they're sort of lobbying the Biden administration to establish this national COVID commission. Um, I found that sort of interesting because it's like, you know, you have these private interests now lobbying the government in order to sort of establish this. Has that been established? Is it still ongoing? Um, is that part of the pandemic legislation you just referred to that I already forgot the name of? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's called the Prevent Pandemics Act. And every every letter in Prevent stands for something, okay. um, which I can't remember right now. But um, yeah, it's not it has not been established yet. It's in the works. I see, Okay. So this is, you can kind of see how they, how it begins with these sort of, called, right now it's private, but public-private partnerships that build up. Now they want a national COVID commission, which is being essentially set up really in the background, or at least the, the foundation's being laid in the background by these private interests. Very strange. Now, the reason why, it's, I shouldn't say strange, everyone knows why it's not strange, but we're going to get into some of the connections here, because this will say everything about why they're interested in setting up a national COVID commission. So continuing mm-hmm. forward with what you you wrote here, after all, the solitary goal of this organization is to create a demand for one. The COVID-19 pandemic caused so many unnecessary deaths because we did not respond to it in the way in the right way, Zelikow argues. 
The government failed in its response. We are obligated to investigate why. And we need to establish practices and policies that ensure the correct response because we must do better next time. I could go on a whole rant here about how it was perfectly set up to fail, but we won't go down that road. In order, the response, in other words, was set up to fail. But I want to jump down here a little bit later in this blog post talking about all of the people, um, the confluence and of interest sort of here. As the saying goes, never meet your heroes. I love this section here. The current list of quote-unquote advisors for the CCPG plainly contains many with serious conflicts of interest. For example, former FDA Commissioner Mark McClellan is listed there. He is also a member of the COVID Collaborative's National Advisory Board. They're probably, they probably correspond with FEMA and all that. Yeah. He now sits on the dire- board of directors for Johnson Johnson, a company that developed one of the few COVID-19 injections authorized for emergency use, and the mRNA COVID pill, J- Janssen as they like to refer. Um, it's probably the trade name or something like that. Johnson Johnson. So they have the, the there. that's the adenovirus vector vaccine. And then they have the pill. Continuing forward, alongside McClellan, whose company engages in research projects with DARPA, sits Dr. Richard Danzing. Danzing, who sits on the board of directors for the Center for a New American Century, is a consultant to Intelligence Award Research Project. I didn't even know that was a thing. Intelligence Advanced Research Project. I mean, I know about ARPA, then DARPA was sort of born out of ARPA, but then there's IARPA. Like, what the there's hell? There's a lot of ARPAs. Yeah. Almost every 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 little um, government branch has its own ARPA. Basically, it's uh, Advanced Projects Research Agency. Even private companies are developing them, too, like Google. Like Google, yeah. Um, Amazon and then yeah, Regina on. Dugan went over to Google to actually establish an ARPA branch in Google. That's right. Recently, that's right. And she's Whitney Webb did a bunch of exposés on her and her connections at DARPA. Then going to Google, and she also went somewhere else. She was a, a, tied to a couple of companies, but Google was one of the big ones. Where she, had, it's just interesting that private corporation like Google is like, well, you know, Incutel, <laughs> but you know, they're sitting there and they're like, well, we need to come up with our own advanced research project, but we'll do so in a how do we model it? And it's like, well, let's go, let's model it off how the government does it uh, through DARPA. That's usually it's the other way around, and, but you know, okay, go for it. Yeah, I mean, and and DARPA was really uh, established to cut through red tape where other agencies weren't um, kind of able to, to do things. They were given the go ahead to do risky and, and expensive things. Um, you know, in a skunk works like fashion. Correct. Um, Hence which I think is what the appeal is. That's so well said. That's and so important too. I forget if Project Diffuse was sent to DARPA or not. I don't think it was DARPA, but I think it was, uh, I thought DARPA had some involvement because I remember when Ben Swan did his expose, it's like, yeah, three and a half million from EcoHealth, but then there's like 40 million to DARPA projects. And that was very strange at the time because it's like, what are they into? I think Project Diffuse was presented to DARPA. I forget if Rich is on you to remember. But I believe so. I think it yeah, was. Yeah, DARPA has a lot to do with medical countermeasures. And what's really con- like troubling about Project Diffuse is when Rich was going through that, highlighting like bat aerosolized vaccines and aerosolized virus and like these, you know, recombinant chimeric processes with the viruses and all this stuff. What's troubling about it is like they didn't disagree with the proposal that EcoHealth Alliance had sent forth, I think. I think that was through EcoHealth Alliance, Project Diffuse. But it was more an issue of, like, they didn't like the language of the proposal. That's what got me. It's like they, it's almost like, to your point, they're, they go ahead with projects that are very risky, but they also sort of, 
you know, they they euphemize it. Like they 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 like the proposal sent with a specific type of language. It's very general, and there's too many specifics in there. And they sort of highlight that in the beginning of why they're, they're they like the proposal. They say in the beginning of it, they just want to change some of the specifics of it. And that, that's a, yeah. everything I needed to know. And that to your it's point, too conspicuous. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think um, it, it it was either uh, DARPA or BARDA, uh, one of the two. And who's BARDA, or what is BARDA, I should say, for those who aren't uh, familiar? Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Agency, oh. if, I can rec- if I'm recalling correctly, I think you're right. but I can just look it up. Yeah, because Bar and you have it somewhere in here. I forget if it's this one or the one with Inglesby, or the most recent one you did, which... I wanna, we're gonna get through all of these yes. if we have enough time tonight because I really want to hit hit the point home because this is really empower, this is really incredible research. I think the number one thing I must say is just the quality of writing uh, was top notch. Like this is just it's and it's also not too much. At least maybe from I might be biased there because I read stuff like this all the time, but it wasn't too much. I feel like someone can dive into this and it reminds me a lot of Whitney Webb where it's like I can sit there and I can digest what I can of it. Hers are longer, but I, the fact you're breaking it up and making it into digestible pieces for the audience and I want more people to understand and you're certainly looking for feedback that check it out like not only her blog, but James does a number of fantastic his blog spot has done a number of fantastic postings recently as well has been doing it for a long time since uh, like March of 2021. But uh, you make it very digestible, even though it's a lot of information. And one of the things that Richard and I can't really do anymore is uh, this real time research. We still do obviously all the time, but our, we obviously have a penchant for what we've already researched in regards to how it all connects to the Anglo-American establishment and the historical machinations that have transpired in regards to how, while we're experiencing the sort of systems we're experiencing today for you and Whitney Webb and Vedmore and just, you know, real time researchers to bring to light the interconnected sort of coterie web, this like unholy alliance, if you will, between all of these individuals means a lot in regards to making it intelligible for us and seeing how it connects to the larger narratives that we try to present through history. So kudos just to the quality of uh, the work you're putting forward. Um, but thank you. I want to. <laughs> it's. No, I mean, I and, really, and I really do that, mean that. Yeah, go for it. Uh, just, just trust that I, I am putting in as much as I feel is relevant. But there's a lot more there. Um, there's a lot that I have to leave out just because it, it can become too much like a, a yeah. web that you get stuck in rather than glean any any good information from um so that's why the links are there to let you go as far as you can tolerate um because i might have missed i'm sure i've missed plenty of of relevant things but um there's there's other connections there that i just wasn't i wasn't interested in focusing on at that point i think it's also important i just want to point out that you're right it's very easy to get caught in sort of catch webs and get stuck in sort of these these tunnels, um, these rabbit holes that we dig. And there's connections, but then all of a sudden you dig the hole so deep that you find no light at the end of the tunnel, and all of a sudden you can't find a way back out. And you do a good job of making sure it stays um, consistent thematically. And so as you keep going forward, and you'll we'll see as we get to the final, the most recent one you did, how it's connecting to the need for universal vaccination, biometric scanners, like it's connecting to the larger goal and agenda um, I forget the name. It's the, the, the Duke University guy in your most recent one, but when he oh Robert Kalis yeah, yeah that guy oh my god when we talk about Kalis yeah. that is because then you see to, to me you can see how it all connects world economic forum fourth industrial revolution 
this biometric surveillance state and the end like sort of touting the importance and the hope for this in some sort of like demented fashion really fascinating and so there's a consistent theme that you're approaching each one that you don't get lost and it becomes it's it's not episodic it doesn't get lost in being like one blog that's isolated from the other ones you're doing a good job of building it out and making each one interconnect um but it's tough because having to leave out details um that's a difficult thing to do (laughs) but i want to jump back here and just go over so we're at iarpa uh continuing forward with maddie said the department of defense and department of homeland security and trustee of the rand corporation big surprise dr julie gerberding um the executive vice president of merck also made it to the table there are many other notable advisors listed but i'll avoid elaborating that further for now so i want to get into rajiv shaw real quick so I'm just going to read this and then I want to this jump to foundations or power and influence. I think you'll find this very interesting, Maddie, as I was, because I was like, man, I just have to show this section from, I know we reference it all the time. It's the Cox committee and the race committee and Norman Dodd is sort of the, one of the special counsels. Like he was the one that audited after Reese was upset with Cox's information and what they were able to glean from the tax exempt foundations. When I picked up this book, I'm like, this is exactly what I'm reading from Maddie's blog. So let me just real quick, like this, give this to the audience. Dr. Rajiv Shaw. Philip Zelikow became involved with the COVID Collaborative in early 2021, while the CCPG was still in its fledgling stages. Former First Deputy Assistant to President George W. Bush and Director of the White House Domestic Policy Council, John Bridgeland, serves as the Collaborative CEO. So he's CCPG's, okay, or yeah, COVID Collaborative? No, he's the CCPG CEO, but Zelikow remains a principal member of the group and probably serves as a back channel to the CCPG, I see. The COVID Collaborative works as the CCPG's partner. So the COVID Collaborative, in other words, is born out of the CCPG, which is sort of like the overall project sort of managers for this more narrow, more myopically focused COVID Collaborative. Do I got that right? Yeah, it's it's basically working to do what it wants to see done as a result of the commission before the commission has been established. So it's kind of doing, it's preempting, it's laying the groundwork kind of paving the path for what the commission is is ultimately meant to do but they're trying as to pass, i as i see it yeah as they're trying to pass through the legislation the pandemic prevention pandemic mm-hmm. act interesting and the commission they're trying to set up as being a uh, a government commission uh so they're, they're the ones taking making it actionable i see the sort of like ideations the sort of brainstorming of the ccpg laying the foundation for them what they want to be a national commission how convenient. Yep. You can see public-private partnership all over this. Um, so going back here, but focuses on public health action and policy. So it may not come as a surprise to find the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, Dr. Rajiv Shaw, on the collaborative's list of national advisory board members. <laughs> this this killed me here. Dr. Shaw is an incomprehensibly busy man. On top of his roles at the Rockefeller Foundation COVID Collaborative, he occupies various positions at the Trilateral Commission, the Atlantic Council, the One Global Leadership Circle, the Council for Inclusive Capitalism, the Global Food Exchange, the Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Marco Workforce Initiative Advisory Board, Omeros, Omeros, a biotechnology company, the Adrian Arst Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center, the World Affairs Council, and the International Growth Center, and is paid for speaking roles at, of course, the Aspen Institute. What a surprise. The Milken Institute, which, by the way, that's where that 2019 conference was held about. Well, if only there was a worse pandemic, you know, then we'd have the justification for bringing in mRNA technology. 
Path North, USC Center of Philanthropy and Public Policy, the World Bank, and the World Economic Forum. And he's also a trustee for the National Geographic Society and found a private equity firm, Latitude Capital. I mean, that just... Uh, I don't know how he does it. Yeah, I'm like speechless because... Yeah. <laughs> how does he do it? I mean, seriously, it's... Sorry, I have to cut back and forth here. But the here's what I'll say about this. First of all, um, conflicts of interest. There's a couple in there, at least I could see. I don't. Little, they seem a little disturbing to me. But I guess it's a private organization right now, so that can be sort of. But they're trying to get it into legislation. I mean, you, you talked about here up here was the the National COVID Commission. I think it was called. Yeah, National COVID Commission. And that's what got me is that's why, and let me see if I can bring this up real quick. Um, I had it up, then my computer crashed before we started. Knock on wood, no more crashes. Uh, the, uh, I want to open up and just share with you this one section of, it's called, it's the section or the chapter called The Concentration of Power. <laughs> uh, foundations, this is Renee Wormser, I think he was special counsel to the Reese Committee, Reese Committee, and he was the one that sort of like, put this all made it intelligible um authored essentially all of the findings of norman dodd as part of the the race committee so foundations their power and influence i'm gonna oh no well didn't want that to happen but there it goes oh whatever so but i do have it on screen here so let me see if it's on page 44 and so bear with me real quick as i get this up here no you don't want to you want to cooperate no. okay oh wait no it doesn't have, this is not the full book. Well, if you can bear with, I don't have one of those neat cams, but there's, but if you can, if everyone <laughs> can bear with, that could be taken the wrong way. This is not only fans, everyone get your gutter. Mine where's your book gutter. cam, Tony? Yeah, where's my book cam? Rich, where's my book cam, bro? He actually has one for me. They're pretty expensive and I really appreciate that, Rich, but I've been putting off visiting them, which they've been, so I have to make a trip. I know, I'm already hearing it. Uh, <laughs> but bear with so this is on page 58 for those who want to follow along I could have sworn I had a PDF copy of this but whatever uh, and it's page 57 starts the concentration of power and I'm going to start on page 57 just read a couple paragraphs I'll read it quickly here that interlocks among foundation boards existed was clear enough F. Emerson Andrews and his philanthropic foundations mentions two complex cases as evidence of the national prominence of many foundation trustees. In one case, the foundation had 20 trustees who had a total of 113 positions as trustees or officers of other philanthropic organizations or an average of 5.6 each. In other words, they're all sharing positions on each other's boards. Um, the range of outside positions rans, range, ran from excuse me, 0 to 14. The board of the other foundation, which Mr. Andrews cited, was composed of 14 trustees, holding a total of 85 outside philanthropic positions or an average of six per trustee, the range being from zero to 13. If, as the Cox Committee held, a foundation trustee's job was onerous to the point of, quote-unquote, seriously interfering with his business, one wonders how any man could simultaneously fill 13 or 14 philanthropic offices effectively and conscientiously. And I'll read this last paragraph here because it alludes so much to what you, you had sort of discovered in your blog post. Overlapping of foundation administrators, excuse me, overlapping of a foundation administrators is an old story. In his foundation, 
John D. Rockefeller employed some of the same men to whom Andrew Carnegie had entrusted his endowments. Dean Rusk, speaking for the Rockefeller Foundation, explained that consultation among foundations arose from the desire on the part of each one of us to use its funds to the best advantage. He defended discussions among foundation officers as a desirable means of exchanging information to avoid duplication of effort and to permit funds to be used wisely. However, the intimate associations with which Mr. Rusk lauds can be dangerous. They can operate to force our culture into a uniform pattern. It would be far better for society to face occasional waste, which lack of interfoundation inter planning might cause, than to take the risk of losing a truly competitive intellectual climate. Indeed, there is similarity between Mr. Rusk's plea for cooperation among foundations and the arguments given for industrial cartels and for regulated competition for that matter, with the rationale for a socialist plan economy. And there's another section, let me see if it's pertinent, very small one here, um, that I found to be really interesting. Uh, let's see, I think it was on the page before, bear with. Uh, oh, yeah, here it is. Yeah, okay. That was one of the bookmarks that fell out. What makes up, this is on page 63 now, this is the last section I'm going to read. What makes up the interlock of the financing of social science activities? The report of the Race Committee described the, quote, network or cartel, end quote, in the social sciences as having five components. The first is a group of foundations composed of the various Rockefeller and Carnegie foundations, the Ford Foundation, referred to as, quote, a latecomer but already partially integrated, end quote. The Commonwealth Fund, the Maurice and Laura Falk Foundation, the Russell Sage Foundation, and others. The second component consists of the intermediaries or clearinghouses. And I think your work alludes to some of like what they, how they get, how they sort of dispense the funds, if you will. The American Council of Learned Societies. The American, so you got the foundations and you have these sort of, they're not really sub-foundations, but they're sort of intermediaries They he, that they, the Reese Committee claims acts as sort of clearinghouses. The American Council of Learners Societies, American Council of Education, of which I think the General Education Board is a part of. I think we alluded to earlier in regards to Rockefeller's influence over education. National Academy of Sciences, the National Education Association, the National Research Council, the National Research Foundation, the Social Science Research Council, the Progressive Education Association, John Dewey Society, the Institute of Public Relations, the League for Industrial Democracy, the American Labor Education Service. The, the fourth consists of learned journals in those areas. Now you can see how the journals, in this case, would be medical journals in our context, but the journals, in this case, would be social science journals and the various colleges that make up and the various universities that they're funding in regards to social science. And the fifth was certain individuals in strategic positions, such as certain professors in the institutions like a Philip Zelikow, which received the preference of the combined. And that to me just, that was 1952 through 1954. We're in 2022. And what I'm seeing here when we juxtapose what I just read to what you very astute, uh, astutely sort of researched, put this back on screen, look at all these overlapping <laughs> interests. Now, it's, it's a loose, it's an analogy only, because this is a little bit different. These Some of these commissions, the Trilateral Commission, the Atlantic Council, so forth and so on, they're not necessarily in clearinghouses, but they certainly share a common goal, vision, ideology amongst all of the groups. And these are the same. Now, he's heading this COVID collaborative, um, that's part of the CC, the sort of the, born out of the CCPG, which is Zelikow's project. But he's head of the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation funded the CCPG, which then creates a COVID collaborative that then he sits atop of, being Rajiv Shaw. 
I mean, yeah, I don't even. My mind's kind of blown as I talk about this. It's interesting. Go for it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. What? This makes sense to me. Um. Because, as, uh, leading up to, um, the grant given to the University of Virginia for the COVID Commission Planning Group, the Rockefeller Foundation was doing their very best to convince people to take these. Uh, to convince people, especially brown, indigenous people of color, um, sure. yeah, the COVID yeah. jabs. Yep. Um, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they were just pouring money into that. Um, so the this this COVID collaborative, um, Rajiv Shah can kind of step into the background and let the experts do the talking. Um, because if it's, if it's coming from a foundation that is given, that has... Um, sort of sus suspicion, suspicious background, um, it, it seems weird. But if it's coming from epidemiologists, if it's coming from um, right. doctors, um, you know, senators, uh, you know, Ezekiel Emanuel's on there, Chris Christie's on there. If it's coming from people who you're more familiar with, uh, it, it makes a bigger impact. Um, and they do have, you know, the the CEO of the Ad Council on there as well. So she's She's helping with... Um, Are you kidding me? The Ad Council? Am I thinking of the same yeah. Ad Council? Oh, man. Hold on. Yes, the Ad Council. Um, oh, we did so many deep dives into this on is. the town hall. Um, I know Senna. Senna actually is the first one who made me aware of the Ad Council. Lisa Sherman. Okay. She is on the um, the COVID Collaborative. Yeah. I want to give a... Sen oh, no. Hold on. Um She's all. She's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations as well. Um, What's her name? And a bunch. Uh, Lisa Sherman. Lisa Sherman. Okay. Interesting. So CFR member, Ad Council executive, or on the board of the Ad Council, one of the two. She is. Um, she is related to the Ad Council. Let me just double check. As this. you find that for people unfamiliar with the Ad Council, we've done a number of deep dives into the Ad Council and town halls, but I'm just going to read a quick history here. Ad Council's messages and slogans have been woven into the very fabric of American culture since its inception. James Webb Young, co-founder of the Young and Rubicam Agency, first articulated the idea of the Ad Council in 1941. He addressed giants of our industry, among them Raymond Rubicam, J. Walter Thompson, and Leo Burnett, to propose an organization that could bring the entire advertising industry together in service of social good. This became, it was actually an it was a byproduct, I think, of World War II. Just weeks later, Pearl Harbor, the Advertising War Council was created. Yeah, it's born out of the War Advertising Council. Following World War II, President Truman asked the Ad Council to continue its work as a peacetime public service organization, addressing the most pressing social issues. Highlight that in everyone's mind there. Social issues of the day. Whether fighting polio, preventing AIDS, responding to September 11th, or providing critical information during COVID-19 pandemic, the Ad Council has continued to produce impactful public service, blah, blah, blah. This real quick, 1940s, um, you know, join the American Red Cross, women in war jobs, that's a classic one, buy war bonds, loose lips. Um, these are some of the most iconic advertising campaigns in all of American history. Uh, you have the Red Cross, Smokey the Bear, Ad Council. Um, National Security Council, peacetime. So they they sort of partner with the National Security Council. Go figure. In 1945, you know you have the um, 
anti-communism ads fight polio polio vaccine comes out in the early 50s or late 50s I should say the campaign for salk polio vaccine begins resulting in 80 percent of the at-risk population getting immunized um see the native american situation unicef a mind or uncf launches a mind is a terrible thing to waste support of uh minorities and women's education probably mcgruff oh the crime dog Oh my God, man! They are out. The, the dummies, Vincent, Larry. No, just say no. Reagan administration. You know, don't do them drugs, kids. Bad for you. Communications Act reduces the media. 1984 Communications Act reduces media's legal obligation to donate support of PSAs. Yet, Act Council donated support exceeds one billion dollars. Limit PSAs. Yet, they're getting over a billion dollars. 1984 Vincent, Larry, first AIDS campaign. 1986, uh, first commercial to use the word condom. Anti-discrimination campaign continues. The LA riots, that's 92. I mean, you can just see how much, what influence they've had over the years. Ad Council leads industry response to 9-11 with Campaign for Freedom. They're behind that one. First project, uh, let's see, drunk driving prevention, sure. Emergency preparedness ready campaign begins with U.S. Department of Homeland Security. This is 2003. 2006, uh, parental controls. 2009 campaigns launches first lady michelle obama's let's move initiative to address child obesity odd council receives an emmy of course because they all promote each other their own little coteries today takes action week-long series so you can just see there's an see where they get to bullying prevention love has no labels wins emmy for marketing first time psa received the honor ad council here it is in 2020, in an unprecedented partnership with the White House, CDC, HHS, and major media companies, the Act Council launches its industry-leading effort to slow the spread of COVID-19. They sort of have the wings as though they're flying over the world. You know, the Torch of Liberty, you know, the Red Cross. For this. I mean, you can just see how rife with symbolism this is. Um, this is absurd, and I don't know. This Anyway, sorry to go on that, but just make people in the audience familiar, because when you mentioned that, that is the ad council and i did confirm it is lisa sherman is the president and ceo of the ad council okay and she is on the COVID collaborative advisory board and she's a member of the council on foreign relations yes oh man uh if people aren't a little bit uh nervous i don't know what would, what more can be said there i won't let's continue forward here I have you for a little bit more time. I think you said about one is the cutoff for however long I can keep you. I want to, I want to finish the next two. Yeah, press, go for yeah, it. Cause this is fantastic conversation, but I want to real quick before we get off of the, uh, Rajiv Shaw, you, there's something here. One more thing I wanted to read from, this is from your blog, the doctorate of rapid dominance. This is sort of a theme, this sort of this, the need to expedite research expedites COVID um covid commission national covid commission like there's the, I, I just sense this like this need to do it fast this this hasty whether it's and when we get to calif you're going to see how much like they're really pushing for like real-time data feedback real-time studies ignoring like how science is even conducted sort of re redefining what science even is in regards to collecting uh, making sense of data and seeing whether or not it's really truly safe and effective and objective and so forth and so on but anyways, uh, I want to get just read this one paragraph here. Today, Shaw is pioneering, quote, impact investing through a philanthropic foundation. Since 2017, he has overseen the distributions of hundreds of millions of dollars in the form of grants. And that's what I'm alluding to real quick. This is me talking now. Um, not, not reading from the 
um, the blog, on page 63 of Foundations of Power and Influence, when he goes over the five sort of levels here, you know, you have the foundations, you have the second component, which are the intermediaries that sort of funnel the money, if you will. The third, um, the learned societies, talking about sort of the, co- the, the groups that make up the various colleges. The fourth consists of the learned journals in those areas is really important because like they're also support as you said maddie they're supporting epidemiology it's not rajiv shaw yes there's a conflict of interest but they're supporting certain epidemiologists or certain certain scientists Mm -hmm. certain virologists and you know out of these journals but yet before diving into shaw's influence of the COVID collaborative this is you now this is from maddie's blog i'd like to point out that he is also a commissioner of a similar organization the lancet's COVID 19 commission and we all know what happened with the lancet in regards to uh them poo-pooing the whole uh, lab leak narrative so and the number of studies have been done showing the safety of vaccines and you know the long covid they were i think the first one that tried to fear monger for this long covid um sort of post disease post covid 19 disease that can manifest and all this sort of, which is very dubious because it's mostly just epidemiology um, very loose epidemiology i might add but i just thought it was a really interesting point you sort of laid out here is like they may not be Rajiv Shaw, but they're certainly supporting other groups, other think tanks, other learned societies, if you will, to draw an analogy. Lancet, um, you know, Peter Dajak, Eco Health Alliance. Just that, you know, that at at least in initially had a sense of authority, had a sense of well established ethos behind what they were trying to propagandize, if you will. Um, yes, and uh, the, the Lancet does get funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well. Um, so it's just one big circle. So um, I'm not sure what happened before Rajiv Shah came into into the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but he did get his philanthropic start there. Um, so he was kind of a nobody, um, educated, but um, he started working for, for them. Uh, in their Agra project, uh, yeah. Green Revolution for Africa, um, and then d- did a bunch of did a bunch of stuff uh, for them for a few several years, almost almost a decade, um, and then was came came into uh, you know the, the United States government bureaucracy under Obama, um, which he did just kind of continue his work. Was he head of agriculture the in the United States for a while? I forget the the title. I believe. So. I believe so. Yeah. Um, Almost positive. He was. I forget if that was in the ninety or not nineties, maybe like two thousands. But I think it's in your blog somewhere. I just can't find it. But I'm pretty sure he is. Um, let's see if we can find it. But yeah. So when you mentioned that, I I know I'm almost positive he. Maybe I'm. I'm I don't think I'm thinking of Inglesby or anyone like that. Maybe it was. Maybe I'm just getting confused with all the different names. But uh, there, the, one of the big things that stuck out to me as well, at least in this blog post, is he mentions, and you know, of course, being a speaker of the World Economic Forum, and this issue with philanthropy, sort of this idea of equity, is a big sort of underlying theme with him as well. You sort of quote here before diving into Shaw's influence. I like the point Lancet Commission. He, here we see trite globalist recommendations on strategies to best suppress the epidemic and to build an inclusive, fair, and sustainable world. And so, again, you hear these buzzwords, right? Um, sustainability, fair, 
you know, stakeholder equity, these sort of tired bro minds that are continually repeated by these same individuals. That said, this is now quoting Maddie again from the blog. That said, what is important about Lancet's commission is that it was organized much earlier. Uh, in June 2020, it was charged with appointing a task force to investigate. Obviously, that was shot down because of EcoHealth and the ties with Peter Daszak. So it's almost like it had to do sort of a little bait and switch and, you know, move over to the CCPG funded, uh, Rockefeller funded initiative to de- develop this new COVID collaborative because the Lancet's collaborative just it fell apart once they found an EcoHealth Peter Daszak influence, which he was one of the, the one of the authors to that very infamous now Lancet article or publication in regards to pandemic origins. So um, it was USAID that he was ah, okay. the head of. Um, and and just just for more context, he mm-hmm. was appointed um, a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Oh, interesting. In 2007 as well. Yeah. So he's another, and that was 2007, you said? Young global leader? Yes. Interesting. God, man, they're all over the place. So you can see the shared ideology. So what is supposed to, as the Reese Committee pointed out, um, that well, Worms is pointing out from the reflections on the Reese Committee. 1954, they're talking about this sort of consolidation of perspective. The trustees and the board members, these various endowments and these various foundations are all sh- one and the same thing. And it's sort of as creating a situ- situation where there's no real competition in perspective. We saw that with COVID. You're not allowed to question the efficacy of the vaccines. You're not allowed to question, for example, the, um, the lab leak narrative or origin theory. You're not allowed to talk about, um, you know, question the PCR test. You're not allowed to question the severity of the disease for certain age groups and um, uh, comorbidities, so forth and so on. You know, there was a uniform thinking that took place. And you can sort of see the same players, you know, the fact he's a young global leader, the fact there's a connection with the Ag Council, too. um, That's, oh, man, what was his name? Sherman? accounts on foreign relations like you get to see the same sort of people share the same fundamental ideology in regards to how they view the systems how systems should manifest and be utilized in a universal answer to how we should do things universal vaccination contact tracing biometric data scanning you know that's what should be very concerning and this all comes from bill fagey and bill gates's mentor and the eis um which is basically like the CIA of epidemiology. Um, and we went into a deep dive a couple of weeks ago on that, but you can sort of see in the, like that, that was 1960s, late 1960s when Bill Fagey soon his work in Africa in regards to smallpox. And he's like, this is how you do it. You do contact tracing, you do, you know, you, you sequester these individuals and quarantine them and you make sure that you find out all the individuals been in contact with. And now they can actually do that through digital technology, but that's assuming that there really is the thing at least, or it's as bad as they're claiming it is, and that there's a justification to do these things, which I would argue there never really is, no matter how bad the situation is in regards to a virus pandemic. But that's that's my own personal aside. The bigger point is, um, I want to go back real quick before we jump to the next last two articles. USAID. I don't. Yeah, let me see if I can throw it to you. I'll I'll tell your head. Who are they? What are they? What 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 is USAID, and what's his connection with that? Or my, do you have that available, or is that? A little too much. Um, yeah, so he uh, was the 18th administrator, um, and USAID stands for the U.S. Agency for International Development. 
Um, so he ran, uh, and he, and he was, he was doing this from 2010 to 2015. Um, so shortly after he left the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation, um, and this was under, during the Obama administration, but, um, he was really interested in, um, again, uh, sustainable development for food systems in Africa. Um, he ran the U S global development lab. Um, but basically the way that I see USAID is going into other countries and teaching them how to run their, their governments. Right. That's right. It's like the world health organization in regards to how to deal with, uh, outbreaks and localized areas, epidemics and going in sort of having this uh, super national sort of international law contingency to sort of rest upon to, you know, but in the, yeah, yeah, go for it. In the, the, what I find um, confusing about that is um, clearly these, it's what it's, it goes back to what you were saying about the lack of competition. So um, there are different States that have different, that have um, come to be in different ways of being. Um, They have different sorts of governments. They have different sorts of food systems. Um, So when you unify or universalize um, all these systems and governments to be homogenous, there is, if if it goes wrong, it goes wrong for everyone. Correct. Um, So you see the same thing for... um, I always see diversity as a strength. So diversity is a strength in, in the immune system, yeah. um, the way that we respond to viruses or um, in thinking. Um, when Whenever you have a, a hard problem to solve, it's best to have people who look at the problem from a diff- different perspectives because they might be able to see, see different solutions to it. Right. Um, right. So it's almost as if they're going into a place that is not even geographically related uh it's in an entirely different hemisphere and trying to model their food systems or governments um uh, the way that ours is is modeled so uh it just strikes me it's odd because i can't imagine how an african food system would work the same way an american one would um we we're on two different hemispheres there are two different sets of native plants um sure you know it just seems like they want to to me it seems like a way to sell more of the product that you sell um to use on farms or whatever if you have like a certain um irrigation system that you're trying to sell uh if you teach people in other countries how to use that irrigation system then 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 you've created demand for it. Yeah, right. That's right. That's well said. That's a, that's a brilliant insight because there's a homogenization taking place. So on a one way, these, these bureaucrats go in and suggest the best way forward. They utilize these round table groups, these supranational entities, the world economic forum, world health organization. And they go in and make suggestions that wait a second, there are corporations that actually participate in WHO or WEF that just happen to have the solutions that they're stating that, you know, they're trying to introduce to these various areas of the world. Take, for example, here, you actually say this directly in your blog post. 
He also directed millions of dollars in USAID. And by the way, James, yeah, thanks, thanks for that reminder. USAID is a well-known front for the CIA. Um, in fact, that one man that was murdered became big headlines in the Afghanistan pullout what had connections with USAID. I'm not saying there's anything nefarious. There was something to certainly look into in regards to this whole family was wiped out. And he had interesting uh, connection to infrastructure for um, basic factory infrastructure. And he was getting a lot of money from USAID to help like bolster up his local community. Very strange. I only could wonder and I speculate as to what that man might have known. And, you know, this so happened that the one of the few drone strikes we had after that whole pullout happened to be on that man's entire family. Coincidence? Who knows? Um, mm. That's and that was a big news during the Afghanistan. I forget the man's name, but I remember specifically because that's where James actually pointed out to me that it was. Um, no, don't do that right now, Kitty. Um, that uh, that USA is known CIA front, and then Max Blumenthal, the Gray Zone, and and Jimmy Dore, of course, who has Max on all the time, sort of re- regurgitated and reiterated the same thing. And I was like, oh. And I looked into it. And I'm like, yeah, no, this isn't even that incon- inconspicuous. It's not sort of occulted or enigmatic. It's pretty out in the open if you do a little research. So USAID, very dubious organization. And here he, he was part of the USAID. And Drex, and you, you, you state here, he also directed millions of dollars in USAID funding towards a Gates Foundation project called the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, GAVI. He's on record as having a friendly relationship with Bill and Melinda Gates and worked for the various foundation in various roles for eight years prior to his 2009 USDA appointment. That's what I was thinking about USDA, US Department of Agriculture. That's what I was thinking about earlier. There, he led the Alliance for a Green Revolution to your point, Agra project, and to this day remains a member of the Agra board. Well, he's still the Agra board. Uh, so he has close ties to the Gates Foundation. They're trying to re-envision not only vaccine distribution and equity and vaccine uptake in Africa, they're also envisioning agriculture. Uh, we also know, I mean, that's that's from the Western perspective. We know about the Belt and Road Initiative from China, or we don't know a lot of it, but there's also the infrastructure being built up in, from the China. And they're basically, China's using its own hegemony in order to establish more of a grain supply for China, which is trying to feed 1.4 billion people. So a lot of that is going into slave labor for agro projects for on the Belt and Road, on the east side for the Belt and Road Initiative so they can have a larger grain supply and hedge their ever burgeoning population. And the West, we're more about supporting the multinational corporations that are producing things like mRNA technology or biotech um, uh, um, chemical companies for agriculture. So it's an unholy alliance either way. A little competition between East and West. Um, and this last thing I want to say here. Today, Shaw is pioneering impact investing through a philanthropic foundation. Since 2017, he has overseen the distribution of hundreds of millions of dollars in the form of grants. Just like Fauci does at the NIAID, right? So at the beginning of 2020, the grants shifted suddenly and almost entirely towards projects like vaccine equity. That's a big thing here. Again, we're back to this whole world economic form, like ideology and genomic wastewater surveillance. That's strange. Genomic surveillance. The stated purpose of each of the vaccine equity grants is to provide grassroots third party groups the funding to deliver advertisement like messaging to low income, to your point, exactly what you said, urban and uh, BIPOC communities in their areas, BIPOC communities. The intended outcome of these messages is to convince the target audience to target investigative or to take, excuse me, investigative mRNA shots. So this guy, uh, dubious is an understatement <laughs> to his appointment as uh, being the head of this COVID collaborative. 
Any last uh, words or thoughts on this before we jump into your last two posts, which we'll go a little bit quicker with them. But uh, just wanted to see if there's any last things we're leaving out in regards to what you had uncovered there. Um, no. Uh, I, and uh, and uh, please excuse the fireworks uh, oh, in Utah. They're very popular just for the full month of July. It's the same um, where I live. I live out in the country. Okay. And yeah. <laughs> Kids always have uh, fun. Yeah, but I mean, the 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 reason why I'm using the sort of shock and awe, rapid uh, doctrine of rapid dominance language here is because when I was looking into this guy, sounds it like seems a lot of like fun outside. It's, I it's, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it is. No, it's okay. It's it's everywhere after That's dark. Um, yeah, That's I can okay. see him from going. my windows. As long as it doesn't bother you, <laughs> I'm enjoying it. No, it's okay. Um, but it's it's kind of bewildering because you you are trying to understand who this person is and you you look into one one area where he's involved in, um, but when you turn around he's there too and he's just there he's everywhere so you become confused and you feel like you you feel like he's he's kind of everywhere with which is what the you know shock and awe campaign is meant to uh, instill is this <laughs> fear that. Um, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, you're always in danger, um, which this guy seems to just be everywhere. Um, and they're also trying to do that to you as well. So, you know, you're you're kind of bombarded by these messages about safety and efficacy and experts. And, um, you know, your friends are taking it uh, e everywhere you look. Um, there's messaging and it's pointed towards you, uh, especially if you're vulnerable or if you're a minority um That's or if right. you're in a rural, rural community because you know places where like new york la uh people around you're going to do that work for you um so it's you can't escape it it's meant to be like an encircling where you feel uh, it's closing in towards you uh, and you can't escape it so you might as well just just take it right um yeah, it's it's yeah, uh, the uh, doctrine. It's, the it's sort of the doctrine of total dominance. You know, this idea that like you attack it from every which angle. You know, and that's I like that theme to which the shock and all. Like everywhere you go, he's there and he's um, participating and crafting this narrative that be scared, be scared, be scared, have anxiety, be confused. You know, give us the power because we'll be the ones to make this all go away. You take the shots. We'll get the we'll get the the National COVID Commission in place. You know, we'll have it already ready, set set up and ready to go. Don't worry. It's but you you know, if you don't do this, you know, you, you could kill your friends, you could kill your family. You didn't even mean to do so. This is different from just terrorism where someone has like a, an intentional objective goal. This is like in an unintentional, um, through sort of this an unwitting, unknowing participation by the fact that the virus can take over your biological functions and reproduce itself in in your cells. You know, be scared, be scared, be scared. It's a, it's a brilliant. That's the name of it's perfect because that's the idea is be 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 shocked, and you know, um, and remain in a state of trauma based mind control, which is what com many commentators in the nine eleven sort of post nine eleven commentary in regards to how people reacted. Everyone was just shocked. I'll never forget. I mean, everyone can remember where they were if you were alive and had enough of a memory. Um, you remember where you were. The day of 9-11 you remember what happened you remember what was said i can remember very explicitly being my my um it wasn't homeroom but it was my first period class in high school and uh and in ninth grade 
and it was just a study hall and i was probably as i always did procrastinate on work i was trying to get caught and i always loved study halls in my first period because i could skip doing homework the night before and do it during the study hall and all of a sudden our you know the principal comes on the loudspeaker and says you know two planes have crashed into the world trade centers i gotta admit i don't even know if i knew what the hell the world trade centers were i mean that's how i mean i was a ninth grade kid that was into video games like i didn't know about this shit i just remember the teacher's response the proctor of the study hall this old very religious woman very strange and just like i can visibly like i can still almost viscerally feel like the emotions because she was it was and no one knew what had happened that's sort of like the idea is like you get in a sense where you don't know what's happening where it's happening how it's happening COVID's like that but extended you know this is something that's been going on now yes the narrative has been pushed back i mean it's depending on where you live, where I live, it's largely ended to a certain extent, at least it's in a lull period. People just don't take it very seriously. I shouldn't take, shouldn't take it seriously. It's sort of over. People have decided to move on with their lives to a certain extent. I live in a more conservative area, more libertarian style area. So that's not surprising. If you live in a big city though, if you live in Portland, you're going to get a very different response. So, and I think that was the goal is like, how long can they spread out this, this free floating anxiety? You know, for 9-11, it was instant right? It happened. Uh, we can, and then we got the force fed the images of what happened that day over and over again, which reinforced this, this anxiety, this feeling of consternation. And yet with COVID, it's like, it just never seemed to end. It's like, it's continuing. Oh, there's Delta. Then there's Omicron. There's sub variants of Omicron. Um, you know, there's all these deaths. There's long COVID there. We got to go to lockdowns. Okay. We're lifting lockdowns. We got to lockdowns. We're lifting. It's like, it was different from 9-11. 9-11 was very cute, I think is what I'm trying to say. It was very sort of sharp in its response and effects, whereas this was much more spread out. If there was any differences, we could highlight between the two. And shocking. Well, you remember all, yeah. being told um, how how many people died every day or what the da- daily av- case count average was. Or, sure. Johns Hopkins um, had that on their little, you remember that, their website where yeah. they tracked all that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's and now yeah we've surpassed a million you know a million deaths so that should be that they're they're hoping that acts as another um kind of nail in the coffin right to keep you in a uh i'm to keep you in a in a state of what's going to happen next and to look for a hand that's outstretched to what you can take and they'll say just i'll lead the way just trust me it's fine i'll get us through this right um, I think you referenced almost 5 million deaths for a while. And that was in your first blog post. I think that's, at least that's what Zelikow references is why we have to, and that was probably data from months ago when you first posted it. So it's only imagine what they've blown yeah. that number up to now. Um, it's just, yeah, you can see the way in which they're sort of consolidating the narrative, um, how they all share the similar ideological perspectives, how it starts with these private foundations then it's being funneled to universities, which then set the groundwork for becoming national commissions. I mean, you can just see how it's all, you know, re- connections to DARPA, McClellan, FDA. <laughs> you have USAID, Raji Shaw, um, uh, USDA. I mean, one hand just, in fact, you have a subtitle for this in your blog. Don't tell you the one hand what the other hand is doing or something like that. Yeah, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. <laughs> That's a perfect. And so you get into... You know, I think this is talking about Biden. Oh, one last thing. God, this is this filled with so much stuff. We'll get to what we can in the last two. But, you know, here he is. I think you make the mention about Shaw. 
saying on September 1st, 2021, he, he, there's this global summit to end COVID-19 pandemic or issued a call for it, which was to take place at the UN General Assembly. In that letter, which is signed by Shaw um, to the UN General Assembly, he argues that it's insufficient vaccine equity that every country should get ready to implement equitable vaccine programs at scale. Uh, vaccinating 70%. Then two weeks later, Joe Biden's sitting there saying we have a goal of 70%. And they're buying, I forget how much money, 1.1 billion doses, donated vaccines to over 1.1 billion. Um, so the White House made a commitment, which then gives shows the initiative to other countries, European and Asian countries to say, look, we've taken the initiative, you need to take the initiative. And uh, but it, again, it begins with Shaw. Rockefeller, head of the Rockefeller Foundation, and this idea of equity, which perfectly falls in line with what economic forum. And one can't help but wonder, because there's connections, obviously, to, um, we're going to get to in a second with the BioNTech, Pfizer, and the pharmaceutical companies, you know, 70% only helps to then, we're funding, the American taxpayer and other countries around the world are funding the vaccine rollout, but then they're trying to get to a new target market which he's all apparently very intimate with, right? In regards to the AGRA, A-G-R-A, the, the initiative with uh, Africa and agriculture that he was head of, what, 2010, 2015, you said, something like that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. You can just see how intimately interconnected all of this is. Um, it is. is. It's like an incestuous... And it's confusing. It is confusing, yeah. yeah. And, and the, they are writing letters um, to the White House you know, calling for these things. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, there, there are two um, former governors on the COVID collaborative, uh, Dirk Kempthorne of Idaho and Deval Patrick of okay. Massachusetts, who are, I think, serving as the kind of uh, door openers to getting the White House to listen to these people. Um, are they part of so the... I'm, I'm pretty... Yeah. Are they part of sort of like any drafting of legislation or at least getting the talk of legislation pushing forward is that yeah okay. i think so yeah i mean they they've they've they're they're sending letters to the white house and they're having right. meetings with uh, biden and his okay. colleagues so they're that biden doesn't ad, um acknowledge the group's existence right which i think is pretty weird like if they there, there is no mention of it. Uh, the COVID collaborative doesn't exist oh, yeah. in Biden's remarks. I've right? never heard but of this he, until They have the blog. exact same, yeah, they have the exact same goals. Those two, were they senators up in? Um, former governors, Former yeah. governors, I'm sorry. No longer governors, but yeah. Uh, I see, I see. Okay, so they're the way into the um, government to get this initiative pushed forward. Yeah. I mean, Deval Patrick has his own um, uh, specious interests. I mean, he does have a like a he he's on the board of directors for a biotechnology company called Cerebell. Okay. Um, what do they specialize in? This drug research and any connection to vaccine? I believe it's genomics. Oh, that's even worse. Never mind. Or <laughs> even more yeah. uh, pernicious. <laughs> James, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, former but politician I, equals lobbyist. No, good, good. So. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not genomics. It is like neuroscience. Uh, okay, that's right. Um, so still, that's well. Neuroscience related. and genomics are actually very much related. I have a friend that works 
or it did work until COVID-19 happened in genomic science or genomic science, specifically detailing um, neurological diseases. Um, and you know, they would collect information and try to deduce patterns of polygenic scores that could manifest in potential probabilities of certain types of neurodegenerative diseases manifesting. Very complex, but he was, all that was shut down. Um, all his research grants were taken away and they were a, a team that was very specialized in this field. But once again, the COVID-19 happened, all research grants were pulled except for two things, uh, drugs and vaccines and primarily vaccines. So not surprised to see that there's a connection there. Well, let's jump. So I'm going to, Oh, we only have 15 minutes left. I was going to, I'm going to cut you off around one, unless you can go a little later, but we'll see if we can go through these next two. Kind I, of yeah, I can, I can go later. That's no okay. problem. We'll do that. Um, I want to get into these last most recent two that you posted, because this is where it's all going to come at, come to a head, especially with your most recent one with uh, Caliph. That one is shocking. When I read through that one last night, um, I read through all of these a couple of times, but that one is because you can start to see it all come together, um, especially with his connection to the world economic forum and um the fourth industrial revolution sometimes i can't help but wonder he's in his 70s like is this dude just hoping that they're just gonna create some sort of like technology to extend his life that's my own speculation but um let me see here the next one is the brave new world world data is that the one you did that one's on caliph uh inglesby was in between Uh, that's right inglesby the rider of the pale horse i think that was him right yeah yeah yep that's this one's, I want, the reason why I think this is important, let me put myself back on camera. Sorry, I forget to, for the audience, if you're not familiar, Tom Inglesby, and Rich and I pointed this out when we played a clip from uh, Event 201. He was like the, um, what do you call it? The sort of the event director. He sort of, cere- uh, what do they call it? The Master of Ceremonies. Master of Ceremonies. Thank you. That's it. So the MC. And uh, so you've seen him. We pointed out before, I should have brought a clip up. Maybe I will. Um, in a little bit, but he, he's an interesting figure and I'm just going to read this and we can comment on it here, Maddie. This comes from Maddie's blog. This is the third installment of her blog. We're getting caught up now to what is going to be her fourth installment, which is her most recent, but this is on May 1st and quoting Maddie here. In addition to being an ivory tower academician, Inglesby is prolific, though occulted public health figure, having worked for the government and many of its affiliate organizations, including the centers for disease control and prevention U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Department of Defense, and testifying in front of both houses of Congress on numerous occasions. Inglesby has also served on influential committees like the Defense Science Board and the National Academies of Science, and has worked as an advisor to the National Institutes of Health, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, Biomedical, that's right, BARDA, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, and Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA. Prior to joining the COVID Collaborative, Inglesby joined the CDC as the chair of the Office of Public Health Preparedness and Response from 2010, excuse me, to 2019. During his tenure, Inglesby oversaw the transfer of the National Health Security Preparedness Index from the CDC to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where he also serves as chair of the National Advisory Council. Dr. Inglesby is clearly a wide sought after advisor on epidemiological and public health strategy. The academic institutions, the media, the White House, and the large scale philanthropy and science communities all invite him and compete for his counsel. Okay, this dude's connected to everything. You're talking about the CDC, DARPA, HHS, uh, DHS, Darwin Homeland Security, 
DOD, NIH, FDA, BARDA, DARPA. I already mentioned DARPA. And yet, what was really shocking about this one, Maddie, is his, I can't say it's tacit, but his admission in 2014 that working on, um, what was it, the avian flu or the H5N1 strain, uh, bird flu, I guess, yeah, avian flu, was a problem that that actually infected people and it became potentially epidemic and, you know, could have emerged as being something much worse. And he actually supported the moratorium. Can you speak a little bit to the contradiction, seemingly, between him being a part of these organizations and yet being against or being for the moratorium in 2014? Yeah, you know, I, I, this is, this was a very, um, difficult piece to write because I couldn't figure out what this guy was all about. I couldn't figure out if he, uh, you know, I, I couldn't figure it out. Um, he did, he does seem to be very strongly against, um, gain of function research, which is, is, uh, you know, ep- uh, enhanced pathogens of pandemic potential, uh, is what we're really talking about. Yeah. Um, so. And there's this thing called, dual use he, research of concern that you point out as well. Um, I guess that's part of gain of function research. Right. Yep. So it's all, it's all very convoluted, but, but the point is um, there are, there are national security interests um, that fuel the desire for contracts to be given to labs to research um, viruses or just anthrax, um, you know, sure. spores, uh, bacteria, anything that might be used for um, a military weapon uh, in a war, but also to prevent pandemics. Um, so they're they're trying to figure out how to create medical medical countermeasures against um, potential bioweapons, right? Um, so there is, in that way, a justification for this kind of research. But he, uh, in his in his comments, seems to be saying that there's not, um, it's a little too risky, um, because if we if we don't have ways to prevent pandemics from arising out of lab leaks or uh, intentional leaks, um, then it's just it's just uh, too risky. So it might actually cause the thing that we're researching um, the the to prevent, yeah, essentially uh, to, to prevent. prevent. Yeah, exactly. So um, he has this interesting turn that he takes uh, in about 2017, I think, um, where he's saying, "Well, uh, this kind of research is it's all right if as long as we have vaccines that we can give to people very quickly at a large scale um, to contain the the biologic." or the, you know, the virus, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, to, you know, I can't explain, I can't explain what, what his, I think he is, has a real moral obligation. I think he's conscientious of the fact that a lot of people can be hurt by this research. And although he may not be somebody who is really actually doing good in the world, I think he does have a conscience that can't that doesn't allow him to just do this 
with no safeguard. Sure. Uh, I think he would actually get kept up at night if he was involved in any way in a in a lab leak that resulted in uh, many millions of deaths. Like, what would have happened if H5N1 was more um, infectious? Sure. Or, or or if it had if it had arisen in the right population, that made it more trans that made it uh, more easily transmissible. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting. To me, he, I mean, I could be wrong. This is speculation on my part. Just reading your article, I, I get the sense he's playing a bit of the dialectic. I do get a sense that he, I agree with you that he has a conscience, that he's more aware of these things, that he has sort of a, a sense of moral duty um, around being a purveyor. Because he has obviously, if he's has connections with DARPA, the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, like he knows the types of research grants. He knows the funneling of the money. He may not know intimately all the connections, the inner workings of it all, the gear work, if you will. But he has a sense of like, yeah, we are sending these, we're using grant money, this research money, taxpayer funded oftentimes, and we're shoveling it out to various organizations to do gain of function research. And this could be problematic as he, I think, let me see if I can find a quote here. Cause, um, yeah, let me just point. In 2014, Inglesby eagerly, and this is Maddie from your blog, uh, Inglesby eagerly voiced his agreement with that year's moratorium on gain of function research imposed by the NIH, which was pre- preceded by a voluntary moratorium in 2012. With great reluctance, the scientific community was pressured to reckon with the tremendous risks and limited benefits of their dual use research of concern, experiments involving influenza and other viruses, uh, of which gain of function research is a part. The impetus for the moratorium was the 2011 NIH-funded creation of the novel H5N1 strain of influenza virus, colloquially named bird flu. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people aren't even aware that that was an engineered virus. Um, that's something that's almost had complete media blackout in regards to, oh, yeah, this actually was. What was also interesting, too, you point out, public records and articles at the time indicate Inglesby was in favor of limiting the funding of, if not completely abolishing, this kind of research from the start. He testified in 2012 in front of the Committee of Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs that before ending the voluntary moratorium, the state and scientific communities should pursue any and all other viable ways of studying viral transmissibility that, quote, do not require engineering mammalian transmissible strains, end quote, acknowledging the unlikely yet potentially catastrophic consequences of malevolence of human error. All research on pathogens of pandemic potential, say that five times fast, represent a tiny portion of the experimental work done in infectious disease research. Inglesby stated in an article for the Journal of Clinical Microbiology, quote, it poses extraordinary potential risks to the public, end quote. He, he, we can, he argues, devise techniques to learn about viruses do not include racing against nature to create a virus that has the potential to kill off a large part of, the huma- of humanity. Somewhere else you go on to mention um, how he has mentioned, like, talked about the sort of the lax nature of BSL-3 laboratories. I think here, Inglesby warned in 2012 that lax restrictions and ambiguous funding reviews had led to accidental virus infection, viral infections and laboratory workers already. Four documented infections in a six-year period indicating a 0.2% chance of a laboratory-acquired infection per BSL-3 laboratory year. And that the chance of these accidental infections spread wild, wildly is between 10 to 20%. So like 0.2% actually become infected in laboratory with the potential to become 10 to 20% of widespread infection. Assuming a widespread viral infection caused by an accidental laboratory infection would not be controlled rapidly since efforts to do so have not yet been successful, Inglesby calculates the risk of a global pandemic caused by PPP, pathogens of pandemic, p- pandemic potential, 
research in BSL-3 laboratories to be between 0.01% to 0.1% per laboratory year, uh, with a potential death toll of 2 million to 1.4 billion people worldwide. I mean, he seems to be very conscientious of how dangerous this actual research can be. And it would make sense considering, as I mentioned before, and you allude, you researched all of the connections he has for all these various BARDA, DARPA, CDC, NIH, so forth and so on. Although, now quoting you again, although there is not a federal system for tracking the number of BSL-3 laboratories in the United States, we know there are at least 200 of these laboratories operating today. Is that in the United States or worldwide? Uh, there's no federal system for, for tracking okay. them, uh, either in the States or worldwide. Okay. No. Some of these labs have gone unused in the past several years. Yeah. And, you know, what's, to me, I can't, here's what I can't figure out, much you know, to what you're alluding to and, and to your own chagrin and trying to understand his intentions. So here he, he understands the severity, this, the, the, um, the serious uh, issues that could arise from a lab leak, um, from a worker becoming infected, which four such cases had happened in the documented period. I forget what that was. Um, it wasn't very long. I have to go back and see what that documented period was. But the point is, He's concerned about it, but yet he, in 2017, of course, when the moratorium is lifted, is it 2017? I think it was 2017, that he's okay with it as long as we have a universal gene therapy vaccine. Like, that's, is, he, is, he, is it his conscience, or is it the fact that now he feels it's okay to research this? Because somewhere else, I can't remember, within this article, and I'm not going to find it right now, you point out that he actually admits directly that, it has not done any good for preventing pandemics. We have not, it is, if anything, we have a greater chance, as you pointed out, of a pandemic emerging from the type of research mm-hmm. instead of preventing it, which is exactly what's happened with COVID-19. It almost happened with the uh, bird flu that he, he alludes to. Um, right. But yeah. the, the, the flip side of that is that it's, it's, um, it, it doesn't matter whether or not we can prevent pandemics um, because we can't we we can't we haven't devised a way to predict the next zoonotic pandemic right right well gain of um, function is supposed to mimic supposedly the, only, the processes i guess sorry good sorry good let me cut you off yeah right but uh, there's a there's an established history of mm-hmm. us not being able to predict that predict oh the next yeah, pandemic, yeah yeah which absolutely is, which is supposed to be one side of the utility for EPPP research. The other side is to figure out what what is capable to be made out of the components that nature has provided, um, what kind of weapons might be made, mm. and then develop medical countermeasures for those, and then enter those medical countermeasures into the national, stock, national stockpile. Um, so the work has to be done, because I think people like Inglesby are convinced that uh, bio, bio and chemical warfare is just the next. It's it's what's going to be utilized warfare of the future. Uh, in the future. I think they're yeah. They're, yeah they're, they're they're just convinced that that's what's coming. Oh, I see. Um, okay. And they've been convinced of that for ten, ten years. So they are very intent on this work happening. Um, and, and then their public, uh, their 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 ostensive mission is to prevent pandemics, right? Because everybody can get behind that. Nobody wants a pandemic. Um, nobody wants to die of a really scary virus. Um, so people say, okay, fine, do it. Um, not knowing that what they're actually doing is inventing bioweapons 
and then creating creating cures, right? Or mm -hmm. trying to invent cures yeah. to those weapons. So it's literally the reason Diffuse. why that's I literally think, what the project or that that at least proposal was. That's exactly yeah. Yeah, um, the, I think that he thinks it must be done, um, and so he's glomming on to this idea of a universal vaccine, so that the people who are not involved in in the conflict can mm. just be removed from it. Okay. Right. Um, and do you think maybe, I mean, this is one way to sort of understand it potentially is that all of a sudden with the emergence of potential gene therapies, it's now, so the research needs, he's justifying it, rationalizing in his mind, the research needs it goes on because it's the future of warfare. If we're not doing it, the Chinese are doing it, the Russians are doing it, some other country like bioterrorism, bio-warfare, that's going to happen, we have to do it. So that's their very poor but that's the rationalization and justification for it so it's inevitable that we have to also engage in this sort of warfare um and we had on i forget what is his name it's a small little italian guy from uh, west point talking about like the future of warfare and this is one of the big things he taught aerosolized viruses but nanoparticles nanorobots like this is the future whether you want to believe it or not in regards to warfare as long as well as like the more macro types of weapons like emp style technologies which is a big talking point as well wiping out like electrical grids and so forth but um uh in his case it's almost like i mean maybe he believes it but at the same time has a conscience for it but was afraid to do the research because it was just too risky of it actually end up uh creating the pandemic that they're trying to prevent and now that the gene therapy exists he feels like it's he's comfortable enough suggesting to lift the moratorium to engage in this research again because we have uh, a, a way in which to deal with that unfortunate and potential scenario of a lab leak, in other words. That's just one of the ways I think we can interpret that. One of the curious things, and to, I think to your point, to give him some, some, um, what's the word I'm looking for, but some credence a little bit to maybe that he's not just like one of these very dubious sort of ethical individuals. But one of the problems I wonder is, does he have any sort of connection to the vaccine companies um, or anything like that? Because if he does, I mean, if the, I would I would forego that line of reasoning if I found a connection in some in some capacities, the kickbacks or something with a vaccine company, which I don't I, it doesn't seem like there is, at least right now. But uh, it's curious. That's, right. Yeah. I would I would agree. And I think um, as far as I could tell, I couldn't find any connections between him and any pharmaceutical companies um but i think he is very much invested in um, the ideology of universal vaccination and stuff like that it yeah he he needs it to work so yeah. he's going he's oh the ends justify the, the means he's pragmatic sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly um he has to have this mrna shot work so it in his mind you know, he, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned it in there, too. He tweeted at Johnson & Johnson, sure, yeah. you know, uh, an applause for them pursuing an oral mRNA uh, COVID pill. Um, and that was back, oh, man. I forget if that was during the pandemic. Some of this, what... I forget if this may be the next one over, but some of the stuff happened before the pandemic. Like he's really pushing for this 2018. Um, maybe I'm thinking Caliph as well. So in 2017, he supports the moratorium because there's 
there's support now for a universal vaccination through a gene therapy. Um, oh, you're thinking about the flu vaccine act. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, yes. I am. In fact, yeah, this, you know, and this I've referenced this so many times. I'm was so elated, elated to see that you also references. I think this is important. I didn't know this was Inglesby. I should have this, this Senate document, but <clears throat> this is about, um, Coincidentally or not, Inglesby testified for the U.S. Senate in January 2018. I've referenced this document so many times. And in fact, this is the quote I always reference. It is now possible to engineer new traits in old viruses. For example, it's becoming possible to take the lethality of one virus and combine it with the contagious qualities of another virus. And last week, scientists published research showing how they synthetically could create horsepox, a close viral relative of smallpox. We don't have the oversight system. We need to fully understand or manage these kinds of developments yet either in the U.S. or internationally. Whatever we do about this, we need to ensure that we don't slow down science that drives so many good things forward, but we also can't ignore that new risks are becoming possible. In the worst case, this could lead to the accidental or deliberate release of a novel strain of a virus that could cause an epidemic or even a pandemic. I didn't realize that was Inglesby. I must have referenced that like three times on GTW. I just didn't, didn't pay attention. So that was a little bit of synchronicity for me. It's easy to lose track <laughs> with um, all this stuff. It's 2018 here. April 2018, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates is already speaking with news agencies about his philanthropic foundation's contribution of $12 million towards the effort of universal vaccine. 2019, you have the Milken Institute talking about the need for universal flu vaccine. But again, they're trying, to your point, dispense with the, the, the egg-based technology, egg protein-based technologies, you know, yeah, sort of culture the virus on egg protein. Um, or using egg protein and the, cells. And the reason for that is because they cannot dispense enough vaccine Quick in enough. time yeah. to actually prevent the pandemic from happening. Um, so if it is if it is the result of an accidental release from a lab um, because of their, you know, uh, as a result of their research, um, they would be responsible for the subsequent pandemic. This- so they need a way to also stop it and be the hero. Yeah, be the hero. Uh, it's well. a self-fulfilling prophecy, as I like to say, and they can be the hero at the end of it. Uh, what this this shocked me. I just want to read this under the record because this this said everything to me. Just whether or not the timetables are just pure coincidence or synchronicity or conscious intention, it's just pay attention when I read this, everyone that's listening to the timetables here. Let me, in fact, highlight this because this is my Evernote, so I can do that. Four months later, in August 2018, the fledgling company BioNTech and drug titan Pfizer publicly announced their multi-year collaboration pursuing an mRNA approach to a universal flu vaccine. BioNTech will receive $120 million in upfront equity and near-term research payments from Pfizer and will be eligible to receive up to $305 million in potential development, regulatory and commercial milestone payments. In addition, BioNTech will receive up to double-digit tiered royalty payments associated with worldwide sales if the program reaches commercialization. As part of the deal, BioNTech will need to develop the technology and complete a first-of-its-kind human study in Germany. Then, Pfizer would assume responsibility for further clinical development and ultimate commercialization of the drug. Part of the initial $120 million payment from Pfizer to BioNTech included a $70 million equity stake in the company, which I wasn't aware of. That's interesting. Giving the pharmaceutical giant incentive to see this mRNA vaccine go to the market and succeed as a universal flu vaccine. At the time, the two companies expected a vaccine candidate to be ready for clinical trials 
in 2020. 2018 to 2020, investing in 2018, and then in 2020, they need a vaccine going to trials. Wow, what a miracle COVID-19 just happened to be. I mean, talk about synchronicity. Uh, obviously, I know the Milken Institute in between, you know, Fauci sitting on there, oh, yeah, universal. So they've been, they've been touting this for a long time. Fauci in 2017, I think, was talking about there is going to be a flu or a, a pandemic during strange. I mean, these are just like, what are the word? Easter eggs almost. It's like we call in the, the sort of gaming and movie community, you know, just the media community. Just what is this? It's just strange. I mean, I call it nature's wink, which is Carl Jung's sort of concept of synchronicity. Nature's wink, you know. Um, these overlapping sort of collusions of interests and money and this need to update this technology and then and force it onto the public to create a market for it where a market didn't exist because BioNTech was failing. They've been into this for 10 years before Pfizer even got involved trying to develop this. Moderna, as Whitney Webb pointed out, needed a Hail Mary. And boy, did they ever get one. Not to mention they also have the unique genomic sequence that's a part of the spike protein that also happens to be part of their vaccine, but that was they uh, patented that in 2018. So that's a strange situation. I mean, <laughs> what a miracle! I'm just going to leave it there. What a miracle that COVID-19 was for these major uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, and what a miracle they were working on this, Maddie. 2018, you know, they just had such keen foresight. Well, I mean, to. Uh, <laughs> Bill Gates and Larry Page were also pouring money into this stuff too. Um, yeah. And with Bill Gates saying that um, the vaccines developed with his, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation, their money, uh, they need to be ready to be tested in people in 2021. So it's just another they um, need the market. coincidence. Yeah. Exactly. And Larry Page, isn't that uh, Sergey Brin, Larry Page? Am I thinking Google? Was he the Google guy? Yeah, he's the Google guy. By the way, his wife, Sergey Brin's wife, is 23andMe executive. I don't know if you knew that. So you have genomic, Ah, yeah. Okay. Senna, thank you for that reference, by the way. (laughs) So I didn't, I was like, so there's a, yeah, genetics, vaccines, intimately connected, Google, InQtel, neurotechnology. Yep. Yeah, then, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. It's, yeah. And the Brain Initiative, which is, again, it's another part of the, it's part of the 21st Century Cures Act, is making that, um, you know, giving taxpayer money to pursue understanding the brain and figuring out how to use it uh, for medical devices and 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 precision medicine. Oh, sure. It's speaking of precision medicine, so the Brain Initiative, let's jump to your final final article here or not not your final one but your most recent one i should say now this one you thought all the other ones were intense <laughs> uh this one is just a home run if you i don't know that's not the right the right analogy to use or metaphor rather this one is a. Uh, well if you like to jump into like if you like to cut yourself and jump into a sea with sharks swimming around it you know it's kind of like that so that's it's pretty gnarly dr robert Calif, I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. North Carolina. Calif. Calif. Yeah, okay. Calif. Excuse me. Calif. Yeah. Thank you. Cardiologist from North. Let me put myself back. Sorry about that. Uh, cardiologist in North Carolina. Um, overseeing massive clinical trials nearly 90. So I want to give people sort of perspective on this. So 
cardiologist or respiratory heart doctor. He deals with um, those systems of the body. That's the same that uh, Dr. Peter McCauley is a cardiologist, that they deal with the heart, blood vessels, you know, all that sort of stuff, uh, the, the functioning, the oxygenation of blood, and, you know, the functioning of that whole, the cardiovascular system in general. Um, th- this man, oh, my God. I don't even know where to begin, but uh, Caliph, North Carolina. So let's not forget this is again another synchronicity. He's at North Carolina now. This would have been Duke, but Duke and Chapel Hill, which has been University of North Carolina, where oh, uh, what's his name? The guy that came up with the noceum technique. Uh, he was intimately connected with the Shizingly. Yeah, yeah, Ralph Barrick. That's it. You know what's going on in North Carolina? I just have to say, stay that up front. I mean. Good. You should read his um, his statements against the moratorium. Uh, Barrick or moratorium. Mount Ralph Barrick. Yeah. Okay, I will have to they look into those. They are passionate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I bet they are. That son of a bitch. Oh my god, I'm gonna check those out. That I'm curious now to see how. Um, I can send you a link. Yes, please do. Actually, but going back to this, okay, so he gets he. Let's get some context here. So he works in this Gusto trio, 1993. Um, he's, he specializes in large-scale randomized trials. So international randomized trial populated by 40,000 subjects investigated four different treatments for myocardial infarction, which is heart attacks. Landmark trial was the performed early on in his 30-year tenure at Duke, Duke University. So that, we're going to come back to that. Um, However, as with, and this is quoting you now, however, with many prominent health experts, Dr. Kalis Pharmaceutical and Biotechnology Corporation ties are abundant. For instance, the Gusto trial is funded by a handful of private pharmaceutical companies, including Bayer and Sanofi. I think Sanofi is connected with Moderna, if I remember correctly. They're sort of the research branch. Moderna being like Pfizer, the ones that bring it to market. Many of his 1,200 plus academic papers are punctuated with disclosure statements that read like this one. Dr. Califf received support from the National Institutes of Health and the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Dr. Califf also receives grant support from Amelin, Novartis, Eli Lilly, and company, Sharing Plow Research Institute, Johnson & Johnson, Shios, Shios, Aterovax, and Bayer, grants and personal fees from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Research and Development, Merck, and Roche, and personal fees from Genentech, GlaxoSmithKline, Heart.org, and Dachi, Sankayo, Kawa, Sevier, Medscape, The Medicines Company, Pfizer, Gambro, Gulad, Richelad, uh, DSI Lilly, CV Site. Yeah, you get the Bayer Pharma, Bayer Healthcare. Oh, my God. Dude's connected. Um, Christ. And then, excuse my language, but, oh, my God. Uh, so, when he was nominated, so he was nominated in a, for FDA position in 2015. He got pushback. Bernie Sanders, of all people, of course. Fighting for the people. Good old Bernie. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, you know, he's, he's the head of Duke Clinical Research Institute. Now, he's our FDA. He was appointed now as the FDA head, was he not? Is that under the Biden yes, administration? Yes. So he's reappointed, and then he was actually confirmed after having all of those connections. Like, what the fuck? Excuse my language again. But this is it's late now, so I get to swear. Um, uh, this is what kills me. Okay, so these well, they have, say that yeah, you it, should it. expect anyone. Oh, sorry. You, yeah, go the, you know the the justification is that you should expect anyone in the um, in the position to 
uh, fill the FDA commissioner's spot to have connections with companies like in pharmaceutical and medical device industry because uh, they're, you know, they, those are their connections. Those are the people who they're working with. So anybody who's fit for the role is going to have those, <laughs> sure. is going to have those connections. Yeah, that's, that's the ostensible, very specious arguments that they put forward. Um, not to mention that, well, those companies have market goals and that they have budgets and that they need to make sure that they get certain products in place. I, yeah, but you're right. That's exactly the argument they would put forward. Well said. Um, specious indeed, but nonetheless, uh, not surprising the way they would rationalize those connections. Of course, there's going to be because these are the companies that are going to bring to market a lot of the innovations that he's going to discover through his being um, the head of the Duke Clinical Research Institute and being an they're expert in cardiology. Yeah, they're the stake. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of stakeholders, let's go back here. In reports or interviews, Dr. Robert Califf, you know, Southern gentleman, likes his football team, blah, blah, blah. But in his academic papers, Califf often cites, and this is quoting you now, Klaus Schwab and his globalist calls and argues in favor of converging biology with technology at an accelerated rate. His non-academic efforts include convincing people like then-President Barack Obama that the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the 4IR, is happening whether we like it or not. Quote, getting that right was the most important thing in the future of the American economy and its health. Obama knew that the current FDA paradigm was not suited and something different had to be done, end quote. The latter half of Califf's career has been spent in this pursuit, tirelessly dedicated to the task of removing the obstacles facing the fourth industrial revolution. Before touching on Califf's endeavors in this regard, let's take a closer look at what the fourth industrial revolution entails for the public health sphere. Now, real quick, I just want to state... Removing the bureaucracy, the red tape, the oversights, um, project warps speed, even the moratorium lift in 2017. You know, we need to speed this up. We need to speed this up. I forget what the the Raji Shaw talking about um, the term, the concepts and the terms related to these concepts in regards to equity and, and the speed at which we roll out these things. There's a specific term you had in that one, but... I'm just noticing a pattern again. And I think it's the pattern I alluded to earlier about the hasty sort of expediency of making sure we can find a way to justify this, get it out to market, justify this, get it out to market, remove the red tape, remove the bureaucracy, remove the oversight committees and institutions. Just noticing a pattern. Um, this, real quick, this is quoting you. Um, fourth ignominious racket. Whether by monitoring you through your physically integrated biosensors, through sensors quietly placed in our wastewater systems, or by some other means, Schwab also predicts that governments, quote, will increase their control over populations based on pervasive surveillance and the ability to control digital infrastructure, end quote. Privacy concerns aside, he would like to, he'd like you to be convinced that this is a desirable outcome because the world is dangerous and safety is worth the cost. Where are we here, though, the, about this whole thing of danger and, you know, unidentified enemy, but it's there and it's all around you? The invisible enemies. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know that um, President President Bush in the 9-11 era and Trump in the COVID era actually both used the word invisible enemy. They even have, they share the, if not the same script writers, speech writers, they certainly share the right. same. Yeah, yeah, you got, because that's, you know, thousand points of light in the straw upon uh, George Orwell. So it's like, you know, it's, this coterie has, has been 
they're infected with the mind virus, pernicious, pernicious ideology that has perpetuated itself now over the course of really century or decades, if not over a century now. And they, they, they read the same sort of philosophical perspectives. They have the same sort of understanding of how they view history um, and the zeitgeist and the milieu in which it resides. And so I'm not surprised to see the regurgitation, the reiteration of the same language. You see this when the New World Order, even the term something like that, is almost a, a cliche at this point. Not amongst, you know, the fringe alternative crowds like us, um, amongst politicians and corporate heads, mm-hmm. David Rockefeller himself, you know, so it's sort of like, it's not, so, it's within the same, it's like a religious cult, if you will, that are all preaching from the same Bible, all reading and quoting the same quotes. And that's, that's the sort of the way I see it, because it's how many times we seem to play clips where there's a repetition of these same sort of talking points. I appreciate you pointing that out because that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's, it really is like, it's called a scientism and they're borrowing upon the same sort of heuristics, as you pointed out, and, or the sort of same methodology that's been laid before in this case of nine 11, nine 11 commission, the Patriot act, uh, the, uh, Homeland security, Department of Homeland Security, all these initiatives that, you know, manifest themselves in the wake of 9-11, then they're just taking that sort of methodology and the foundation and paying it forward 20 years later. And if it doesn't, okay, so it didn't work uh, for the war on terrorism. Right. You know, we lost that. Uh, Did it not work, but we're doing the exact same thing here. So in 20 years, what can we expect? And the question then becomes, and this time I'll switch to myself, did we lose it? So that's the question. I always, I'm not, it's not saying we need to answer it, but did we really lose the war on terror? Was the war on terror ever really the point, or was it a, a brilliant straw man? And so it's, you know, that's, wow. uh, that's a, a bigger question. I'll leave that open for the audience. Right. <laughs> so, but I want to just come back here, and we'll wrap up here in a little bit, but this gets crazy. Okay. Such surveillance, let's go back here. Um, privacy concerns aside, he would like you to be convinced that there is a desirable outcome because the world is a dangerous and, dangerous and safety is worth the cost. Autonomous and biological weapons are becoming easier for individuals and small groups, read insurgents, terrorists to use as and potentially cause mass harm. Such surveillance and real-world clinical trials will help governments become more agile in their regulation and medical countermeasure development, strictly for defensive purposes. Of course. Now... What better than to promote a man that's specializes in doing large-scale clinical trials that is also a proponent of the Fourth Industrial Revolution and Klaus Schwab's initiative to come in and overturn how we even de- conceive of how science is conducted. Um, and this goes, this started actually 2007, DCRI. <laughs> Uh, became the host of the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, as you point out. A public-private partnership. They do have a Clinical Trials 2030 agenda as well. Are you serious? Which is interesting. Yes, they do. At this point, like, I just... God, man, they're not even original. Like, what about 2031? Just try to hide what you're doing a little bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. Like, holy shit. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. Just, Just take the shot. Um... This is absurd. They have a 2030. So want you, what is this, Natty? What is this? Who is this individual? What is his, what is the CTTI clinical trials transformation initiative? And why should, 
we be concerned about this? Okay. Um, so instead of having a regular randomized clinical trial like you would, um, where you either, you're, all participants are in the same uh, conditions, right? You're all being observed. You're all, you know, your living situations are relatively the same. Your ages are relatively the same. Your health is, your food is as well. Um, either you get the medical intervention or you don't. And if you get the medical intervention and you're better off for it, the, the researcher has confidence that the medical intervention worked, right? Um, right. Instead of doing that, what, what Caliph et al. want to do is to take your data and give you the medical intervention without controlling for any other condition um, and rely on your social media, your cell phone location data, um, any sort of information Private medical derived records. from medical records, insurance claims, uh, billing information, yep. disease registries, uh, um, you know, wearable sensors, etc., cetera, uh, to determine whether or not the medical intervention is working. So um, this is called using real world evidence instead of, you know, clinical trial evidence. Um, the problem is, is that it's very hard to determine whether or not the data is high quality. Um, you're also relying on people to self-report information. Um, there's a lot of formatting issues as well. Uh, but regardless of whether or not these trials figure out if the medical intervention in question is actually working or if it's causing you problems or if it's unsafe, um, they are gaining access to information. So like we saw with the Patriot Act, um, it doesn't matter, well, it, it, regardless of whether or not um, we're catching terrorists and, and thwarting their plans, right, um, you're being spied on. So the same thing is happening here. Um, you, there is no guarantee that there are going to be better medical interventions. There is no guarantee that um, we're going to have better drugs faster, uh, et cetera. We're, we are guaranteed that our, our privacy is going to be infringed further. So um, they've, already, they've already passed legislation that is allowing companies um, Is that the Cures Act? Yeah, that's yeah. Cures Act, yeah. Let's, let's go over that real quick because okay. you have this here. I just want to read this in the record. Standardized EHRs, this would be electronic health records, I assume, for ease of transmissibility yes. between entities. Initialize a program to find a public-private or public-public universal EHR collection platform. Think of it as a standardized sort of like database and GUI system that would be able to crawl, talk with all these different applications and systems to be able to access EHRs platform for use by medical professionals and consumers waived informed consent requirements for minimal risk trials Defi <laughs> define minimal risk there that's a fallacy of the mean mm -hmm. all over the place incorporated rwe and trial design and foster what's rwe mean there do you know uh real world evidence real world evidence okay and trial design and foster its use in other areas established provisions for the use of priority review vouchers for the development of medical countermeasures against an identified material threat sidestepped conventional regulatory measures by allowing for, quote, novel trial designs, end quote, that allow for more rapid drug and medical device approval. That's what you're just alluding to. 
in regards to what Caleb specialized in and this whole CTTI that he's been a part of this initiative since 2007 to re transform the way we do clinical trials and emphasize the export exploitation of genetic information and the precision medicine initiative that's collected the genetic material and information of over 1 million Americans for research and trial purposes. Quote, and this is quoting you as uh, sort of the summation here. In sum, the 21st Century Cures Act served as a very important tool to ease regulations on patient data and clinical trials, allowing for clandestine surveillance on electronic health records and a reformulation of the idea of, quote, safe and effective drugs and medical devices. Medical data, which the FDA's definition includes genetic information, data collected from your phone, wearable devices, quote unquote, implantables, smart devices in your car or home, and social media is more widely available to those interested in collecting it and is formatted in a way that makes it easier to be utilized in any suited purpose. Medical treatments and devices are entering the market without being subjected to the typical rigors of a RCT, a randomized uh, clinical trial. And you go on to show how that corresponds to the way in which they do mRNA rollout and the the, the Israeli Ministry of Health, Pfizer Inc., BioNTech, as he today announced, real-world evidence demonstrating dramatically lower incidence rates of COVID-19 disease in individuals fully vaccinated with the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine underscoring the observed substantial public health impact of Israel's nationwide immunization program. These new data built upon and confirmed previously released data from the MOH demonstrating the vaccine's effectiveness in preventing symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infections, COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, severe and critical hospitalizations, and deaths. Now, first thing I said to myself when I read that is, but it doesn't prevent uh, infection. Uh, then you go on to state that like right below that. But that, that was the first thing like it doesn't wait. You can see how much of a disconnect there is between the objective data, like what actually happens with these things and then what they're using for the justification through this. What was the term? Real world evidence. Is that? Yep. Yeah. Real world evidence, which is just to stand in for it. We'll take whatever evidence we want and we'll leave the rest out and we'll quickly say this justifies you want to talk about confirmation. This is like a euphemism for confirmation bias or the justification for confirmation mm -hmm. bias. This is not science. This is the, the opposite of science. This is like a, this is a, the sophistry in place of science is literally what it is. You can't replace, the point is you can't replace randomized controlled trials. Like science is a messy, slow process. Like that's the problem. There is no way we can speed that up necessarily. Um, their, their way they're speeding it up is by essentially getting rid of the rudiments of science. That's the way I interpret it as. Right. It's supposed to be slow and rigorous. Correct. To get to the actual conclusion. Right. That is the closest we can approach to truth. Right. So that is the purpose of controlling for all other variables other than the thing that you are trying to figure out whether or not it works. Um, so, and I read uh, the both the Pfizer and Moderna uh, trial protocols. And it, it seems to be that this kind of trial design is what they were using in that protocol. So they gave wow. the okay. intervention to some people. They didn't give the intervention to, to other people. And then they used reported, self-reported data. That's correct. Um, and they didn't, they didn't purposefully introduce the virus to anybody. Um, they just relied on the environment to introduce. So they didn't control for that. Um, they didn't control for a lot of things, but they somehow drew the conclusion that these these jabs were 95% effective at preventing COVID-19, right? 
<laughs> of course, there's the, the manipulation, exactly right. And there's a manipulation of relative risk versus absolute risk. Then there's the issue of the actual in Pfizer's case. There was um, part of the data dump showcase. That, I mean, this is even before the data dump. Um, there was a control group that, as you pointed out, that did not receive the jab. But based on self-reported success from those who have been vaccinated, I think within a couple, it was like six weeks or something like that. I forget the, the total amount of time they brought over that control group uh, to, um, receiving the vaccine. So the variable group, in other words, they brought it, they got them all back. Cause it, it was according to them unethical for them to be part of the control, even though they said the control is going to go on for three to five years. That was their initial statement. If I remember correctly, and this is off memory mm-hmm. and my memory is a little hazy, yeah. but I'm pretty sure it was three to, they were supposed to have a control because that was then going to be used to file for the FDA to say that now we can get this approved and get the EUA, you know, um, uh, out of the way. So that, that they needed that control data, but instead they they brought in this very specious argument of like, no, 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 like it's unethical if we don't bring them over. The self-reported data is good enough to show that it's safe and effective. And not only is it safe and effective, it prevents transmissibility, which is just this narrative broke down within like a week or two because people were having breakthrough cases. One of the things that they were, I don't know if they were or weren't expecting that a lot of national, a lot of governments, European nations were posting, um, adverse events were posting transmissible rates or posting hospitalizations of vaccinated and unvaccinated. And they were much better. They weren't as sanitized as our data collection was in the United States. And a lot of the, a lot of that stuff got scrubbed. Thankfully, like people preserved it in screenshots and downloaded the information, but it's really the data from like, um, Israel, Scotland, Ireland, the UK, UK, actually, even for what it was worth, Japan, surprisingly, Japan had a problem because Canada, yes, yes, Canada. That's very true. I think Denmark was another one that had uh, data that really showed a lot of contradictions between what we were getting in the United States. For the United States, it was basically, you know, it, it was Jesus and then the vaccine, and it's hard to say which one was better. <laughs> so uh, being a little facetious there, but that's that's the sense you got in the United States. So, um, yeah, it was uh, literally of just this whole thing is just absurd. Uh, the fact that he, though, Robert Califf, is the one that sort of specialized in promoting Fourth Industrial, World Economic Forum, Fourth Industrial Revolution Enthusiast Ideologue. But then also in this, this, this re, reimagining, reformulation, if you will, of clinical trials and how it should be conducted, himself being a specialist in conducting clinical trials of a vast and large nature in order to streamline the process so we have the argument to get it out as quickly as possible. I think, let me see if there's some... Um, Don't forget how much cheaper it'll be. That's um, too. That's what I wanted to highlight. Thank you for actually, uh, yeah. we'll wrap it up here in a second, but that's what we're, we're towards the end of this article, but there was something, let me see if I can find it here. Um, let's read this here. Caliph left the FDA left the FDA in 2017 and a couple years later decided to pursue a career at Google Alphabet as their head of health strategy and policy. Sorry for individuals. There it is. He focused uh, his work in their Verily Life Science offshoot that seeks to use patient-generated data and wearable devices to produce medical insights in quote-unquote precision health. As the prolific Whitney Webb mentions in her article about Welcome Leap and its undertakings, the words precision health are used as a code phrase for treatments based on patients' genetic data and or for treatments that alter nucleic acid function itself. While Google Alphabet Caliph, Caliph oversaw Project Baseline, which predictably partnered with universities, including his alma mater and an employer, Duke University, 
Project Baseline's primary aim was, and still is, to map human health by collecting data. They recruited at least 10,000 volunteers in 2017 and gave them, again, we have this 2017, just, it is what it, anyways, gave them proprietary study watches that would collect and transmit passively generated health activity and location back to Verily. The outcomes of Project Baseline are unclear. Um, Regardless of the wealth of new insights or lack thereof generated by his time spent working at Alphabet on Project Baseline, Caliph certainly generated wealth for himself in the endeavor, totaling $2.7 million over the course of two years. Uh, furthermore, he was granted $1 to $5 million in equity in the company, which he still holds today as an FDA commissioner. Califf was recruited by President Biden into the 2021 for the position at FDA and was confirmed early this year despite his copious ties to pharmaceutical companies and sustained conflicts of interest in his financial disclosure. He declares that he is still receiving compensation from Google Alphabet as he is retaining his duties and position at Verily Life Sciences, although his title has changed to Science Advisor. Law? Might as well just call him a consultant. <laughs> um, so absurd. This shit's so absurd. There, There's another, to your point... Here, I think this is your last paragraph. Verily's president and chief operations officer in the same blog post mentioned above asked himself the question, why precision medicine now? The answer he gives is this, quote, we are living in a time of massive increases in health information and computing power, combined with decreases in life expectancy, alarming and rising incidents of chronic diseases like diabetes, and increased demand for value-based care and improved outcomes. There are gaps in data, insights, and incentives that are that all need to be addressed if we are to truly drive change and deliver what we know is possible, end quote. In other words, people are demoralized, sick, dependent, and willing to save risks, or willing to take risks. The infrastructure for the fourth industrial revolution has been built and awaits use. We have a true believer in the power of the world's most trusted food and drug regulatory agency. Why now? Because the conditions they have designed, as they have designed them to be, are ideal. I should have actually prefaced this by saying... You you prefaced it by saying that uh, how, oh no, this quote here. One thing you learn at the FDA in a big way is that when people are healthy, they really do behave like consumers, and that is very little risk tolerance, a lot of desire for independence, particularly in Americans. But when people get sick, they depend quite quickly. They're dependent quite quickly. They're also willing to take more risks, and they're more vulnerable to people selling them things when they are at risk. Is that Caliph? That is Caliph, yes. Oh, oh man. Uh... It's not even a situation that wears, wears no clothes. Um, any final remarks about Caleb? Anything we would sort of miss there uh, about sort of your journey and all of this, <laughs> discovering uh, all these connections? Yeah. Um, no, it's it, it really is a lot to go through. Um, they don't, people like this don't say things in contexts in which you can put things together. Sure. So I had to, you know, you, you look at a, at a dearth of material um, and it's only then that you can kind of see the pattern. So it, it took me a really long time to get this guy figured out, but I think that I did. Um, and it's important to just keep an eye on what the FDA is doing now, which is, again, giving vaccines to toddlers and right. infants yeah. uh, which is their one of their latest moves um yeah. although i haven't seen any trial data about that um yeah there is none <clears throat> that was a big theme <laughs> last week uh we played this that. is the trial yeah and that goes to the real world data right that goes to the exactly the, that's what they're we are the the ones they're experimenting on and in order to further 
their sort of con- this concrescence, this manifestation of mind or excuse me, matter, um, transhumanism, this combination of like consciousness with, you know, uh, bio, or excuse me, um, machine interfaces, the, the enhancement and augmentation of biology with science and robotics and genomic science and neurological science. It's all about sort of this, like this assimilation with machines. And so it goes along with that larger ideal. And the way you do that is by not paying value, paying attention to the value of the individual, by by viewing the individual as someone to be sacrificed for this larger goal. That's why, you know, um, consequentialist ethics is in such play here, pragmatic and utilitarian style ethics. The end justifies the means and the means is for, essentially merging with machines. And the way you're going to do that is by collecting data from all types, all ethnicities, all types of people, all walks of life, and trying to make sense of it in a way that helps further your own ambitions forward in regards to augmenting, extending, um, transforming human life and biology as we, as we know it. And that's completely in line with the goals of the fourth industrial revolution. Rich has read that into the record a number of times from Klaus Schwab. And what he sees is sort of this merging with machines and this sort of, they don't use the word transhumanism, but this sort of transhumanistic future and how, you know, like you've all know, Harari has mentioned how we're just be you know, useful eaters. What do we do this? We give them food and video games and, you know, we figure out what to do with them as we come to that, that issue of how to manage these, these lesser individuals. So that they sort of are rationalizing in some very terrifying sense um in a very resentful way which resentment is always precedes seemingly genocide as as uh um jordan peterson has pointed out it's not it's, it's disgust and resentment it's not fear as much as much as a disgust and resentment um that really precede then what become the most uh harrowing and tragic elements of history in regards to genocide and you know the population so on those uplifting notes <laughs> <laughs> this work is fantastic um i'd read through sections of it um when you each time you do i try to read through a little bit of it want to get in my anticipation of trying to get it on the record but I, I hadn't gone through it the way i'd gone through it before i sat down and read all four of your blog posts thus far in succession multiple times in preparation for tonight's discussion and it really hit me as i was able to not read it as someone trying to find the connections immediately in your article so i can make it make sense to gtw clips you might be playing i was just sort of uh, more just reading it not want to say for fun but sort of in a more passive manner just taking it in not trying to like have not be too active with it trying to form other connections to the things that we're showing and man uh, the first thing i took away is your, your writing style is tremendous your journalism and your cross-referencing is tremendous and you really allow these individuals to speak for themselves while at the same time making it digestible and making it sensible and intelligible in the sense that you were able to connect for Tom Inglesby. Yes, he is for the moratorium, but then he lifted it once there's the vaccine or a potential for the universal vaccine gene therapy. Robert Califf, you know, he's been a part of transforming this idea of clinical studies for or clinical trials for a long time. He has connections with large corporations. Um, and then you can see also his connections with world economic forms. So you're able to tie these disparate pieces together and make a cohesive narrative without sacrificing quality by utilizing what they're saying themselves. Just in that quote I just read here with the, about the FDA and how people respond as acting as consumers depending on what they're healthy or not. Fantastic work. This this deserves much more widespread um, uh, acknowledgement 
and purview from individuals outside just our community. And um, I'm hoping this sort of in some capacity for individuals to actually take the time, jump on James's blog and read the COVID uh, collaboration, um, the COVID collaborative, Maddie's sort of like theme of her blog posts. And also check out James's blogs because they're fantastic as well. He's been doing it since March of 2021. Really great work. And um, just, you know, like I said, Rich and I just don't have the time as we did in the past because we were researchers in the past and so now we're kind of involved in this and a bunch of thousand other projects trying to teach logic. I teach logic courses doing these other things. Plus I have a normal nine to five job. And then Rich is running his autonomy course. We just, we don't get the time to do this. Like we used in the past. This is all we did that uh, for when I lived with uh, him and his wife for those two years building the studio, this is all we did. And it was really interesting, but it's, it's difficult to keep up with. So we can't thank, you enough like the Vedmores and Whitney Webbs of the world for doing the real world research into the machinations, the connections, the sort of unholy alliances, interconnected web, this octopus, if you will, that exists and is, we know it exists, but bringing context to it. So we're not just shooting in the dark, trying to build out these connections real time when we're trying to do productions and stuff. So just incredible work. And I hope this gets more exposure for you. And if, do you want to give a shout out to how people can contact you um, if they are interested in your work or follow up or have any questions for you and all that sort of stuff? Oh, yes, please. I am uh, at Space Jelly on Discord. Um, so please DM me. I would love to discuss anything. Um, anything, questions, any any insights you have, I'm definitely open to listening and and discussing. But... Um, you can also email me at mmbannon at protonmail.com. Um, it's encrypted. Um, so just let me know. We can talk about it. I'm happy to do so. <laughs> Very awesome. Yeah. I'll just I don't get this. out. I don't get out too much. I don't have too many friends that uh, are interested in discussing these kinds of things. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I was laughing when we were talking privately, like you're a nerd, just like Rich and I, and, uh, you know, the rest of the research, James and all the Senna, like we're all just, we're nerds for this sort of stuff. Not that we, it's interesting to find how it's all interconnects at the same time to also see ways out of it potentially to sort of brainstorm ways in which you can sort of sidestep. You can see that for the facade of what it is, argue against other individuals, or at least have some sort of shielding and argumentation against the onslaught of fallacies and sophistic rhetoric as to why, you know, we have legitimate concern uh, not only with conflicts of interest, but with the actual ways in which they conduct the science itself and be able to insulate ourselves and better defend ourselves against the onslaught of the propaganda machine trying to f sort of foist their agenda upon us. So for those that are interested, M.M. Bannon, I have a highlighted there at ProtonMail.com. Again, that's M.M. Bannon at ProtonMail.com and Space Jelly uh, in Discord. There's probably a number behind it, but I don't know if you know what that number is. But that's uh... anyways, if you're on the GTW community, you can just it's Space Jelly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, fantastic work. I can't thank you enough for thank spending you. the time with me tonight. And I'm just glad we got the opportunity to finally get this on the record because you've been doing so much good work, but Rich and I just don't, don't, we just, we just don't always at the time. So especially when we're trying yes. to build and up more, a larger context. Mm -hmm. and, and more to come. Um, it, you know, it's a lot to do. It's a lot of, yes, it is. Uh, it's a lot of reading, but it's a, it's a lot of, doom and and bat you're reading things that you just really don't like so yeah i get it done when i can um i also have a nine to five and i feel like sometimes you just gotta 
take care of yourself some you know sometimes space repetition is needed especially in this world right now in regards to the and find always give space for something (laughs) you love to do something that takes your mind off of this i get a lot of people that come to the town halls that are seemingly inundated by this sort of black pill narrative and it's not what we're supporting we're just here to relay the message as we see it and as under as we understand it from history and the evidence that's available from history I know with what's happening right now, it's so disconcerting and, uh, you know, you just got to give yourself not to get, cause I'm against new age, but the one thing I took away when I was a hippie all those years ago, um, is that you got to have to find your bliss, something that doesn't affect other people or hurt other people, find something you love to do, find time to sort of remove yourself a little bit, whether it's spending friend time with friends and family or your loved ones, your, you know, art or literature or music or something that you can just use to sort of like detach yourself. Gardening could be anything. Could be so many different things. Assuming it doesn't uh, accost uh, or in, in, inflict on the rights of someone else. So as long as it's within that sort of non-aggression principle standpoint, that value, value, uh, valuing the rights of the individual and in their own like space. I think that's an important consideration to make sure you give yourself some space repetition to how you consume our podcast or other podcasts of like nature. So much agreed there, Maddie. I'm glad you're finding ways to keep balance in regarding in regards to the type of research you're doing. Cause although wildly <laughs> infer- um, interesting, man, this stuff is, uh, well, it's also, uh, circle it's jerk just, of you read the same thing over the same things over and over again. You read, about yeah. inc- inclusivity and equity and sustainability over and over again. So it's just at a point it becomes deadening to the, the to the senses. So yes, um, I have to kind of step back, refresh, and then come back to it or else I fear I will just write those words. You become a product of the very again. thing. That's, that's <laughs> the uh, cybernetic thing. You become a product of the technology in which you're utilizing. So it's like that laborious and monotonous gobbledygook you're constantly reading is like then becomes a part of your own writing style becomes a part of the way you see yes. things and that's you have to detach from it to make sure you don't fall into that pernicious devastating yeah. cybernetic trap and you're doing a great job at it so keep doing the great work and we look forward to the next installments of the covid collaboration collaborative excuse me and uh thanks for joining in tonight hopefully i'll have you on again to discuss your each new blog post if you have time so you're always welcome back on anytime really incredible work awesome. thank you tony it's been a pleasure and an honor yeah, no, thank you very much. This is awesome. Just a great conversation. So with that, uh, you uh, you can stay on. You can do whatever you want. Just mute yourself. Uh, you can do You know how this works. Right. So you already have access to the, yeah. <laughs> to the GTW um, thing. So, okay. That was incredible. Uh, my mind is blown 10 ways, 100 ways, 1,000 ways, infinite ways. Anyways, um we need to get to this. Oh my God, this voluminous show card. Oh man. Uh, Ukraine and Russia, lots of stuff there. I think everyone gets the, oh man. Well, I guess we'll be in for a late night episode. Let's see here. What do I want to do next? So we need to get to, there's a lot of topics, obviously the Russia and Ukraine. I I feel like a lot of the same themes were sort of uh, reiterated from last week, this week. Um, Jason Burmis had a very interesting uh, podcast he did it's about 45 minutes can't play it here talking about some of the similar themes in regards to the ongoing war the sort of limited war aspect the um uh military industrial complex weapons contractors contracts with those weapon contractors the the 
the sophists they have going on promoting this that are you know on the payroll of these weapon contractors so forth and so on like he does he does a good job of breaking a lot of that stuff down there's this german tv guest tells the truth about the ukraine war i kind of want to play that but because of timing i think people i'll just highlight what i thought was interesting just talking about how russia's gained the territory they wanted ukraine is lost and we're just going to have germany essentially is going to have to negotiate because germany shut down all of their nuclear power plants there's this, there's this power play with Turkey and NATO that I found really interesting as part of that. But that's for a, a town hall discussion, um, uh, especially with Senna to get involved because Senna, her family's from Turkey. She's from Turkey. She has an intimate uh, and keen insight into what's going on over there while they're playing hardball with Sweden and Finland joining NATO. A lot of moving parts there. Uh, yeah, so but we're going to skip that and we're going to jump to, I think probably because I need a little bit of a break. I've been talking... Uh, Sort of, we haven't really played many clips tonight, so I've been talking nonstop or having discussions. Fantastic, unbelievable discussion with Maddie, but then also the Pork Fest. Uh, shout out to everyone at Pork Fest who might even still be listening. I think what we'll do is we're going to go to a longer clip here. We're going to play the Jeffrey Jackson report, get about 35 minutes in. That'll give us a good context of what's happening with this Shots for Tots initiative and, you know, the uh, real world data that's being collected in, uh, by subjecting our youngest and most vulnerable, that those that should be protected the most to an experimental gene therapy. So I'm going to bring this up and we're going to cut to the Jackson report. Give me a little bit of a breather, give some time for people to, uh, give me a second here to catch my breath. And then we'll come back and we'll dive more into uh, the vaccine talk nonsense therapeutic section. So let me find the timestamps since I'm a one man band tonight. Uh, Gregory, no, not Gregory's. We'll maybe showcase that afterwards. 4934. That's what the show card says I need to start it at. That's what I'll start it at. And here we go. If it starts. All right, Jeffrey Jackson, he's back. He's a changed man. He's a different <laughs> man. We didn't see you last week on a honeymoon. Ye First of all, does it feel different? How's married life? Absolutely feels different. I mean, it was such a beautiful time to take a moment to honor the union, bring our families and friends together. And I'm back and I'm locked and loaded and we have some serious business to talk about, Dell. All right, let's get well, into it. All right. Uh, well, let's start with uh, the ASIP committee. This is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And they have recently recommended COVID vaccines for children six months and older. Um, here's the, the headline, uh, CDC recommends COVID vaccines for children as young as six months. And then we have the FDA just um, before that authorizing Moderna and Pfizer uh, BioNTech COVID vaccines for children six months and older. This was at the VERPAC meeting. That's the, as you said, the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. But what I wanna do here is is you know there's been there's been a lot of reporting on this people are really up in arms about this this is really the big topic the big conversation i want to go directly to those meetings directly to those experts and those advisors and i want the public to hear from them so let's start let's jump right in here okay this was uh dr wayne a morasco he's a cancer researcher a professor of medicine at brigham and women's hospital and he was talking about the, the follow-up for the efficacy for these vaccines. Now, this was for the Moderna vaccine at the VERPAC meeting. And uh, the FDA, just as a side note, the Pfizer vaccine 
was out front. It was approved for EUA for the for for adolescents first and kids and adults first. Moderna was kind of waiting in the wings, kind of back there, but that was all caught up now. So that's all caught up. So this was during the Verpac meeting. This was uh, what he had to say. He had some questions. Take a listen. All right. Start of the pandemic, it's pretty clear that the bar was somewhat lower in terms of vaccine efficacy because we were trying to get vaccines out the door and get the population protected. But in the data that I saw on P203, unless I'm mistaken, you know, the follow-up in terms of efficacy was, you know, basically 60 days after, after the second dose. So, I mean, we know that, I know I keep harping on this, but it seems to be an important point. Um, you know, these vaccines are of, of limited duration, and while they're protective, it's of limited duration, even and even more so with immunobridging. And my question is, um, you know, are we really capturing um, viral efficacy as a function of time? Because what this vaccine, these vaccines need is really to be able to try to get more durability out of them and immunobridging, not just immunobridging. So I just like, if possible, as a representative from CBER to address that, if, if it's possible. Uh, well, I, I will start. I'm not uh, quite sure I'm going to address your question, but I guess with the study P203, um, as I mentioned, because of the availability of an alternate COVID-19 vaccine, uh, after a certain peri period of time, after basically end of May, they, we have lost the placebo group, so it's we cannot really say anything about uh, the duration of vaccine efficacy after that. There's no more efficacy data, basically, after that time point. So, unfortunately, all we are limited to in this study would be the, the, the results that uh, we have shown in the slide. With the data cut off, the latest one would be the May uh, 31st one. Um, and that is still, unfortunately, a very few cases. So there's um, nothing that we have from the clinical studies uh, that will give us more information about the durability of the vaccine efficacy. And I guess it will have to come from real-world uh, effectiveness. Wow. I mean, look, I, for people out there, I get it. Some of this is sort of sciencey. What are they talking about? But you really just get a sense of a, a very important question by scientists looking at efficacy, you know, and saying, well, I'm only seeing this short period of time. I essentially know these vaccines are wearing off. That is one of the issues. Durability is our problem. Do we, I mean, do we, are we looking at, you know, longer term? What happens after this 60 days? And what was so shocking to me about what she said is, well, at that point, we, we don't have a placebo group anymore. So, does that, why is that? Is that because they just vaccinated the placebo group before they ever got any longer term data? Yeah, the study protocol at that point was revised. They unblinded everybody. They offered the vaccine to everybody. And at that point, the placebo group was gone. So wow. that study is essentially like someone building a sandcastle and then a bunch of people coming along and just wrecking. It's gone. They have no more gone. data. So we have the they have the, they, we have these, they, what we're told are, are some of the best experts in the country asking for data. Hey, we need this data. We have an important decision we're about to make here. Where is it? Don't have it. We vaccinated the placebo group. It's gone forever. That's what she I mean, told this is right like, there. This is like a kid saying, I did, I did the paper. I just tore it up. I mean, I, yeah, you didn't right. see the last paragraphs of my conclusion because I tore it up. 
I mean, this is insane, right. the fact that, and for anyone, any doctor or scientist out there that would argue that it's okay to erase the placebo group, no, it's not. You just got a question you now cannot answer that you could have answered had you done proper long-term science, which is something we've been complaining about from the beginning. And right here, she admits, sorry, we erased the placebo group. So that information you want, yeah, not capable for the most important health agency in the world to determine the CDC and the FDA. Unbelievable. Understand what she said at the end there. I guess we're gonna have to work. We're just have to rely on real world data. That's right. you, everybody out there. You're yep. the vaccine experiment group. She said that in not so uncertain terms. Right, because so that's so easy to track. So easy to track with a system we don't trust called the VAERS system. So now everybody that gets injured, all the efficacy that doesn't work, they say, well, we can't really trust that information. It's real world data and it's underreported. I mean, this whole scam would not be so frustrating if we weren't going to watch children die because of it. All right, I'm going to let you move on. I'm sure there's other things that will get under my, get yeah. me hot under the collar we, here. We, <laughs> we have some clips to get through, but uh, okay. just buckle up here. So now let's right. switch to the ACIP meeting. This is the CDC's ACIP meeting. This is where they recommend things to put on the childhood schedules. Uh, they recommend them. This gets them out in the circulation. The FDA just kind of approves them, gives them the regulatory green light. But the, the CDC really puts them out there. So this is their meeting. This was family physician, uh, Jamie Lauer. And he had a question. Again, efficacy was the big deal throughout these two meetings. The efficacy data just wasn't there. So there's a lot of questions on that. Listen to what he had to say. If you notice that in our, you know, summary conclusion slides for benefits and risk, we didn't quote efficacy estimates. Um, I think we we tried to lean into, you know, there these vaccines, a primary series provides protection against infection and will continue, you know, we uh, to provide higher protection, we uh, assume against um, more severe disease, uh, but fully agree that that um, there is differences in certainty. The fact that we're making uh, decisions based on both efficacy and immunobridging is a part of the total picture, um, and we'll monitor all of this really closely in the post-authorization studies. Thanks. Dr. Lair? Thank you, Dr. Oliver, for an excellent presentation. I want to reemphasize what Dr. Long and Dr. Lee just said that we're, I'm voting to approve this on basis of immunobridging studies and not based on the efficacy. And that when I read or hear from people that Pfizer has better efficacy in the original data, I feel like I need to correct them that the data is just not there yet to be able to say with certainty that that is true. Um, the certainty is not there. And so I would like to emphasize again that the immunobridging is suggesting that this is a very good vaccine and the efficacy data still needs to come in the future as we get more data. A very good vaccine that we know nothing about the effectiveness. I mean, can you explain to me this? We keep hearing this term immunobridging. What does immunobridging mean? Yeah, so this was a kind of a shortcut in place of the efficacy, um, and they're using that. They use, they use it because the efficacy trials, as he said, just aren't there. The data is just not there. So what they do is they find uh, the titers, the uh, antibody titers, the neutralization antibody titers in the studies, but there's no real guardrails on it. So they're not looking at this many kids here, this many kids here to do the, the, the vaccine effectiveness. They're just saying, hey, we found some titers in these kids. And they're similar to the studies that were done in adults a long time ago, two years ago. So we're just going to assume that it's going to be the same efficacy. 
So, so, you so know, they basically took go. adult studies, said when we saw titers at this level, we saw the efficacy in adults was about here. So when we see these titers, we don't have the efficacy data because we erased our placebo group and we'll never see that. But we're going to make assumptions based on the titers we saw in adults. When we see some of those titers in the children, we'll say based on immunobridging, this bridge between two different realities, uh, two different age groups with different immune systems, different maturity of the immune systems, we're going to make the assumption that it's the same. That, that's essentially right, what they're right. doing. Uh, okay. Against Great. Great. different Good variants. Yeah. Yeah. Against different variants. Very important. And that brings us to our next clip. We have Dr. Paul Offit. Uh, anybody that watches this show should know who this guy is. We've talked about him quite a bit. Um, and he brought up a question about the variants. As you spoke about, we have subvariant four, five, uh, uh, subvariant two, one, two, one of this Omicron variant. These are like 90% of the current circulating variants that these children, these six month old and older, are going to get vaccinated against now. Yeah. So he had a question about the strains and the studies. Listen to this. So this is for Dr. Fleming Dutra. Um, so, so thank you for that compelling presentation. You've made it clear that this can be a serious and occasionally fatal disease in young children. The data that you presented were, were, were primarily based, I guess, on Omicron to a lesser extent on the variants that circulated before Omicron. Those variants, including Omicron, are largely gone from the United States. So my question to you is, do you have any information on the Omicron subvariants like BA2 or BA2121 or BA4, BA5 BA that are now more commonly equally virulent and in this country how about in other countries where those viruses were circulating before here so thank you for that question um i as you said the data that i presented are based on u.s epidemiology um i tried to focus on omicron um predominance which was early you know ba1 and the ba2 um and but there are some data from prior in the pandemic I do not have further information on the epi epidemiology from other countries that I can share at this point. Wow. Great. I mean, it's, it's what I said at the top of the show. We know this. You're literally using a vaccine for the Wuhan strain, and we're like, you know, hundreds of strains away from that now, Omicron. And then I love how she says, I tried to focus on Omicron, which says to me, actually, a lot of this information is probably Delta and other, you know, but wherever we could get Omicron, but it's not BA2121, uh, I think it is, and BA4 and 5, which literally is the problem we're in now. What, what a catastrophe this is going to be to take these 18 million kids that haven't had a single problem, have had no issue whatsoever. Now let's go ahead and vaccinate them with an antiquated vaccine that, as Paul Offit just clearly pointed out, did we look at how it's going to affect the actual strains on the planet? No. Once again, terrible answer. No data on that. Okay. Right, right. About and then, zero at the and moment. Right. <laughs> now, now we get into the elephant in the room and it's starting to be called out here with these comments. So really quickly at the Verbeck meeting, just like the ACIP meeting, these members had to sit through and listen to comment after comment in the comment section of parents and health professionals slamming this uh, this move to try and green light these vaccines for these kids. Yeah. So we have uh, Cody Messinier. Uh, he's a professor of pediatrics at Tufts University School of Medicine. And he he kind of just threw it right out there about the, communicating this extremely small risk that these kids have for COVID-19 and, and the issues of it to parents. Take a listen. I don't think anyone could listen to the public, the open public uh, hearing session without being 
troubled by the diversity and the, the emotional commitment that's been put into this in, issue of immunizing children um, in, in between six months and, and, and five years. I, I, uh, it was quite moving. I, um, I, my, my personal feeling is that it would be hard not to uh, include uh, six months to uh, uh, five years of age uh, in an amendment uh, to the EUA in view of um, the, the strength of the data that we have seen today. But I would like to make this comment. And I think it's very important, as Dr. Cohn said yesterday, that the communication or the messaging be made as clear as possible for parents to understand the relative risk and the relative benefit. I think we, for example, we heard, we've heard several times that there were approximately 442 deaths so far in the pandemic among children less than five. So that means about 220 deaths a year, approximately. And if you look at the number of people who are struck by lightning in the United States on a year, it's 270. So we're talking about a very rare event. If we talk about hospitalizations among children between six months and uh, uh, five years of age, the hospitalization rate on the CDC website the latest site is 2.3 per 100,000 or uh, 23 per million. And there are about 20 million uh, children in this age group. So 20 times 23 is 460 hospitalizations associated with COVID in, um, in this age group that we're considering today. And probably only a fraction of those are because of COVID-19 infection rather than a coincidental uh, association. So really we'd be talking about vaccinating close to 20 million children in order to prevent um, two or 300 deaths. And it's a matter of how an individual weighs the risk and benefit. I think the vaccine should be available for, for certainly high-risk children and for families that are so concerned they are troubled by that risk ratio and they should have access to the, uh, to the vaccine. But I, again, feel very strong that parents should understand how small these numbers are. It's a very low risk from the vaccine, but it's also a very low risk from the infection itself. And I think that has to be communicated clearly to parents so that they can participate in the decision about vaccinating um, a child in this age group. Wow. You know, that actually gives us, I think, some insight into what's happening in these voting meetings in that clearly this doctor, Cody uh, Messonnier, um, is saying, I don't want this vaccine given to everybody. That makes absolutely no sense. There is clearly a risk from all the parents that we're hearing getting up on microphones. He is seeing the data with his own eyes. Uh, and so to give 20 million this vaccine for, I think he said, the 400 
that were hospitalized. I think he said it's something like uh, two per 100,000 uh, that are being hospitalized. Folks, these are the numbers we're talking about. Why are we going to put this group at risk? He's saying everything I said. But what I think really gives me insight into the humanity, the human being side of this, because I don't, I'm one of these people, I'm not, I don't believe these people are evil. Uh, there is something that drives them to make these decisions. They want to make the world a better place themselves. But you see, it's sort of, I was watching, when I'm watching this, I think about the times I've been, had jury duty. And a courtroom works a little differently than you think, where they really, like, narrow the, the hallway with which you are making a decision about. Don't make it about this. Don't make it about this. Forget about all the side characters. You're only being asked, is this question true or false? And you're like, but you want to talk about the rest of it. In this case, you see how they compartmentalize these meetings. They compartmentalize them. So the discussions of how many children be injured really isn't what's happening here. It seems to me by what he's saying and why he's going to vote yes, clearly, is that it's really coming down to and think about yourself as a conservative. I, mean, I talked to a lot of conservatives now. They're like, you know, the government should be, should be making your decisions for you. So in their mind, what they're being tasked with is, should you deny your children access to this vaccine when everyone else should get it? And what he's saying is, there are people, whether or not it doesn't use, you know, that they're like overly, uh, you know, freaked out. The media has got them freaked out. But there are people that are looking at this risk-world ratio. They don't fully understand it, but I get it. The vaccine is going to make them feel better. I want to make it, you know, available to them. But really, all of these healthy children out there, they don't need this. And I want the uh, I want the languaging to say that. I feel like I'm picturing like a little lamb sitting there surrounded by drooling wolves saying, just hand it to us, man. Oh, yeah. what? Oh, yeah. We're going to put all kinds of writing out there. Don't worry. Informed consent. They'll know about all the myocarditis and all that's not going to happen, Cody. It isn't going to happen. You just handed children to the wolves, the wolves that want to make billions of dollars off of their backs and don't care whether they live or die. But you see how he's making that decision. He wants it to be available to those that want it, and that's it. Unfortunately for us, the next step will be mandating this in order to put your kid in school, uh, and, and that's where this thing is just going to get horrid. But super interesting. Obviously, he's concerned. You wonder how the rest of them are, are just sliding by all of the injuries that have clearly the people that stepped up on microphones there were, were zooming in to see, say they were worried about the injuries. Um, just incredible right. piece of information. It and just to note, these were unanimous decisions at both Furback and CDC's ASIP. So we, we are listening to great, great questions yeah. um, and some pretty shocking answers. But, you know, when it came down to put the money where your mouth is, that's what happened. So, yeah. you know, let's move on. So now they started talking about injuries. Uh, especially myocarditis. This is obviously a big issue for these kids, uh, children, adolescents, teenagers. The heart inflammation, we've covered this uh, way above background in all of these studies. Yep. Um, and so we have Dr. Henry Bernstein. He's a New York pediatrician, and he had some really great questions to ask. Listen to this. My question relates to, and this may be a, a better question for the sponsor, but with concern to myocarditis, particularly in the males uh, after dose number two, are data available or being collected using a lengthened interval between doses one and two in the primary series for those uh, males 12 to 17 and those 18 to 25 young adults? Sure. Thank you for the question, Dr. Bernstein. We, we in our 
studies, they, our study populations were incredibly compliant. So we don't have any um, clinical data more at more than a four weeks duration. Um, but we are looking at, um, you know, kind of observational studies to help inform that. So you're looking at a longer interval between the, the primary series, the two doses of primary series in, in uh, older teenagers and young adults? So we are actually not looking at it. I mean, I know there are other studies, um, I, other observational studies, such as those in Canada, that have explored the longer interval. We are clinically not exploring the longer interval for adolescents. We are looking at um, infants and whether a longer interval would be, uh, would be beneficial there. Billions of dollars being spent by Joe Biden to track down people that don't trust these vaccines, to censor anybody that talks about the lack of science around it. But no, we're not doing any studies on timing and whether or not timing could maybe limit the swelling of our innocent children's hearts and putting them in hospitals and killing them. Because simply, uh, I, I hope they never say we don't have funding for that as Biden's been sitting there just doling out ridiculous amounts of money to stop uh, freedom of speech. All right. And that's, that's Moderna's vice president of clinical vaccine development. So the, the, the one issue their vaccine has, the biggest issue is myocarditis. This guy's asking, you know, do yeah. we, we're going to accordion this out, look for it a little longer time frame than just the short time frame. How about in the kids? No, we're not going to touch it. We'll, we'll leave that to real world data. Maybe, maybe fly your butt up to Canada. See if you can find some studies up there. Cause we don't have them. I mean, right. how by the convenient. way, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't sue us. <laughs> and why would we look into it? Why would we give ourselves a bad name when we're making tens of billions of dollars? We've got no reason to do any studies that would give you any more information on myocarditis. Maybe you should do that. Right. And so that leads us perfectly into the next clip, because right. uh, just before we enter this clip, so there's the vaccine injury compensation program. Uh, typically, all the vaccines that are on the childhood schedule, even adult flu shots, things like that. If there's injuries there. That's where people go. They So so these vaccine manufacturers still have liability. They have this special court through the government where they go. And that's a whole different story. But these yep. emergency use authorization vaccines have something called a countermeasures injury compensation program. This thing has been described as a black hole. Um, it, it rarely pays out to people. Someone asked about this and listen to what they had to say. Because we're on the subject, I'd like to follow up, sure. please. Can we have confirmation that any potential harm would be covered by um, the countermeasure injury compensation program versus the vaccine injury compensation program? I don't know if Dr. Hastings is on um, from HRSA, is able to comment. Uh, I am on, and as of right now, all vaccine claims are being processed through CICP. Okay, and Dr. Hastings, could you just give us an update on the status of the COVID-19 injury table? Um, I'm sorry, can you clarify, do you mean the total number of cases? Or we do not have a CICP uh, COVID-19 vaccine-specific table at this point, if that's the question. That is the question, but it is in development, is that correct? Um, it is not fully in development at this time. We're working on um, different positions. Okay, thank you very much for that information. 
This is absolutely, yeah. I mean, in some ways, I don't think a lot of people understood what's happening here. So you have the original protections given by the 1986 Act, often referenced as VICA, Vaccine Injury Compensation Act. This is a courtroom designed for all the childhood vaccines. The, the emergency use authorization, and I think also through the PrEP Act, set up a different court system, right? What I forget what you called that. That one was called... The Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Countermeasures Injury Compensation. They said, how is that system working? And they basically said, oh, yeah, we're not using that. We're running through the original VICA system. Uh, oh, okay. So if that's where it's at, you know, the table of injuries, have you... So, so there's a table. So remember, all this is happening, right? Like this, this new, this light little cause. Yeah, we kind of flipped it over to this other court system. Let me remind you, reported on this just a couple of weeks ago, these headlines. Vaccine injury compensation programs are overwhelmed as congressional reform languishes. They were talking about a pair of federal programs compensating people who suffer injuries from vaccines and pandemic treatments are now facing so many claims that Thousands of people may not receive payment for their injuries anytime soon. The first program meant for standard vaccines such as measles and polio has too little staff to handle the number of reported injuries and thousands of patients are waiting years for their cases to be heard. It goes on to say between 2010 and 2020, the countermeasure injury compensation program received 500 complaints in the two years since COVID-19 appeared. It has received over 8,000 complaints. 8,000 people. Should COVID-19 shots become routine once the pandemic ends, alleged injuries would eventually be handled by the already overburdened standard vaccine injury compensation program, which we just heard is where they are putting these things now. Patient advocates, attorneys, and the pharmaceutical industry fear that without drastic reforms, that program could collapse. Despite bipartisan calls for change, Congress has failed to act, frustrating those who say that the VICP, which covers nearly three times as many vaccines today as it did when it was created three decades ago, is overwhelmed. So what she's saying here is, you know, there are 8,000, probably more at this point, that's an older article, you know, 10,000 cases, people who are injured waiting to get into court, and they're not even using the court system that was set up for this vaccine. They're running it all through the one that was already overwhelmed with all the other childhood vaccines. And then the most shocking part of what she says, which is, you know, so you have a vaccine injury table for COVID-19, folks, this is huge. That vaccine injury mm -hmm. table is what gives you the ability to sue. If you say, you know, uh, measles caused encephalopathy, I mean, my measles vaccine, the MMR caused encephalopathy, it's got to be on that table or you can't sue. This is why people who say my child regressed into autism, if you go to this court and say my kid got autism right after uh, the MMR vaccine, you will be thrown out of that court because it does not appear on the table of injuries. You have to choose something that's on that table. So a lot of the parents out there that watch autism take place after a vaccine, they, their lawyers, that they have good lawyers, say don't claim autism, claim the encephalopathy, the swelling of the brain that resulted in autism because that's the only thing that's on the table. And so if it's not on the table, you can't sue for it. It has to have been proven through this kangaroo court system. I've got shows all about this, but listen to what she just said. Do we have a table for COVID-19? None. Zero. Right. There's nothing on it. It's a zero. There's it, nothing there. So how do you even go in and sue for something? There's nothing in there to point to to say, look, there's no myocarditis. There's no blood clots, you're telling me. There's no strokes. All the things that are being reported that the CDC is admitted to, there's no table there inside this court system. This is so shocking and, and inept and, and, and frankly, 
evil. This is getting to the point of being evil, how out of control this whole thing is now getting. And, and with no table, if someone goes into this countermeasures injury compensation program, they're going to be forced to prove the injury against government medical experts with unlimited funding. So they don't go in there with a sweet ride, like you said, and say, yeah, yeah. you know, a sore arm. Well, it's on the table there. Sore arm. You've already admitted anything. it. They have right. to start from scratch and yeah. reinvent the wheel. And remember, the government doesn't have to prove it didn't happen. They just have to right. show there if there's a possible probability it didn't happen. Right. You're out of there. You're not getting the funding. So well, and guess what science they're going to? Them. The science that says, well, actually, that was never proven because we erased our control group. Do you see how all of this starts coming together, folks? This is the whole thing. They've got this thing wrapped up in this sick, twisted little ball that, that we've got to, to break apart. Absolutely right. crazy. All right, Dell audience, final clip here. Thanks for hanging with us here. So we, we bring in a Dr. Uh, Wayne Morasco again, and he's talking to the CDC's Dr. Catherine Fleming Duitra. We're gonna talk about her in a second, a little further, but um, he asked a question about the messaging. How are we gonna message these vaccines? Kind of interesting, take a listen. Yeah. You show us viral effectiveness, um, vaccine effectiveness really dropping off in the population after about three months and your second dose. And even if you get a third dose, there's a there's a there's a, a drop off, waiting in immunity after perhaps maybe more months. So it looks like these vaccines are really only protecting, as we already know, for a period of you know three to six months. So my question really is, how do you message that to the people if it's really not going to be protective for a full year? I mean, this is a CDC messaging problem because I see that. Why would I get the vaccine or am I going to need to get it every six months? I mean, those kind of questions arise from this kind of data. Perhaps you can address that. Sure. I mean, I think it goes to which outcome is under study. So most of the data that I showed where we actually had information further out from vaccination for kids was looking at infection. And so we do know that vaccines wane fairly quickly against infection during Omicron. That was not the case with earlier variants. Um, but because most of the data we have for children is during Omicron, we do see that waning against infection. We know from the adult data that the vaccines wane much, much more slowly against more severe outcomes like hospitalization. And so we would expect that since we see similar waning patterns for infection for adults and children, that we would see similar waning uh, patterns for hospitalization for adults and children. Because hospitalization is generally more rare for children, and just because of the timing of when the vaccines came out uh, in conjunction with the Omicron surge ending, um, we don't have enough data to look at waning specifically against more severe disease, including hospitalization in children. I mean, yeah, it doesn't stop infection. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't stop infection. Uh, we don't have the data show waning in hospitalization and severe illness. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be for at this point, right? Doesn't have mm -hmm. it. So, you know, as we're sitting here, our, our federal health agencies, as we're seeing, are essentially doing nothing to properly test the, the efficacy and the safety of these vaccines. So it's going to be left up to the states. It's going to be left up to private companies to do to really, really put a stopgap measure here. And the first state really jumping into that pool with both feet is Florida and Governor Ron DeSantis. So he came out after the decision at Burback and ASIP and had this to say at a public comment section. Our Department of Health has been very clear. Uh, the risks outweigh the benefits and we recommend against. That's not the same as banning it. I mean, people can access it if they want to and parents can do. But if you look at when they were doing the hearing, you had one physician say, 
you know, parents are really, really frightened. Like we, we know that the risk is low. Uh, we're not sure how this is going to work, but we parents are really frightened about COVID for their kids. And which I would say is, why would they be frightened about it? It's because of media hysteria. It's because of a lot of misinformation. That's why they're scared. But to, to do an emergency use for a six-month-old or a one-year-old uh, simply to placate anxiety, that's not the standard when you're doing this. The standard is, is this something that's safe and effective? And then very importantly for recommendations, does the benefit outweigh the risk? I keep forgetting that this isn't even a full authorization. It's an emergency use authorization. What emergency? I mean, if Geert is right, we're about to have an emergency amongst the vaccinated. So please, by all means, let's add more people to that group. I mean, there is no emergency. These kids have been fine. What the heck is going on? And it really makes us realize when, remember, just like it was a month ago, there was this idea, should we lift the emergency? And, and Biden and everybody wanted to reinstate it. This is why. They didn't want to get rid of the emergency, which no one is seeing around them, because they knew they wanted to have to rush these vaccines into the kids so that I'm, I'm guessing so that they get the immunity protection that they could get once it goes on to the actual CDC schedule. They've got to get that rolling. Otherwise, you know, when the emergency lifts, now are they vulnerable to lawsuit? All of these huge questions. But there was no emergency. They just wanted to be able to do crappy science. And the only way you're allowed to do crappy science if you say we're in the middle of an emergency. And you have a private company now also stepping up in Florida, Publix. That's a supermarket chain there with the pharmacies inside. Publix won't give COVID vaccine to children under five. So you're not going to find them there. So Walgreens, CVS, apparently. I know uh, where I'm shopping. Let's... It's a long drive from here to Florida, but I'll make that drive just to support people that are making good decisions like that. That's right. <laughs> so as we saw, it, it, the, the common theme was we don't have the evidence. We're making assumptions. Uh, there's just no evidence there. We don't have the data. But the data, some of the data that was at these meetings was this study right here. This was used, and it's called COVID-19, a leading cause of death in children and young people aged 0 to 19 years in the United States. A lot to unpack here, but... I didn't know it was a leading cause of death. I thought it was a, a rare cause, but we can see yeah, here. And, and like the ones that we saw, 0.0027% is a leading cause of death. Okay. Right, I mean, right. From the American Academy of Pediatrics numbers, I mean, right. it was it was minuscule. Some of it was zero. Some states stopped recording because it was so low. Right. So we have the slide here. This was from Kat, uh, Catherine Fleming Dutra at uh, the CDC and VERPAC meeting, and this was this was it here: epidemiology in children aged six months to four years. And you can see here she has this uh, leading cause of death. And if you notice at the bottom. This is the study she used. I'm just going to point this out. This was based on the source. It's called Flaxman and Whitaker at the bottom there. That's the sourcing. And so this study was used at the meeting. This study made its way through Twitter. We have Leanna Wen on Twitter. That's CNN's medical analyst. Uh, we've covered her many times, Mrs you know, beat people yeah. with a stick to get them to comply with lockdowns. This is what she yeah. says. These CDC ASAP slides make the case for vaccinating children uh, under, over, uh, under five. COVID-19 may be milder in kids than adults, but it's still a top reason for child fatality. There she goes. We give routine childhood vaccines, uh, vaccinations for other diseases that cause less deaths because the point is to prevent them. Even the former Surgeon General, he, the 20th Surgeon General under Trump took to Twitter use the same slide again, use the same data. And he says, as a top five cause of death, 
it is also affirmatively, uh, affirmatively untrue that young kids are at zero risk for COVID. This was a, a shot across the bow for DeSantis, where he said, I would say we are affirmatively against the COVID vaccine for young kids. DeSantis said, these are the people who have zero risk of getting anything. Well, all it took was, and I'm going to call her a hero, a, a hero mother to unpack this. And here's the tweet that really pointed it out. This was uh, by Michael Absad. He's a pediatrician and clinical academic at King's College in uh, uh, London. And he took to Twitter and really raised the flag here for this mother. He said a truly incredible story, a mother who reviews this data in her own personal time and yet seems to be more knowledgeable about COVID deaths in children than most academics and public health officials working with COVID-19. Mm. So let's look at what this mother did. Um, this is her blog. She's known simply as Kelly. She's a mother of a teenage daughter. She started in 2020 writing about this data to get the schools reopened because she saw the the, the, the the mental health issues that were, were, were piling up. And this is what she said. She fact-checked this study. COVID as a leading cause of death in children. She, she writes this. It's really disturbing that data this poor made its way into the meetings to discuss childhood COVID and that it took me less than a few minutes to find a major flaw. And then I found many more as I looked deeper. So let's see what she pointed out. In this study, they they use the data from what's called the, the National Center for Health Statistics. So let's, this is the CDC center. So they use the, it was based on this death certificates from this NCHS. So let's, let's read about these death certificates. How do they, how does the surveillance work? Well, you can see here this highlighted part, NCHS counts of death due to COVID-19 include only deaths that have the code U07.1 as a cause or contributing cause of death. Remember, Dell, we co we covered this. Yeah, you get hit by a bus, you get you, you fall off a motorcycle. That's You're a dying contributing of cause of death. Right? Yeah. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So, but if COVID's in these there, are, boom, that's on the death certificate. Yep. Right. It's all piled in there. So there is an overcount right from the beginning. But now look what the authors did to go even further here. Let's look at this, the study slides from the actual study here. And here's the study again, leading cause of, of death in children. Now we see here the first table, one to four years old. You see something highlighted there, the first one, COVID-19 cumulative. So all the rest of these no. start at the top, accidents, uh, malformations, assaults, disease. This is per year. So, so this why is what I'm saying. So cumulative. They took all of the deaths that happened over the entire COVID pandemic, two years, and said, see, compared to these other yearly deaths, it's a top five. It's not a top five. You're giving two years of deaths, not one year. That's yes, outrageous. Absolutely. absolutely. And you, you see, you go down, you have COVID-19 annualized. So that's what should be there. But still, even that is using uh, the death certificates that were its contributing factor. So that's an right. overcount. Now let's go to the five to nine-year-old category. Same thing, cumulative, what's it doing there? It's not supposed to be there. Annualized, way down. It's even below influenza and pneumonia. Then look at uh, ages 10 to 14 in the next and people, table. Be, be and people, pay notice, attention to this number, the fours and the fives, the ranking, because that's what that slide is that everyone was sharing. It's fourth, it's the fourth leading cause of death. No, it's not, it's the seventh. And by the way, that tweet that said to DeSantis it's not a zero I see one number in the in the column there it's zero point and if you really look at it 0 0.4 uh you know you could round that down that's below the five number either way right. those are zeros it's zero point something so Ron DeSantis is right I'm going to back you up on that Ron and, and if we look at this next table the 10 to 14 year olds a couple things I want to unpack here look at the second 
uh, line, intentional self-harm, suicide. Obviously, there's a mental health situation going on here. That's the second leading. So why are we playing around with cumulative COVID numbers, trying to pack this, this unnatural situation in here? But accidents, the number one on every, basically every one of these slides, accidents. Notice all of those, uh, um, those uh, classification codes up there. There, there's there's tons of those encompassed. Wow. That's drownings. That's car ac uh, car accidents. That's that's you know falling off you know, a chair or something like that. And all of those can actually those are all in one category. So if you unpack those, those, those actually are all going to come rank. in at one one point one somewhere in the one point five somewhere in that. If you divide them across, which means you're going to push this thing right off the charts. It won't even be in the top ten if you actually yes. broke up all the different types of accidents that are there. Interesting, really yes. good point. And and the final table here, the 15 and 19 year olds. Not sure why those are in the children, but uh, here we go. Uh, you have the cumulative 700. Annualized COVID-19 deaths, 324. Go to the top, look at the accidents, 3,537. And you're gonna tell me yeah. that COVID-19 annualized is a leading cause of death. Okay, well, th this this mother, Kelly, she did something else. She didn't even write that, she did, didn't just write this article. She actually hounded the author of the study on, on emails and put this out on Twitter. This was her response. They're really frustrating that these issues weren't identified by the CDC prior to using the data in their vaccine authorization meetings, obviously. And so what, what does the author say? The author actually came back and talked about this. And this was his reply. He says, we have received some feedback and criticism along several dimensions. We are planning to update the preprint to take into account some of this feedback, primarily by focusing on COVID as an underlying cause of death using CDC wonder provisional mortality statistics. But he does go on to say, our major conclusions are unchanged in this analysis. So uh, this guy's not budging, but he's he's been outed in public. I mean, this is this is a disaster. And the fact that the CDC, like you pointed out, the CDC's slide used the cumulative numbers Doubling to talk number. about this thing. Totally it, cheating. It, it's, it, absolutely yeah. deceitful. But Dell, I want to take a moment here um, to, for a call to action. Okay. So, you know, our, our, our audience is probably some of the smartest, most well-informed, courageous, and, and active audiences of any show ever. And we're going to call upon them here. For we'll give a little background. So okay. on April 6, uh, Verpac had a meeting and they put out a notice. This was the notice here. And this was uh, for a docket, a request for comments. And it says here, this meeting will be held to discuss considerations for use of COVID-19 vaccine booster doses and the process for COVID-19 vaccine strain selection to address current and emerging emerging uh, variants. And then Dorian Fink, he is the deputy director. He's the clinical division of uh, vaccines and related products applications. He put together this, this thing called the future for uh, the framework for the future. And it's talking about, again, strain composition and use of additional boosters. So let's look at some of the slides here. And why is this important? Because they're talking about uploading new strains into the already uh, existing vaccine uh, uh, schedule here with COVID-19. Yeah. So what they're saying here is they're, they're trying to make contingency plans that they're saying that should be developed to respond to any emerging variant that escapes protection provided by current available vaccines on the slide here. And then they're talking about how are they going to do this? Well, they're, they're saying the flu shot is a great way to look at this. So this next slide here in the, in the background of, of how they may be able to do this, they give this idea of, well, 
the composition of current COVID-19 vaccines may need to be updated to maintain vaccine effectiveness against clinical relevant uh, variants, as, as they say. But they say the annual influenza vaccine strain selection process may provide insights for how to consider updating the composition of COVID-19 vaccines. So understand they're trying to flu shot the COVID-19 vaccine. So that's basically fast tracking the development of this vaccine rather than it going through the trial phases. They're just gonna say, they're gonna declare it biologically similar and say, well, we're just gonna update it. We don't need to go through Verpac. We don't need to go wow. through ASIP anymore. If if BA- I mean, This is amazing. Let me, let me just, so, so essentially they wanna do with the flu shot, what they do is just basically throw in a new variant every year, say, oh, we think this is the variant it's gonna be, but they don't want a safety test that. Remember, folks, they're going to be manipulating the, the, the spike protein, which is what these RNA vaccines are using. Put a brand new spike protein together, mutate that some way that Dr. Robert Malone will say is absolutely insane. And then they want to have the same safety that they said they've already achieved with the old vaccine, which they have not achieved. It's all been emergency use authorization. And before we ever had a long-term study, while they were erasing all the control groups, they now want to have a free ride with every future vaccine to just make it, put it out there, and not have to do any safety trials. I mean, this is where it's gone. We have just watched a total rush vaccine. You've watched the worst science ever done. And based on this horrible science, VAERS blowing up, higher deaths reported than we've ever seen in any vaccine in the history of mankind. And God knows how many people plunging face first on the, the, the turf of the sports that they're in. This is it, a million 300 reports. And we understand that that is only about one to 10% of the total amount of injuries if we're to take Harvard Medical School's investigation of the VAERS system. And based on all this, they want a free ride to just keep cranking these out now. Apparently not every year, because as was stated in this Verback meeting, or I don't know if it was the ACIP meeting, the doctor said, we're going to need a new one every three to six months because these things are wearing off. And so now we're just going to keep seeing brand new variants, brand new attempts to pressure this virus, and no one's going to have a say in the matter. So you're saying we actually have a say now. How do, how do we do something right. about this? This is crazy. Right. So this is on June 28th. It's it's the meeting. Uh, people can make comments now, though. So okay. if they go to yes, if and this was the announcement, but if they go to uh, to make a public comment, they can go to regulations.gov, the website, and they go on the comment section right there, and you can make a comment uh, right now as we speak. When you're done with this show, you can go there and do that. But you can also sign up for a public comment if you want on June 28th to make a public comment at that meeting. Um, and that's the way you do it. So this is this is what we can do to make a difference. If you're sitting there watching, what can I do to make a difference? It seems so overwhelming. I don't know how I'm going to go against the government. Start with this. Start small. Use what you have. Do what you can. I'm imagining we have a bit.ly here, but we have a bit.ly probably in your comments right now if you're watching on our website. Uh, it's on the screen. Oh, there's the screen. Grab that right there. That's what you want to use. And again, all this information is going to be sent to you on Monday if you're a part of our newsletter. Well, Obviously, we've got to get active people. This is how we get involved. Let's not just watch this. We're just not a show that's going to sit here and bemoan what's taking place in the world. We're actually going to make a difference. We're seeing shifts. We're seeing the government moving in our direction. Uh, we, you know, we sent out a letter, actually, I can did, uh, trying to stop this through Syrian Glamstad, our, our legal um, team. And so we're on top of this. And by the way, if they attempt to do this, I'm going to just say this right now, that will be an informed consent action network lawsuit. We will bring a lawsuit against this insanity that you think you've established safety at a level that you can start cranking these out with any variant you well please. Well, you will meet us in court and that's what you make possible by donating to us. Jeffrey, 
tons of information there. Just amazing work. I know, and look, that was hard. You had to go through hours and hours and hours of these meetings. I know you whittled it down to, I think, 20 yesterday. I said, Jeffrey, I'm not listening to 20 of these. Pick the top ones. <laughs> You're doing that work. Uh, so I really thank you. Amazing reporting once again. Thank you, Dell, and thanks to the team. Um, amazing team we have, and um, thank you so much. All right. Take care. We'll see you next week. Another fantastic <clears throat> report by Jeffrey Jackson. Harrowing, though. Um, and, you know, in line with, with the discussion I had with Maddie in regards to uh, Caliph and this idea of real-world data, and, you know, especially at the end, they already said they're going to use a model of the evolutionary cycle of influenza virus uh, to create uh, updates to the mRNA shots. Come on, cat, Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, I mean, it's it's just portends so much of what she was able to uh, research and and present in her own blog and that we went through earlier. Just uh, so much of what he's saying there. He even used the terms real world data. You know, essentially, there's no studies. The studies are being conducted in real time. And then they're going to be, especially with that ending point where they talk about the manipulation uh, or utilizing sort of models based on influenza mutations as a model for mRNA vaccines. I'm like, that's exactly. Then they're going to tailor that to individuals who are possibly susceptible. Ah, it's, uh, it's a lot to take in. Um, but you can sort of see behind the scenes who are the main thought leaders, who are the main scientists, who are the you know the um, main um, politicians, uh, board members of various private corporations, you know the, the, the sort of get an idea of the context of how deep this really goes uh, in regards to all those individuals and sort of where they, how much it ties into unfortunately the roundtable groups and specifically especially um, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab's agenda in regards to this sort of um, transhumanistic future. It's just every three to six months to have to get a, another shot um, and then have these shots don't are not very efficacious already against the variants that exist, the Omicron and the sub variants of Omicron. They weren't the one. Um, uh, what is it? The Surgeon General, the, the lady on there is saying that they were much more effective against Delta and Alpha. That's dubious at best, potentially Alpha, but the data from Delta was not very uh, convincing otherwise, if I remember correctly. Of course, I'm going on now over a year ago. Um, so it's not, it wasn't just, you know, as far as it extending longer, the duration of, again, of course, she also references the fact that it, pre it prevents people from severe outcomes associated with COVID-19, but most people are going to survive whether they even uh, manifest the severe um, uh, symptoms of COVID-19. That's just the reality of COVID-19. I mean, the argument they use against people who take ivermectin is most people will survive anyways. Well, same for those who are vaccinated. So, you know, too cool K there a little bit. Be careful um, how you say that because you could throw that same argument against those who have been vaccinated. So how do we know the vaccines are really doing much of anything at all? You can measure uh, immunoglobulin. You can measure essentially uh, immune response in the blood stream, but that's very inefficient. And we know how problematic that can be because that's just an immediate response. We're talking about um, CD4, CD8, sort of your long-term white blood cell response, your, your memory cell response, T memory cell response to it. And that's harder to measure for. You can only get sort of a general measurement, so much like C-reactive protein, which measures inflammation in the body. And so it's, again, it, it, these 
The metrics we have for analyzing how effective the duration of the vaccine, whether natural immunity or vaccine-induced immunity, are very dubious, and it's very difficult to uh, understand and make sense of it. Um, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang had a really good um, talk in one of their uh, podcasts they did many, many months ago talking about the problem of understanding uh, duration of immunity, whether vaccine or naturally induced, and how problematic it is to measure for that, whether IgG or you know CD4, CD8, um, T cell and memory cell responses. So it's it's much more difficult than people realize. Much like it is just identifying a virus itself, um, it's very difficult to identify a virus. Um, uh, it requires ec- expertise in understanding genomic sequencing and electron microscopy, uh, and a whole host of other techniques. Um, for isolation and culturing and reintroducing hosts and these sorts of ideas. Um, and so, yeah, anyways, it gets, it gets difficult. Uh, that was long and we're getting kind of towards the end of the show. I do need to get to at least a brief intermission. Um, I need to get a couple of things on the record here. I think what we'll do is go to, uh, Kim Iverson's Biden's shots for tots, see what that's about. And I might play a Greg Reese and John Bounds sort of give, context or some of the other things that are going on in regards to the potential for the emergence of locked oh there's this jimmy door i really wanted to get to this it's the the individuals that conducted the um the uh, study on lockdowns that are associated with the johns hopkins university but are not it was not endorsed necessarily by johns hopkins um, they responded to the critiques and i really wanted to play that onto the show i don't know how important that is i think people can sort of uh, intuit that obviously lockdowns have had a deleterious effect on our society and the CDC has actually even admitted this as of recent and that we showed data in regards to that um, but uh, for people that are interested I certainly would check that out maybe we can play a little bit of it but let's quickly go to Kim Iverson and see if I have the stamina to come back and play a longer Jimmy Dore clip um, yeah so here we go We are delighted to welcome back Kim Iverson. Kim, how was your honeymoon? <laughs> it was amazing. I had an amazing time. So yes, now I'm, I'm married. I got married, uh, ran off, and we did our honeymoon the the very next morning. We we like fell asleep at two o'clock in the morning the night of the wedding. We had to be up at four a.m. to leave for our honeymoon. So um, we we just jetted off, and now I'm back and feeling great. So well, had a great well, time. Glad you had a great time. <laughs> Congratulations. We're very happy to see you back. Mm -hmm. But now we want to know what's on your radar. So tell us that. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, (laughs) shots for tots. That's on my radar. The campaigns to get six months to five-year-olds across the country, the COVID vaccine. Those, Those programs began rolling out these past couple of days after the FDA granted Moderna and Pfizer emergency youth use authorization. Now, local governments set up vaccination centers, politicians staged photo ops. Biden has been encouraging parents to get their toddlers the vaccine. But there's a problem. Parents don't seem to want it. News outlets across the country have been reporting about low turnout and empty centers. And you might expect that in certain parts of the country, like red states or in Florida, where Ron DeSantis didn't order any. But this was even happening in New York City. At a high-profile center set up in Times Square, the city's health commissioner came out with cameras, hoping to greet long lines of relieved, grateful parents, but instead saw the opposite, no lines and empty chairs. Turns out parents are not convinced their tots need the shots after all. So let's break down the actual risk for young children. 
the data or lack of data from the clinical trials and some of the frightening chatter about mandating the vaccines in order to bring up compliance. Though young kids have the lowest risk of severe COVID outcomes, they aren't at zero risk. Some kids have died. Since the beginning of the pandemic over two years ago, about 440 kids, four years old and younger, have died and thousands of kids have been hospitalized. But it is hard to know if any of this was because of COVID or with COVID. That distinction still hasn't been clarified after all this time. And it's because there isn't a uniform set of rules for how any hospital or county counts COVID deaths and hospitalizations. But let's just take the number at face value for the sake of the argument and say that these 440 kids did in fact die from COVID and nothing else. That's about 200 per year. Annually, according to the CDC, influenza kills anywhere between 50 to 200 kids under the age of five. And that's with 70, roughly about 70% of the kids in that group getting the flu shot. It's considered very rare for a toddler or an infant to die from the flu. Now compare this to car fatalities, which kill around 500 to 600 toddlers and infants per year. And that's with seatbelts and airbags. Even then, a child being killed in a car accident is still considered extremely rare. And though it happens, parents are not hesitating to load their kids up in the car and go places. So we can see there's a risk of a negative COVID outcome for this age group, but it is very, very low. You could then say we could maybe lower it even more with COVID vaccines, and theoretically that's certainly possible, but it's only theoretical. Plus there, there are all of the other unknowns like side effects. So now let's look at the data from the clinical trials. The clinical trials used to get these vaccines emergency use authorization were tiny. Moderna gave their vaccine to about 4,800 kids, five and under, and gave a placebo to about 1,500 kids. And Pfizer's was even smaller, with 992 kids, four and under, being given the actual vaccine and about 450 getting the placebo. None of the kids in any group ended up with severe COVID. So they can't make any claims whatsoever about whether or not these vaccines prevent hospitalizations or deaths. The only thing they could test for was symptomatic COVID. Which kids got the sniffles and a fever? That's what they looked for. Now, the Moderna trial showed with very low confidence that their vaccine seemed to prevent symptoms 50.6% of the time for the kids under two and 36.8% of the time for the kids between two and five. So it's 50-50 or less that if you get your kid vaccinated, the vaccine will prevent symptoms. And those results came with very low confidence. The confidence level was down to 12.5%. Now the Pfizer data was slightly better, but remember it was with a fraction of the participants. They showed after not one, not two, but three doses of their vaccine, it was 75% effective against symptomatic COVID, but their confidence levels were significantly worse than Moderna's. They're basically saying they really have no idea if the vaccine works to even prevent symptoms. They think it might. They're willing to place a small bet on it, but they have no idea at all whether or not the vaccine prevents hospitalizations or deaths. They also can't make claims about side effects. Of course, they do make claims. They say that there were no reports of serious side effects, but remember, the rate of myocarditis in teen boys is about one in 6,000. These trials didn't even have that many participants, so it's just no way to know. These trials did not test for long COVID. 
They did not test for multi-system inflammatory syndrome. They didn't test for anything other than whether or not the vaccinated kids got some sniffles, a fever, and a cough. That's it. They looked at the antibody levels induced by the vaccines and then assumed these levels mean the vaccine reduces severe COVID outcomes, but they don't know. It doesn't seem to matter to parents if they know or not because they aren't lining up in droves to vaccinate their kids. Now, it could be that parents don't feel the urgent need. When seroprevalence data shows over 70% of kids four and under have caught and recovered from COVID, many of them without any symptoms at all. And that's what makes this next part so frightening. Some doctors and worried parents are concerned about the low vaccine uptake for toddlers and children under 12 and are now advocating for the government to mandate COVID vaccines. They specifically want to make it impossible for kids to attend school or preschool without having gotten the jab. So far, it's just a small few calling for this, but we know how quickly these seemingly fringe ideas can grow. So what's interesting about this is, you know, we've got all these parents. um, They're not showing up. Politicians really put a lot of measures on kids, as we've seen throughout this pandemic. All because what now it kind of looks like is that there were just a lot of very loud, but very few parents who were screaming about masking children, which obviously did not work. We have 70 to 80 percent of school kids have already have gotten COVID based on seroprevalence. Now you've got these lawmakers that basically uh, pressured what it looks like pressured the FDA into approving these for emergency youth authorization without really any data at all and incredibly tiny clinical trials. And the parents aren't showing up. So it kind of makes you wonder, you know, who are the politicians actually listening to when they're making policy decisions? Is it these fringe few parents? Because where are they now if they believe that there was such a demand for this? Yeah. Well, yeah. I forgot to turn my mic on. Sorry about that. Um, I was just going to say... <laughs> Uh, you know, these fringe parents, Kim, I would say it's probably corporate lobbyists or, uh, you know, uh, corporate heads of some type, uh, scientists, researchers that are probably, um, you know, pushing the alarm in regards to making sure you vaccinate children, um, the sacrifice of children at this point. And it's, uh, without any evidence. Well, I mean, I think at this point we've exhausted all lines of research in regards to, uh, what's going on with this? There's no evidence for it. Uh, they can't even tell that there's, it's all they're testing for is presenting, preventing, excuse me, symptoms. Uh, they're not basing it on any sort of antibody response. If seroprevalence is over 70 to 80%, something like that, that means the masks and all the other effective measures that they implemented didn't work. And actually probably uh, we know had serious deleterious effects on the um, verbal uh, IQ, speech, uh, ability for uh, speech and uh, pattern recognition and just IQ in general, um, development of um, a whole host of developmental concerns in regards to facial muscles and, and speech and language and all that sort of thing. Um, this tragic on so many levels because the countermeasures, especially in place for children, were completely unnecessary or have a long-term, uh, like as I mentioned, deleterious effect on them. So in regards to all of that, it's, uh, and, you know, to her point as well, um, you know, Jeffrey Jackson really broke down the details and without her getting into the sort of like the pedantic sort of granular nitty gritty that uh, Jeffrey Jackson did, she was able to point out that if most children had it and they're only testing for symptoms and it's at best it's 50-50 whether or not it even stops the symptoms and the data supposedly, what, 440 or something like that, they claim have died. They can't say if it's died with COVID because of COVID, 470 
uh, people get struck by lightning every year, and yet we don't prevent ourselves from still going out in nature and, you know, uh, you know, just braving the sense of being and participating in life itself. This is so absurd. It's beyond absurd. But of course, there's a market and they have to get the market out there. And that's why when she says with a few friends, parents know it's scientists, it's researchers that are associated um, with either lobbying groups, uh, specifically for the pharmaceutical companies or politicians that are uh, in the pockets of these pharmaceutical companies are going to push it forward in regards to mandates when there's no evidence. And that's what's concerning is because the uptake's so low and they have projections in regards to how much they need to roll out to make sure they, they meet uh, a certain level for the shareholders. This is going to be, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not they try to mandate this. Wouldn't surprise me if they try to do this in a very sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of um, quiet, sort of tacit uh, implication by utilizing something like the school system or putting it as part of the childhood vaccination program. The problem with doing that is then it would have to be approved by the FDA and that's a problem. So you're going to have to change legislation in regards to the approval process of the FDA in order to get it on the vaccine schedule, unless you do some sort of finagling with the EUA. I mean, in order to finagle it onto the vaccine schedule so that children can then participate in the public school system, which we already know is terrible as it is, but a lot of parents are compromised. Well, divorce rates are very high in America. One parent believes and the you know is a sort of normie. Another parent is against that. That's a very common consideration. Other parents that are together that recognize this is not a substantial threat to their children are in a situation where they both have to work and are probably living paycheck to paycheck. So they have to send their kid to sort of government sponsored schooling. A lot of parents are compromised in their ability to just remove their kids out of school, which is the number one thing all parents should be considering. So it's a, it's a major problem. Um, and it's not an easy one to necessarily solve. And they tried to finagle with the EUA or change legislation in regards to FDA authorization and to, to force it onto children through vac- the vaccine schedule for children that is going to be that that's exactly what i imagine the game plan will be um but i don't think that i think that's going to be met with tremendous resistance both in the house and senate but also with uh just parents i mean they're trying to the fact that a a concerned mother who has been blogging about the ineffectiveness and the problems associated with masking children and the lockdowns and the, the mental health effects and the verbal effects I mentioned and the IQ effects and all and developmental effects in general was able to showcase how um, how inaccurate the data is or how decontextual, maybe not inaccurate, but how decontextualized the data is that they're using to report that the children, it's a top five in some cases, top four leading cause of death with children. It's this is just so such levels of obnoxiousness at this point. It's it's borderlining on the realm of complete absurdity. Um, it as far as far tr- transcends just sort of a, a sort of a, a simple uh, understanding of evil at this point. Anyways, I want to get to. I don't have a lot of time left. It's three in the morning. Keep it going for a little bit longer. See how much. Uh, cr- mental stamina I have don't have much left but we'll I'll go as far as long as I can I do want to get this Jimmy Dore thing on the record I think we've exhausted there's a Greg Reese clip and there's a John the John Bowen clip on my plate but the Greg Reese is fantastic but he just goes on about the the the, the shots being 
uh, under EUA for children six months or older, six months or five-year-olds. And um, he goes into more detail about that. And so for people want to check that out, we always support Greg Reese. He does great work. But I think we're going to go to this Jimmy Dore clip because I'm interested to see how these individuals have responded to the paper they authored in regards to lot, the ineffectiousness in efficacy, excuse me, it's getting late, of uh, lockdowns. And this comes from the, I forget the individuals. I know they're associated with the Cato Institute, at least one or two of them. So, um, but they were, they run their own, um, uh, institute that's associated with Johns Hopkins out of the school of economics of Johns Hopkins. And there have been some interesting, um, critiques of their work. And I'm curious to see how they respond to that. Cause I've been waiting to see if they would at all. So without further ado, let's go to Jimmy door. We'll come back for John Bowen. Then we'll get to what will be a small intermission. And then we'll probably close it up after that. Maybe play a clip, a small clip or two. Um, so without further ado, let's go to Jimmy Dore. So I remember we covered this. Johns Hopkins did a story. They did a, not a story. John Hopkins did a story. John Hopkins did a comedy sketch. No, John Hopkins University. This is from them. Uh, and it's, what they did was they crunched the numbers on a bunch of different story, uh, studies to see if the COVID lockdowns actually saved lives. And we reported it. And here was the headline in the Washington Times. Lockdowns had little or no impact on the COVID-19 deaths. A new study shows. So I'm just going to recap it for you because there's been updates. There's been new information on this. The lockdowns during the early phase of the pandemic in 2020 reduced COVID-19 mortality by about 0.2%, said a broad review of multiple scientific studies. We find no evidence that lockdowns, schools closures, border closures, and limiting gatherings have had a noticeable effect on COVID-19 Mortality, the researchers wrote, but the research paper said lockdowns did have devastating effects on the economy and contributed to numerous social ills. They have contributed to reducing economic activity, raising unemployment, reducing schooling, causing political unrest, contributing to domestic violence and undermining liberal democracy. Researchers at the Imperial College of London, for example, they predicted that if we did COVID lockdowns, it the death rates, it would reduce them by 98%. So keep this in mind. This is very important. The Imperial College of London predicted that if we did those COVID lockdowns, it would reduce death rates by 98%. That never happened. That's according to a new study by researchers Stephen Hankey, John Herbie, and Lars Yonig at the Johns Hopkins. Okay. Indeed, we do find some evidence that limiting gatherings was counterproductive and increased COVID-19 mortality. So that paper came out. That was called a working paper. It wasn't yet peer-reviewed. That's how that's the process. And then this doctor went on Tucker Carlson and mentioned it. He mentioned that Johns Hopkins paper. And then all of a sudden, this paper got, this uh, press release came from the Science Media Center. And it was trying to counter or debunk that Johns Hopkins study. It says, expert reaction to a preprint looking at the impact of lockdowns as posted on the Johns Hopkins Krieger School of Arts and Sciences website. And then Snopes, which We've showed you that Snopes is not a fact-checking organization. None of these organizations that claim to be fact-checkers 
are fact checkers. They're people who are paid by billionaires and corporations that have a political agenda, and then they just disagree with your conclusions. So they don't actually check your facts. They check your conclusions, and then they disagree with your political position. That's not a fact check. And so that's what Snopes did. And so let me bring in the author of the studies. Uh, Stephen Hankey is a professor of applied economics and founder and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise at the John Hopkins Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Jamie. So now, what was here? Let me just read what the 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 problem with these people. Tell me right now, what was the problem with this this press release that came out to try to um, discredit your your paper? Now, the, okay. the go ahead. Okay, the the that press release came out on February third. 2000, uh, 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 2022, <laughs> and uh, it was had four authors, actually. Uh, three of them were associated with the Imperial College of London, uh, virologists there, and the fourth person was Professor Patton from the University of Nottingham. Now, the Imperial College of London crowd was quite critical mm -hmm of our study. They, they had five kind of scientific points that they wanted to raise that they criticized us about. And those five points, they didn't read our working paper very carefully, Jimmy, because we, we covered, we, we, we protected our text and, 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 and there was really no problem with those five criticisms. But then when you so, go to Patton, let me just, and, and those five, those let me just five, interrupt first. Let me just interrupt for one second, just so people are yeah. clear on the what's happening. So uh, these people, the Science Media Center, uh, three out of the four authors of that came from the Imperial College. And why is that important? Because the Imperial College were the ones that made the predictions that COVID lockdowns would reduce the death rate by 98%. So the Johns Hopkins paper debunked that, incredibly debunked it. Like that was a crazy okay. prediction and they okay. were wrong. Okay, this is an important point you're raising, uh, Jimmy. And that is on March 16, 2020, the Imperial College of London came out with a uh, 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 results indicating that if you didn't lock down, uh, we were going to lose a lot of people. And and when we're talking about a lot of people, they estimated that the deaths avoided would be between, in the U.S., for example, just in the U.S., would be between 1.7 and 2.2 million people. So, so it's, a, it's a huge number. And they did the same thing for England. And in the UK, they said uh, that there would be 510,000 deaths avoided if if they locked down. And if they didn't lock down, obviously we're going to have you know almost a half a million people dying in the UK. The next day, the politicians in the UK locked down based on that study. So you have to ask. This gets into a very interesting sequence of things in the UK because this Imperial College of London crowd, they have these models that spin out kind of fantasy numbers about the number of people that will be killed due to one thing or another. 
If you look at 2001, I've gone back to look at their work and examine it. 2001, they said that the UK foot and mouth epidemic would end up on a daily basis going up to a peak of about 420 cases, daily cases. Well, the peak was 50. So they were way off on that. And, and the big problem with that is they slaughtered 10 million animals as a result of that scare. Then in 2002, they come out with another study on mad cow disease, and they say that 150,000 people are going to kick the bucket uh, as a result of mad cow. Well, 178 actually died. Then 2005, they, they said up to around 200 million people would die of bird flu worldwide, and actually 456 died. <laughs> then 2009, we've got wow. them claiming 65,000 people could die of swine flu. Well, 500 did. So you, you get the picture of what's going on. So, so the so people at the Imperial up, College have been wrong consistently on a grand predictive basis. They've been wrong right. by in, incredibly wrong. So, and so you ask, well, what's going on? Well, these, these are scientific people with big credentials. There's no question about it. And, and they're virologists. They have a model. And, and they, put the, they put the data in the model and run the model and make a projection. And, and this is the old garbage in, garbage out kind of problem. We, in our meta study, Jimmy, that you just summarized, we looked at a actual measurements. These, these aren't models. These are like a natural experiment. What happened actually when they locked down in country A, B, and C? And, and then we come up with the numbers. So if you combine all these studies, which we did, and the, the key number, let's just get down to something people can grasp very easily. In the United States, the, the worst case scenario was one in, in which 16,000 deaths would have been avoided in the spring of 2020 due to lockdowns. Six, that sounds like a big number, 16,000, but put it into perspective. In the US, the average number of flu deaths every year is 72,000. So, so the COVID thing, the saving of deaths with lockdowns, these various lockdown measures, it's peanuts compared to just the normal flu. So, so you put it, you put in these these policies, you get the maximum benefit, and on average, you're saving sixteen thousand lives. When, when in fact, a normal flu season, you're losing seventy two thousand people. And so the point is that the amount of lives that were saved, even on their model, was a very low and not not statistically significant. Well, the the no, the the number saved in reality is very low. The number in their model is is mega high. If you look at their model, their their model relative to what happened in the real world, what we found in our meta analysis. The number of deaths they have is 135 times higher, they're predicting, than actually happened. So, uh, so, so I just so, so the big problem, uh, 
but they their criticism of you. So the big problem with this and other people like Snopes basing their articles on this is that the people who wrote this were the ones who've been wrong about everything from the uh, and 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 that they don't did they mention that? Do they mention that? Hey, by the way, we're part of the group that uh, we had the wrong. No, no, they, no they didn't. The, the thing about Snopes and the fact checking USA Today, it's just not Snopes. All these fact checkers, you put your finger on it. They they cherry pick and, and massage and come up with their own narrative about what, what they want to uh, tell their story. And if you look at the and the scientific media center release they they canceled professor patton from the university of nottingham he had four things to say about our study he, he said that here, it was a significant contribution here, it was very transparent uh it, it, here i it, actually it, have it, it written down let me read it I, here's what okay you, so you're, the, you're on top of the thing yeah so the um the press release that they released trying to discredit you and your and your paper. The post-science media center critiques are clearly based, uh, biased as they all exclude any mention of Pro Professor Patton's favorable appraisals of our working paper. For example, Professor Patton made the following four points in Science Media Center. Key to a systematic review like this are the sets of search and exclusion criteria. The paper is very transparent about which is about this, which is good. They focus on difference and difference, uh, difference and difference empirical studies, i.e. they look at papers which compare the impact of an intervention on mortality by looking before and after, but relative to other areas which did not have the intervention. As a result, modeling studies like the well-known Flaxman Nature paper are excluded. That is not controversial. So one of the critiques that the people were making was that you were excluding data that uh, would debug that would go against what you wanted to conclude and this right here he's saying no that that is not controversial that you excluded certain things that's what that's saying that's what that's saying and 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 what we excluded was the models these these models that turn out fantasy numbers we were looking jimmy at literally at the real world mm -hmm. we looked at what we looked at only the studies that actually dealt with real world numbers and we started by the way by reviewing 19,646 studies then we did a, a lot of screening and we got it down to 32 studies that could potentially be used in, in a scientific way as we've done it and of those 32 we only ended up with 22 that we could convert to standard measures make them comparable come up with the numbers, aggregate things in a meta study as you're supposed to be doing in a meta study. So we looked at thousands of studies that were out there. We ended up with 22 that passed the test. And those 22 we evaluated in, in detail. And as you see, the new paper that we have, it's 105 pages long. I mean, it's clearly not the kind of thing you want to read before driving, you know. Look at these summary points that you're making here this this first patent thing is critical we're very transparent we said exactly what we did yeah. any anyone reading the paper would would know this so the second point he makes is the result is pretty consistent with other non-systemic reviews e.g. Irvy and Allen, 
which is reassuring. It is also consistent with the few studies which look at the impact on overall excess mortality. So these are two very positive things he's saying about your your paper. And he goes on to say, more marginal, in my view, is their exclusion of synthetic control method papers. Some of these papers find a significant impact of NPIs on mortality. So including them might have led to somewhat higher average mortality effects. The paper gives a robust defense of their exclusion, but I think you would get people on both sides of that debate. And then here's the final. He says, we engage... Here's what you say. You say we engage in a thorough review and revision of our paper, January 21st, 2022 working paper. We can report that one error of commission was found in the original. It was not detected by any fact checkers or by those we corresponded with, but by us. The error was a computational error that involved logarithms. It was small and did not materially affect our results. So, this so this seems to debunk all the criticisms that they had of you and the criticisms were this that the your study that paper about lockdowns was not the work of the university itself and it was not peer reviewed and it was not written by an epidemiologist and a number of researchers have also taken issue with the methods used in the study so we just showed you that the methods you used other uh uh uh, professors of note have said it was perfectly fine. So that's, yeah. that's let me make just uh, let me make just a couple comments about this. Johns Hopkins doesn't endorse research. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins. I'm probably the most senior professor at Johns Hopkins University. I'm in my fifty third year here, and the university does not endorse studies. So this is this is a phony thing anyway, and 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 it's done by economists, not. Virologist. Well, meta studies are usually done by social scientists like like economists. That's who does this kind of aggregation work. We know the study was a working paper. It was published at my Johns Hopkins Institute, and it's a working paper. We say it's it's very clear to anyone who knows anything about science. Working papers are not peer reviewed. They're put out there to be chewed over, refined, so that ultimately you can submit a paper to a peer-reviewed journal or have it published by a publishing house, which is exactly what we're doing. We, we followed the, the scientific protocol to the T on this, anticipating that we might have controversial results, Jimmy. We, we actually filed a protocol which we filed on in July, a nine-page protocol that was in July of 2021, six months before we actually published our study, saying exactly what we were going to do. So if anyone wanted to criticize our methodology, they could even before we started doing the study. So all this criticism is easily debunked, right? So I we've so our our audience knows how fact checkers go. We've, we've debunked them. In fact, John Stossel, uh, through a lawsuit, got Facebook to admit that their fact checkers aren't actually fact checkers. They're just people with opinions that differ. And that's what that was in court. So uh, and so these people who claim to be fact checkers, the people at uh, Snopes or factcheck.org or whatever, or USA, they're not fact checkers. These are uh, these are people who this, have this. this. 
Go ahead. This is this. They, they have an agenda. They have a. They have an agenda, and and most of it is absolute rubbish. That's my experience. And what's going on with this Imperial College of London thing? The reason they reacted, by the way, and put out that press release the day after Dr. Macri, who who, uh, who who is a colleague of mine, he's a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. And by the way, the reason they say Johns Hopkins and attribute any study dealing with medical or public health issues coming from Johns Hopkins, Hopkins has such a big name that it, they don't put the professor's name and all of a sudden it gets evolves into and transformed into a Johns Hopkins study. Why do you say Johns Hopkins, Jimmy? Because you know it carries weight. And that's why that's why the thing came out as Johns Hopkins. It, it was published by my Johns Hopkins Institute, but you know, the, the authors kind of disappear into the sunset when you're dealing with this kind of thing. But let me let me indicate why the Imperial College of London jumped on it the next day after the Tucker Carlson program, they got worried. They, they got worried they were going to be undercut. And, and they put out this press release because they knew this study we did was getting legs worldwide. I mean, it, ended, it was in the White House. It was in the Congress. And, 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 and it had been given a great shout out by, by Marty Macri on, on Tucker Carlson. So it's the fear machine. The Imperial College and the virologists, they're running a fear machine and they know they can get a policy response because politicians and, and the one who put his finger on this a long time ago is the sage of Baltimore, H.L. Mencken. He, he wrote that the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. That's what the whole thing is about. Politicians get power if they can scare the pants off of everybody. And those Imperial College of London fantasy numbers are big and they scare, they scare everybody. And so this is very, very similar to the Great Barrington Declaration where that they had a counter narrative than the establishment did that was funded by big pharma so what fauci and collins at the nih was and the people at the who were recommending the great barrington declaration they had a different view of how to handle covid and how to handle lockdowns and how to protect people so immediately as we've covered on this show what they did is they don't they didn't engage the ideas of the great barrington declaration they wrote smear pieces to try to discredit the scientists as fringe crazy people even though they're from harvard and stanford and the most respectable places in the world. So that was their that's their play. Their play is if you go against the establishment narrative, which is what your paper did, they they try to discredit you immediately and that's exactly what they tried to do and they did it in a disingenuous way and then they get bought uh, corporate bought fact checkers like Snopes, which by the way the founder of Snopes had to resign because he was revealed he's a serial plagiarist. I don't know if people know that about Snopes, but that's the that's the level of uh, integrity you have at these fact checking organizations. So this is very much like that. Would you agree? Go ahead. I I, I can I, I completely agree with you, Jimmy. Uh, and, and let me indicate why I really got started on this thing with with Lars Yonig, who's an old colleague of mine. We've written a couple of books. 
actually on, on Russian currency and finance in 1991 and 1992. But we, we got interested in this because remember Sweden, Sweden had a kind of a laissez-faire approach. Right. They didn't lock down and they were, they were getting hammered by the press when, when this thing started. So Lars Young and I looked into it and lockdowns, as it turns out, I'm going back to the, the great constitution in Sweden, 1634. I'm going to quote from chapter two, article eight, which states that, and everyone shall be protected in their relations with the public institutions against the deprivations of personal liberty. All Swedish citizens shall also, in other respects, be guaranteed freedom of movement within the realm and freedom to depart from the realm. That means lockdowns in Sweden would have been unconstitutional. That's why they did it. It's in the 1634 Constitution. We don't have that in the United States. And most other countries don't. So the, 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 this thing in Sweden was done for constitutional reasons. And so what was the result in Swiss? So Sweden didn't do lockdowns. I remember we covered it. And a lot of people, of course, uh, were very angry at Sweden for doing that and trying to make them try to disparage them. What were the actual results? The, the actual results of it, it turned out to be excellent. They, they made some mistakes at the beginning, and, and, but right now, if you look at the overall results, very good compared to all their peers. Sweden, Sweden is, is, is actually a star in the whole universe when it comes to this COVID and lockdown uh, business. Especially the way they've handled, handled schools. Uh, their, their children uh, were... Uh, didn't get oh, locked down. Absolutely, we we haven't. We've only talked, Jimmy, about the potential benefits of locking down, and the potential benefits we find all the empirical work is it, it's it's de minimis. It's almost no benefit from a public health saving people's lives point of view. But if you look at the cost, the costs are enormous. You shut the economy down in anybody. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out we're talking about trillions of dollars. Look, look, just what I have here. I'm, I have today's Financial Times I'm holding up. Let me just read the, what, what the headline is. Tour, tourism in Southeast Asia. The region's economies enjoy strong rebound from ending COVID restrictions. That suggests that there were a lot of costs. If they have a strong rebound, they must have been down in the in the dumps, right? Due due to all the restrictions. So we know the costs have been enormous. The benefits are de minimis. So that's why we said that lockdowns should be ignored and rejected out of hand. That that's it. That's the story. 
And that was that was as far as my reading of the Great Barrington Declaration. They were they were for targeted protection and targeted lock. Not you don't lock down an entire economy. You take people who are vulnerable to that specific strain of coronavirus and you and you lock them down. You protect them. You give them extra protection. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the elderly because the average age of death for uh, COVID is over eighty, over the life expectancy. That's the average age. Also, as Bill as Bill uh, Gates even admitted that it's a disease with low fatality that affects mostly the elderly and people with comorbidities. So if we would have just targeted it, we wouldn't have to didn't have to inflict all this pain on everybody. And and by the way, even the way they did the lockdowns made absolutely no sense. I made the point oh, time and time again on this show that why is it I can't go buy a baseball mitt at my local sporting goods store on the corner of my block that has one or two people working inside during COVID they had to close down, but I could order it from Amazon. And Amazon had a thousand people working inside of a fulfillment center. So why were they allowed to sp- spread COVID, but we weren't allowed to go into my local? Sp- so that's just one example. There's a million of them like that. So you had to close your store down, your mom and pop store, but Target got to stay open. Walmart got to stay open. That doesn't make any sense, does it? No. Uh, what, 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 what we're getting at here in this conversation, okay, we did a big scientific study, followed all the protocols, all the rules and everything else. You you and I are talking about common sense and reality. And and, and every one of these examples you're giving, it's just common sense. And and what you find out, by the way, in in the COVID and and other uh, pandemics is that there's a lot of voluntary behavior that takes care of these things and, and mitigates the problem. If you look at the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu, it starts in New York City. Okay, it's, it's killing a lot of people. And, and it's, it's on the wire services. It's in the newspapers out west, out in Chicago, out in Denver and so forth. So what do people do? the death rate was a lot lower as you move from New York City and move west because people see the news. They, they voluntarily adjust themselves and, 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 and they know they don't want to be in big crowds, for example, because they might, they might get it. So, so you get a lot of voluntary behavior that takes care of things. And, that, and that's actually what happened in Sweden, by the way. Sweden had very good public information about the dangers associated with COVID. And people, they went to school, school stayed open, but they were careful. And um, no fatalities in, in uh, school-aged children in Sweden. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that's what I remember. I've recovered this, and there were no fatalities. And I don't even know if there was a hospitalization uh, from COVID. Um, so uh, what is th- so when something like this happens, I'm always curious. So, like, um, you write this paper. It's a working paper. And then uh, it, it goes against the establishment narrative. It kind of blows it up. And then you start a, a bunch of hit pieces that are disingenuously criticizing your paper, not doing it in the correct way, and uh, and hiding certain information. And what is the effect of that on you at Johns Hopkins? Like, what is, what is like the atmosphere there? Do, do people try to distance themselves from you, or does everybody know it's a joke? 
Oh, it, it has absolutely zero effect on me. I, I, you know, I've been around 53 years at Johns Hopkins. I, I know how, I, I know how to bob and weave, <laughs> deal with these things if necessary. But it, it doesn't affect me personally uh, 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 in, in any way. And I don't, and Lars Yonig and Jonas Herbie, it, it doesn't affect them. It, we, we just go about our business. We did the first version of the working paper. We got all, a lot of comments, by the way, uh, that we haven't talked about, a lot of good technical comments. We made adjustments. We, we made the second version much easier to read. The tables are all better. There were, we only found really one tiny error that I told you, that computational thing with logarithms, which didn't have any material effect on anything. We cleaned the thing up. It is now under review and will be published as a, as a short book, a monograph. And we also have written up a much shorter, about 30-page journal article that's that's it's a peer-reviewed journal. It's being the reviewers are reviewing it right now. So this is this standard operating procedure for me. You you just this this is this is what research is all about. And so uh you're you're gonna release this as a book? Yes. Okay, great. So when that comes out, I'd love to have you back on. We can die. So this this is still not done making its mark, right? Your work is still um, there. Still is more to more people are going to talk about it going forward, right? This, more, this isn't more people over. are going to talk about it, and 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 there are uh, members of parliament in, in the UK who 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 have talked about it, by the way, and will be talking about it in, in the coming weeks and months. And maybe we can break this chain that goes from the Imperial College sphere machine directly into the UK Parliament uh, on the BBC and all the rest of it and, and uh, call it what it is. I mean, they're, they're models. I mean, they might be great models, but the models are just, they've been consistently way off the mark. I mean, their their estimate is is 135 times higher the number of deaths than actually were were occurring. Uh, did it? No. Uh, this is from my memory, but I'm pretty sure. Didn't they say? Didn't they predict something like um, in the fir- in 2020 in the first uh, half of the year that like something like. Uh, ninety nine thousand deaths would happen if they didn't do lockdowns. Well, we did do lockdowns, and ninety seven thousand people died. Was it? It was. Yeah. It was well, something here, like that. I, I have actually the the relevant. Uh, you, you can spin their thing and look at it several different ways. But what they said that in their modeling, they said that the number of deaths avoided in the U.S. due due to lockdown. If you lock down. You will avoid 1.7 million to 2.1 million deaths. In fact, we know we we're at 16,000 that were actually avoided by lockdowns. Uh boy, that that that's a big. Disc- so that's enough. They, they again, they they said lockdowns would avoid 1.7 to 2.2 to 2.2 million deaths. We actually avoided 16,000. Uh, I can't wait to hear people say that on the nightly news. I can't wait for that to get to come out of their lips, and I wonder if it ever will. Yeah, 
Yeah, not don't hold your breath, Jimmy. Yeah, I wonder if it ever will. I mean, we've covered on this the power of the propaganda of the corporate owned media. I mean, that's what people don't realize that big pharma makes so much money that they have enough money to buy the politicians and buy the corporate media. And that's exactly and they all that's exactly what happens. And uh, just what, look what they did with ivermectin, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning human medicine from 2015. It's on the WHO list of essential medicines. And they made people in the United States think it was some kind of horse poison. And you were crazy if you took it, even yeah. though it's been prescribed billions of times and saved millions of, of lives already. And so that's the power of propaganda. They can make you think an essential medicine is poison. And now they can make you think that lockdowns, even though you've done the work and exposed them, that they don't save lives are still necessary. Yeah, well, Jimmy, here you, here's what I always tell my students: the first day, first day of a class or a seminar, Hankey's ninety-five percent rule is ninety-five percent of what you read in the press is either wrong or irrelevant. What uh, I, and and being in this space, I realize you're hundred percent right about that. It's crazy the this amount of misinformation. Just so that's why, yeah, we could we could talk about this all day, but. Uh, listen, that was, uh, I appreciate you doing this study. I appreciate you coming on to, uh, debunk your, de your fake fact checkers. And, um, I can't wait to see, you know, the more waves that your work does. I will. And once it gets printed, once it gets peer reviewed, um, I think it will, uh, I hope, hopefully it will have a bigger impact and it will expose the charlatans uh, that were lying about it and lying about COVID and uh, disparaging scientists like your uh, and and uh, and professors like yourself who had a counter narrative. So, if there's anything else you want to add before I leave? No, I, I uh, thank you for inviting me on. I enjoyed very much our session, and I look forward to seeing you on chapter two. Yes, I can't wait. Uh, Stephen H. Hankey, thank you so much for your, uh, your work and thanks for coming on. And we'll, we look forward to your book. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, we're doing stand updates. That was a, uh, let's see what I got here. Uh, the right, no, that's correct. Okay. That was a good analysis. I appreciate that follow up. Um, it was good to get in, uh, some of the critiques sort of ironed out in regards to, um, what was pushed, put forward about the meta-analysis, about the studies they chose, um, about the, you know, how they went about giving weight to certain studies. You know, he, he sort of addressed all that. And apparently a lot of it was already addressed in the study itself. I'm curious as well, and I'm, I would like to see, uh, you know, what their book says and what the peer review ultimately comes out with and more critique and discussion, debate around it. Um, I think it's a very important topic, and hopefully in the future, well, I'm not going to hold my breath, um, hopefully in the future it will impact policy uh, decision making in regards to how we deal with the potential for pandemic scenarios uh, in regards to the deleterious effects as i mentioned of lockdowns that are i've mentioned this before but it's going to be very hard to measure the effect uh or, or measure the total effect i should say of locking down a nation or much of the world uh because many of them are going to be there it's not so much that it's anecdotal but it's hard to sort of gain an insight into conducting studies, especially large epidemiological studies and, you know, large questionnaire-based studies, in other words, to get a sense of, like, the impact. We'll be able to look at the money, the transfer of wealth, which uh, some have projected has been the greatest since the time of the pharaohs, so it would have been thousands and thousands of years ago, but uh, we're not going to such extreme 
cases, there's been the greatest transfer of wealth in uh, modern history um, to a very small coterie of already rich billionaires, uh, where we're talking about Bezos um, or others like him, uh, pharmaceutical giants, uh, the, the Borlas and the, the Boncells and so forth and so on. Uh, there's just so many individuals, not to mention the, the Vanguard and BlackRock and the Larry Finks of the world and uh, Karstens who you know, profit off of having a, a major investment into various you know large corporations as well um, that we all were forced to go to. I mean, it's the perfect example of what fascism is, public-private cooperation, and that's largely what was done. We shut down the, uh, businesses deemed certain to be essential. And uh, they happen to be the fulfillment centers of Amazon, for example, as Dor pointed out. And so you can see how this oligarchical, uh, uh, maniacally oligarchical machine runs, and how rather how maniacal it is, I should say. And um, yeah, it, it goes along in, in tandem with all the other things that we comment on here in GTW in regards to the larger narrative. What's the larger agenda out of this? And we know what the World Economic Forum is trying to do with stakeholder capitalism, this very sort of like pseudo-corporatist communist approach to a top-down tyranny through a, a technocratic dictatorship. And they utilize COVID-19. As Klaus Schwab literally said, um, this would be the, the perfect uh, time to introduce a great reset. My mute. My mic is off mute. Thank God. Okay, um, I'm running on fumes, so I need to get maybe two more clips here, and I think we're gonna call it. Unfortunately, this was a really good week for clips in regards to there's a lot of narratives we could have gotten into. We didn't even get to the Ukraine and Russia situation, but I think people will get an idea of what's going on there. Um, but there were some good clips about some of the fallout that's starting to happen in Europe. I mentioned. There are as well, um, obviously Roe v. Wade. That's a discussion that. Uh, that's a longer form discussion i think that will need to be had when rich gets back or when lds back so forth and so on um about the state of the culture why this happened now on the eve of midterms well almost the eve of midterm elections it's very strange there's a lot of different um larger analyses that could be done in regards to sort of galvanizing a certain base uh that otherwise wasn't going to be incentivized to come out in november and vote um so there's there's a lot of different ways we could analyze that and and discuss it that's this whole thing we're not going to get to that this week uh we luke radowski obviously touched upon it early in the show there's uh beyond that there are uh, two powerful intermission pieces we're going to play i'm going to play just a small snippet of one so we're going to go to john bound john bound hasn't done productions for like the past four to six weeks so i um, want to get him on the record uh welcome back john bound you know we greatly appreciate his work and he's going to talk about lockdowns and the future for lockdowns, future of lockdowns um, as we move into right now just began summer. So next six months, we move into fall and winter. Um, and uh, Nick Bryant joined Jason Burmis and had a discussion about uh, um, sort of pedophile organizations, the Franklin cover up, this Utah scandal, very powerful interview very difficult to digest uh wanted to play that as an intermission piece but that's going to be a little bit too much instead we're going to play uh whitney webb interrogating cold war ii talking about this facade of this multipolar alliance uh between russia and china that some have been promoting uh which to me is just uh mind-bogglingly strange considering that our multinationals uh corporations have largely built up china and to some degree, Russia and Russia is controlled by the like a, a oligarch that just isn't necessarily privy to what's going on in the West. 
Putin's a young global leader, a 92 class, I believe, um, how he's com in complete lots lockstep, by the way, with the COVID narrative and how he ended up trying to enforce that hegemony on his own population. Uh, this, the fact they fact practice the, the same fractional reserve fiat currency system in China, the fact that most of it's propped up, we have intimate connections of Rothschilds all over the place, Rothschilds, Rockefellers, you know, the old school money fan financiers and large investment firms today um, that have largely built up China's infrastructure and the model of what they want, which is a sort of transhumanistic, uh, technocratic, Jeremy Bentham style panopticon control system. So I am very excited to see this critique of this. Uh, unfortunate that some people get lost in this narrative of multipolar alliance when it's really, if anything, the East is built up thanks to the Anglo-American establishment, thanks to the same people that Rich and I comment on uh, seemingly show in and show out in regards to the capital, the ideology, the roundtable groups and their, their philosophy and how they're implementing this. Um, China's been the model for like decades. They've been wanting since the 1970s uh, with the Trilateral Commission and specifically Henry Kissinger uh, opening up um, with uh, um, Nixon and then later on with Nelson Rockefeller, not to mention that, not to forget that, later on actually in the late 70s, opening up to China and allowing for the free flow of capital from the West to China to build up their infrastructure. So it's unfortunate some people get lost in this idea that the Chinese, especially the CCP of all political organizations, are actually a hedge against the Anglo-American establishment. They are completely in bed with the Anglo-American establishment. Even if they see the, see themselves as using the Anglo-American establishment or this this philosophy, this, this money power has existed now for well over a century, um, they're so interconnected that there's no way they're going to be able to break from it, even if they're believing that they're somehow going to be able to use them and then throw them away. So I'm very excited to introduce. And that's the clip we're going to play after we go to John Bowne. I'm going to first go to John Bowne. I think I'm just going to go from John Bowne into the Whitney Webb clip called interrogating cold war it's with castor and Austin fitz austin fitz excuse me and two other individuals off the top of my head i can't remember but she does a round table talking about some of the issues in regards to uh this this new narrative of this cold war 2.0 that's been emerging so i uh am excited to introduce whitney webb um she obviously is i, I agree with uh uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. in regards to being the greatest investigative journalist of our time. And I'm excited to see what she has to say in this roundtable, not just herself, but the other members of the roundtable she conducted. So first, we're going to go to John Bound, then we're going to go to intermission with Whitney Webb. And I'm going to come back and just provide a little bit of commentary, and then we're going to uh, close it up for the evening because it's already probably past. Oh, my God, it's almost four in the morning. So I'm only going to be playing about 15 or 20 minutes of an hour and a half discussion with Whitney Webb. Really encourage people to go check it out. And if you have the stomach for it, at some point, go check out uh, Jason Burmes's Nick Bryant interview that he conducted. Um, it's much more harrowing and disgusting and uh, troubling, but um, very important to understand what the lovers of power really look like and what their interests are, what very powerful people are interested in that Luke alluded to in regards to uh, Ghislaine Maxwell being on suicide watch and uh, Epstein, obviously, um, and his connections to very powerful individuals and, uh, you know, what was going on with that whole situation. So we're going to go to John Bound, then Whitney Webb. I'll come back with some commentary and we'll wrap up the show. So here we go. Uh, John Bound, give me two seconds to bring this up. Here we go. Joe Biden, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, all the usual suspects. 
are telling us that a new pandemic and lockdowns are imminent. Prepare for the next one. That, you know, I'd say is, uh, will get attention this time. Let's look at lockdowns. Cost us trillions of dollars. And, uh, you know, we're paying for that now with super high inflation. And I, I think I'm interested in when Johns Hopkins uh, comes out with a study that said basically that didn't have any impact on mortality. And I don't know that that study addressed what mortality might have been impacted in terms of deferring other, uh, you know, health care. Uh, can we take lockdowns off the table uh, in terms of what we do in the future? I can't say because I don't know what that future holds for us. What about the study that Johns Hopkins did? Because we're always saying pay attention to the science. I'm not familiar with that study, sir. The most recent data demonstrates that you are more likely to become infected or have disease or even death if you've been vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated people. This is shocking to hear, but it is what the data are showing us. The data now show that these experimental gene therapy treatments can damage your children as well as yourself. They can damage your heart, your brain, your reproductive tissue, and your lungs. This can include permanent damage and disablement of your immune system. As the world plunges into financial crisis via hyperinflation. All of what we are seeing play out in Europe right now is an upsetting of the balance of the world order as they want it, as people like Dr. Harari, as people like Klaus Schwab and others. Bill Gates is another one. So we have to understand that these are people that are very smart, they're very well resourced, yep. and they have a and they have a very sort of strategic idea of how they want to see the world develop. And and God and a and a soul are not part of that uh, strategy. Well, there's all the symptoms of the disease that is the new world order and globalism. And so the big question is, how do we tackle globalism? How do, how do we expose globalism? How do we dismantle and prosecute globalism? And then separately, how do we recognize the fruits of globalism to wake up our friends, family, neighbors, and strangers so they understand why their lives are getting very bad, why crime is increasing, why they're going bankrupt? What is the worst thing they're doing? What is the number one thing they're doing that we need to stop? Devaluing the currencies, defunding the police, dissolving the borders, coming after our guns, launching war with Russia, preparing to release new bioweapons. But you know, they're not really preparing to release new bioweapons. They are releasing new bioweapons or targeting a new group of people with their bio nanotech weapon. And that is babies six months old and up. Texas Children's Hospital started administering some shots yesterday. These vaccines are for those kids ages six months through four years. And because this group just received clearance from the Food and Drug Administration, Dell Medical School is trying to calm worried parents. The corrupt FDA had three different rounds of resignations, firings, off their board the last year and a half because the board would not even authorize authorizing these experimental injections for anybody. So they had one board resign, or large portions of it. Then they got new people on and said, now we're gonna go down to age 16, and a bunch of them said no. Now we're gonna add boosters and shots every few months, no. 
And they've got a board now that unanimously voted to lie to the public and say that this works great, that it's a vaccine, and that it totally protects you. When it isn't a vaccine, it doesn't protect you, destroys your immune system, causes all sorts of serious problems, absolute organized evil, depopulation against the people of this planet. There's an old Bedouin. Is there an old Bedouin tale, Alex, saying? I want to get this on the record before we go to our final clip for the night. Uh, I've already gone over this at least once or twice before in the past, but for those who are unfamiliar, this is American Institute for Economic Research. This is, of course, Jeffrey Tucker. Um, and he gets into the modeling that has been done in regards to when we talk about uh, the critique he was offering in regards to um, the hanky and those critiquing him was the Imperial Science at London. The, uh, he gets into where this modeling came from in regards to pandemics of the past, H5N1, for example, which uh, Maddie and I referenced earlier. And if I remember correct, it's based on a f daughter of a man. So her name was Laura M. Glass. I forget the individual's name. Let me put this on screen. Uh, you know, I can't go into a super deep dive of this. I've already done it. A long time ago so we can check the, in those past episodes but um he gets into detail and we'll put paste post this in the show notes in regards to the origin of some of these model some of the modeling that's been used by these universities and uh these simulations so they it gets it basically was a high school science project uh by a, a woman named laura m glass because it would have been a kid at this point or a young adolescent and she recently declined to interview when the Albuquerque Journal did a deep dive of the history. Um, Laura, with some guidance from her dad, devised a computer simulation that showed how people, family members, co-workers, students in schools, people in social situations, make this bigger for everyone, interact. What she discovered was that school kids come in contact with about 140 people a day, more than any other group. Based on that finding, her program showed that in a hypothetical town of 10,000 people, 5,000 would be infected during a pandemic if no measures were taken, but only 500 would be infected if schools were closed. Laura's name appears on the foundational paper arguing for lockdowns and forced human separation. That paper is targeted social distancing designs for pandemic influenza, and that was 2006, around the time of H5M1. Uh, it set out a model for forced separation and applied it with good results backwards in time to 1957. Um, let me see here. Maybe, yeah. Um, so Laura's name, yeah. So, okay. It set out a model for forced separation. They conclude that a call, chilling call for what amounts to be a totalitarian lockdown, all stated very matter-of-factly. Implementation of social distancing strategies is challenging. They likely must be imposed for the duration of the local epidemic and possibly until a strain-specific vaccine is developed and distributed. Well, we all know what happens with strain-specific vaccines. Uh, they're not very effective, and they come with a host of problems. And not to mention, they also put selective pressure on the virus to mutate and actually shed the mutations rather than the normal strain. If the compliance with the strategy is high over this period, an epidemic within a community can be averted. However, if neighboring communities do not use the use these interventions, infected neighbors will continue to introduce influenza and prolong the local epidemic, albeit at a depressed level more easily accommodated by healthcare systems. Uh, in other words, it was a high school science experiment that eventually became law of the land and through a circuitous route propelled not by science but by politics or not by science, but politics. But the primary author of this paper was Robert J. Glass, which is Laura's father, 
a complex systems and analyst with Sandia National Laboratories. What a surprise. He had no medical training, much less an expertise in immunology, epidemiology. In other words, he's a modeler. He's sort of a computer programmer, excuse me, computer programmer, a modeler, um, very sort of prescriptive top down in the sense that they, they come up with hypothetical scenarios and parameters, and they try to fit the data into those and see what happens. It ignores so many real-world contingencies that Hanke is sort of pointing out that impact the, the efficacy of their models, hence why the models that he, especially Hanke, was referring to keep failing over and over and over again. And they're still being used alongside of the PCR test, which itself is dubious, at least in regards, at least with a high cycle threshold, to be able to determine any sort of infectiousness or if you're currently infected and shedding virus or if you're symptomatic, you know, it can be used as part of the epidemiological protocol to determine disease, but it can't be used to diagnose specifically, um, especially when it's run at a rate of 30 or 35 cycles. And at that point, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, so I can't go into this. It's no, no surprise. It's a systems analyst. System, complex systems analysts are basically mathematicians and computer programmers that, again, set up these contrived hypothetical scenarios. And then oftentimes will fit the data into that in order to get the conclusions that they want. Or the data that gets fit into it is leaving out so many variables and contingencies that it the, the conclusion they get to end up having no real world modeling of what uh, what is objectively true. This is by the way, standard in climate science as well. One of my favorites is when they took a model of Venus, the runaway um, greenhouse gas situation uh, in with the atmosphere of Venus, and they superimposed that on Earth, even though the two are diametrically opposed and the, 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 what makes up the gases in the atmosphere of Venus, the proximity to the sun, the, the mass of Venus, you know, the speed at which it rotates, not only about its own axis, but then revolves around the sun. I mean, there's so many variables, but they didn't take that. They just use that as a model to show how can, a runaway greenhouse effect can take place due to carbon dioxide. And it was just very poor and it has not been um, replicated in real life or been shown to be uh, efficacious to uh, the climate narrative, to the real world climate data. Uh, let's get to the final uh clip for tonight this is a whitney webb again interrogating cold war 2.0 it's four in the morning so i'm only going to play about 15 20 minutes come back for quick commentary wrap up the episode and uh move on from there so let's go to whitney webb now um unlimited hangouts Give me a second to bring this up here we go hi everyone i'm whitney webb and an independent investigative journalist and editor of unlimited hangout at unlimitedhangout.com Welcome to a panel called Interrogating Cold War 2.0, brought to you by Unlimited Hangout and Off Guardian. Today's panel will focus on the growing East-West divide, its implications for the economic future of the world, its impact on globalism, and how it relates to the ongoing dramatic socioeconomic policy shifts that are often collectively referred to as the Great Reset. In addition, we will be exploring the role of the West in the current rise of China and Russia, whether Russia and China are exercising a more moral foreign policy than their counterparts in NATO, and whether we should pick a side of this dichotomy. And without further ado, here are our panelists for today. We have Patrick Wood. Patrick is a financial analyst, writer, and speaker, as well as the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. And he's also co-author of Trilaterals Over Washington with Anthony Sutton about the Trilateral Commission. He is also the editor-in-chief of the website technocracy.news. 
Next, we have Ian Davis. Ian is an independent investigative journalist, blogger, and author from Portsmouth in the United Kingdom. He is a contributor to UK Column and also Unlimited Hangout. His work is often featured by Off Guardian, The Corbett Report, and Zero Hedge, among others. He also has his own website, In This Together, which you can find at in-this-together.com. We have Kit Knightley. Kit is a UK-based independent journalist, and he is editor of Off Guardian, which you can find at off-guardian.org. And last but not least, we have Catherine Austin Fitz. Catherine is the president of Solari Inc., which publishes the Solari Report at solari.com. And she is also a managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services. Prior to Solari, she held top positions at the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dillon Reed & Co., and was also Assistant Secretary of Housing and the Federal Housing Commissioner for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. So uh, welcome, everyone. Nice to have you here. Good to be here. Hi. Always fun. <laughs> all right. So let's start with a question on the East-West divide. Uh, what do you all see as the nature of the East-West divide? Is it ideological, political, a mix of the two, or nearly superficial? Uh, why don't we start with you, Catherine, since you are next to me <laughs> on the fifth. So from an investment position, if you, if you look at the world from a central investment position, it looks to me the people who have been financing the West are the same as are financing the East. At the same time, there are tremendous struggles, um, one of which is that at the end of world, sort of the end of the Cold War, the, uh, the G7 nations wanted to exercise uh, essentially a unipolar model and extend the unipolar model globally, whereas the economies that were growing fast, thanks to Western investment, wanted to um, maintain national sovereignty outside of control through essentially increasingly the financial system and financial sanctions. So I think on one hand at the very top, you have, um, you know, you, you have a central investment model that's financing both sides. At the same time, you have real significant differences both in the economic model and, and whether or not national sovereignty will be permitted. The G7 nations clearly want a world without national sovereignty, and the so-called BRIC nations want um, significantly more national sovereignty, and the way they want to run that national sovereignty is more with government entities than with banks and corporations. So there are very significant differences as well. All right, anyone else want to add to that or uh, uh, any takers? Ian? Yeah. Any any yeah. thoughts on on the question or or what Catherine said about um the nature of the east west divide? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it very much depends upon from whose perspective you're considering that that east west divide. I think there are some people probably within the, for example, the military infrastructures on both sides of that equation that do see a very real uh, confrontation or a very a very real divide. But then, as Catherine was saying, if we look at it from a a global financing perspective that divides less obvious uh, and then you know and I think also it's true to say that if we we talk about the people there's there's definitely a, a different mindset on either side of that divide but if we look at it politically I think that divide becomes less clear um, I think that there is. Um, I, I agree with I agree with Catherine that there's this this idea of a unipolar model versus a 
multipolar model for want of a better expression. But for my my perspective, um, I don't see a great distinction between the two. I think national sovereignty um, is a mechanism by which governments, you know, certainly if you're looking at, at Russia and um, China, is is a way of kind of introducing their population to a new kind of governance, which I believe is technocracy um, in both Russia and China. And I think, you know, we might go on to discuss why. Um, and I, I think that they are using that for the for for reasons of of firstly kind of asserting their dominant role over a global structure and i think we are going to be looking at a global structure but also i think there is we need to remember as well that it is useful sometimes to have what appear to be opposing opposing forces that game has been played for a long time we often talk about divide and rule and there's a reason for that it works in a in a general sense so if you want to control your populations having a different a different approach to what is essentially the same way of controlling your population i think that there's that as well oh uh patrick you're muted yeah, I'll, I think. I'll say that your, your your thought about control is, is absolutely right <clears throat> the the original uh technocracy group in the 1930s uh led with the idea that technocracy uh is the science of social engineering that was part and parcel of their philosophy their ideology <clears throat> and economic control required social control and we see that everywhere uh, that we have this technocratic uh, meme impressed we see that coming out social control yields or is is, is lord over economic control um China is really big on this. Europe's really big on this. Uh, the United States is getting worse and worse every day uh, or with social control, propaganda, and so on being used as tools. And, um, you know, this this kind of, uh, it, it, since it's a, a global in nature at this point, it, it, it's kind of a tell that this is really the agenda, not, not just, well, this country made a mistake, that country has, you know, too many Democrats, left-wingers, whatever, too much woke, wokeness. Um, no, this seems to be, it's a global problem from the top down right now. And it's the same kind of techniques are being used everywhere. Can I, uh, can I, Patrick, can I ask you a question? Cause it looks to me like everyone's fully on board for technocracy, but Russia and China prefer their technocracy to have more of their national government as the middle manager for the technocracy. But they also prefer to run more of the technocracy with government than with corporations and banks. So it's absolutely technocracy, but the details of the implementation are somewhat different. Yeah. Does it look that way to you? Well, it, it does. And I'll say for decades, um, the, the people who are pushing technocracy have been content to stay behind the scenes, behind the political right. Uh, right. front. And we, we, we saw this in, in America starting way back with the Carter administration all the way going forward to today, that um, this technocrat types have, uh, like the old uh, World War II movie, Run Silent, Run Deep, they, they've been there the whole time. 
they have been executing their strategy the whole time. And they've been, in many cases, they've been using the government to do it. A good example of that, I think, is the takeover of the American government by members of the Trilateral Commission during the Carter administration. You had at one time 30% of the membership of the trilateral, American side of the, of the Trilateral Commission in top positions like cabinet positions in Carter's administration. And they said back then, we're not political. We don't want, we're not interested in political takeover. It sure looked that way. And we, we made that charge, but we finally figured, started to figure out after 20 years went by what really happened. They weren't interested in the political structure right. of America at all. What they wanted was control over the economic engine of the world. Right. And they got that through appointing presidents of the World Bank, for instance, which eight, what, six out of nine were members of the Trilateral Commission. Nine out of 12 of the U.S. trade representatives thereafter were members of the Trilateral Commission. And they took over the economic, the, the entire economic structure uh, moving forward to the whole planet. And now they've exercised this. You know, we see their influence everywhere, but um, they weren't really after the, they were using the political system, let me put it that way, to get what they wanted, which was economic control. And for people watching who may not know, can you just briefly explain what the Trilateral Commission is? Uh, it's two co-founders. Uh, just a little background, maybe. Sure. Founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Rockefeller is the money man, uh, Chase Bank, oil interest, uh, monopoly interest. Uh, and then you had uh, Brzezinski, a professor of political science at Columbia University. Brzezinski caught his uh, Rockefeller's eye with his book that he wrote at Columbia called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. And uh, Rockefeller saw that as a way to get increasing control over resources. Uh, because I think from a from just a pure mathematical point of view, even back then, he saw that there would be an end one day in the future to the existing monetary system. That was back when gold had been just decoupled from the dollar. The world was now completely fiat currency. Uh, Rockefeller was not stupid. And from his money, monetary analysis point of view, there would be a time someday in the future, I think that day's probably come now, where the, the financial system would be completely kaput. And the only answer to that, in his mind, was to uh, take over resources directly. In other words, not just use the money to, to con you know, in the bank to control things, but to get your way, but actually go after control over resources directly. And I think this is what we've seen ever since, honestly. That's what Agenda 21 was all about, Agenda 2030, the United Nations, sustainable development, et cetera, et cetera. It's been about accumulation and consolidation of resources on a planetary basis. Okay, uh, Kit, do you have anything you um, uh, want to add yeah. in here or? Yeah, I would say returning back to the original question on the nature of the split. I mean, obviously you can go that ideological, theoretically, everyone's a free market capitalist now in one way to a certain degree or another. I would put it in software terms. Um, you roll out a new program, you have like, here's our new alpha tested program. And that was, we're all gonna be friends. That was tried in COVID. You see, um, there was a, an end to like geopolitical like, differences. Even ISIS stopped doing terrorism because of the pandemic was going to make everybody friendly. And then you have that slowly wearing off after two years and a return to what in software terms you call a stable build. Everybody understood the Cold War. So we'll just we'll just do that again. Only it's somewhat forced this time. I would say 
the difference between Russia and China saying it's about sovereignty and us talking about open world, open borders stuff. I would say that's largely a superficial difference designed to appeal to a market base. You know, if you're going to sell apples in Rome, you say the Pope loves apples. And if you're going to sell them in Riyadh, you say Allah loves apples. But they're the same apples either way. All right, so um, we can move on to another question. Um, so um, what has the West's role in the economies of Russia and China uh, been, uh, or sorry, um, what has been the West's role in the economies of Russia and China over the past several decades? And what impact has this had on the rise of Eurasia? Anyone interested in starting? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you want to go, Pat? You I go, hear, Pat. I want to hear you, I want to hear you first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think the investment has been extraordinary in, the, in both China and Russia, although in very different ways. So we saw a transfer both of capital, of intellectual capital, and extraordinary even gifting of technology mm -hmm. to China from the mid-90s on. Um, and in, in many respects, that still continues. So there is a huge bet being made on China and I would not describe it so much as, um, well, in, in a sense, you can say it's coming from the West. But I think if you look at the people who operate the allocation of capital globally, it's coming from the very top. And, and it's not stopping. Um, not that there haven't been changes in evolution. So, so that's a, the huge bet on China and Asia. Russia was clearly essentially raped at the end of the Cold War. and um, I think Russia has come back faster than was expected, but in the process, there was a great effort to take ownership positions and control of investment positions in Russia. And through that, there was some investment, but I would say much less than China. Um, interestingly enough, the sanctions have afforded enormous investment in Russia and transfer of assets. If you look at the transfer of assets that is happening now as a result of the sanctions, you know, my serious question is this really just a transfer of significant wealth and assets to Russia, you know, as a, you know, under the pretext of sanctions. Um, either way, the tension economically, uh, interestingly enough, has been the same tension you've seen domestically in many countries. And that is we have a global economy where capital is using force to extract returns that it doesn't deserve at the expense of laborers or commodity producers. And so we have throughout the, the world, and certainly India, China, Russia, the BRIC nations, they're tired of extraction of wealth through financial speculation and financial currency debasement. And at some point, if an economy doesn't return capital to the people who produce the wealth, you're going to get real schisms. And, and we are watching in the G7 nations the rise of an elite, and you know this better than any, Whitney. We're all waiting for your book that proves it once again. <laughs> um, you know, we have a criminal syndicate. You know, we're dealing with Spectre. If you ever watch the James Bond movie, Spectre is extracting too much of the wealth, and frankly, the populations in the G7 nations and around the world are sick of it. And, and those who still have enough command of military and, and national resources can do something about it. So I think the, this is a revolution of the productive against the unproductive 
And interestingly enough, the guys who run the global capital in this in this respect are supporting the productive. It's what it looks like to me. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you want to go next, Patrick? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just add on. I'll, I'll add to that. Uh, Tony Sutton, Anthony Sutton wrote <clears throat> two books. One that that underscore this, of course, his his series at Stanford University on the transfer of technology from the, the West to the East are are epic and legendary at this point. Um, you can find, right. maybe find them on the internet for a thousand dollars a volume, but they're very rare. Um, but he he nailed it six ways to Sunday back then. What had happened? He ended up writing um, uh, Bolshevik, or excuse me, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. He wrote Bolshe uh, Wall Street and the Rise of Russia, or whatever. I forget exactly the title, but but he had nailed this back then. If if he were alive today, my guess is he'd probably be writing a book, uh, Wall Street and the Rise of x you know whatever the, the great reset is um but um this has been uh legendary back through the going all the way back to world war one is that the west is has has financed the wall street has financed most of the conflicts in the world that means that they've been on both sides and the their activities in russia even in the ussr were also legendary people like armin hammer for instance flew back and forth without passports so did david rockefeller um, and, and they could go anywhere in Russia, do anything they wanted to do, and they never got any trouble. Anybody else, mere people like us, would probably get arrested and thrown into the gulag. Um, China's been the same way. <clears throat> when, when China uh, came back onto the world stage, um, my, my mind goes back to 1976, when Zbigniew Brzezinski wined and dined uh, Deng Xiaoping in Washington. Um, that was after... Kissinger had uh, Henry Kissinger had already gone to China for uh, on an illegal trip, uh, made a lot of people really mad back then. But it was an illegal trip that that um, Nixon sent him on to reestablish relationships with China, which looked a lot like North Korea at the time. It was a train wreck. They had no economic system. They they, they tripped over themselves to spin down into the in a cesspool. Deng Xiaoping came to Washington and smiled and got wined and dined by Brzezinski. Brzezinski later became widely hailed in the history books as being the architect of bringing China back into the world stage. So my question became, as I studied the Trilateral Commission and Brzezinski, who was a brilliant strategist, evil maybe, but brilliant. Uh, when China came onto the world stage, did Brzezinski and crew teach them free market economics and capitalism, or did they teach them the principles of technocracy? I think the evidence now, looking backwards, clearly says they were taught the elements of technocracy, not free market economics. We see that expressed even to the point where Time Magazine wrote a, a major article, in, in I think around 2000, that said point blank, China's the technocracy now, and they gave reasons for it in context to the original technocracy movement back in the 1930s. So the, by the insiders, this has been recognized that China became a technocracy, but what we found out that confirmed that, it was a fact we found out back then, but it meant something more to me later. By the time Brzezinski was talking to Deng Xiaoping in, in, in Washington, um, the largest private engineering company in the world, Bechtel Engineering, which is based in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, um, was chaired by a guy named Casper um, Weinberger. Casper Weinberger was one of those founding members of the Trilateral Commission. 
very influential globally because they had the, it was the largest engineering company, private engineering company, maybe one of the largest engineering companies, period, in the world. By the time Deng Xiaoping had come to Washington, Bechtel Engineering had already completed 18 major infrastructure projects in China, all illegal. In other words, it was, it was illegal to do business with China back in that day. So that, but they were private. And so they just, hey, you know, sail their own ship over there with their equipment to go do it. They just went and did it. 18 major infrastructure projects. You say, well, what's that? That means, okay, they're connecting roads, they're building dams, or you know, power plants and stuff like that um, to get ready for the economic boom that was going to take place in China. They engineered this from the get-go. Yeah. And the money that flowed into China initially was mostly connected with the Trilateral Commission uh, you know, group of companies that were represented in the Trilateral Commission at the expense of other companies in America that would gladly have done business, but they were frozen out because they weren't part of the club. We documented this now. So, you know, you, you look back at this whole thing and say, well, how did China get to where it is today? Wall Street, people in the Trilateral Commission, those companies, whatever, that went over and did business, they opened up China. China never had the capacity to do any of that stuff. They didn't know how to build a dam. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't build roads or anything else, bridges and stuff that the companies like Bechtel, Bechtel probably looked like a bunch of magicians to these people at the time. So I look back at this, I see the same kind of construction taking place in China that took place in, in, the, in communist Russia at one point in time by the West, by Western money. They actually enabled those institutions to stay in business for as long as they did. And even when they died, they were still in control because they were like the run silent, run deep type of a submarine they just they said we still got control whether whatever happens to your political system we're still in charge of everything and here we are today birds of a feather flock together so you see people in 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 silicon valley they love china they absolutely love china because there's technocrats in china there's technocrats in silicon valley say hey we're brothers man we're we're across the sea but we're all brothers here and they can look at a lot of people in europe and say the same thing you know we're all brothers we can get along but the political establishment, they look down their nose at it. They say, ah, oh, fooey, you know, we don't, we don't care about the political establishment. We're, we're doing the real work here. So nothing is new. I wanted to come back and just give a quick commentary. We're going to wrap it up then. Phenomenal discussion. I encourage everyone to check out. Uh, it's Whitney Webb's Rockfin. Uh, it was entitled, it's Unlimited Hangout is um both her website and i guess the name of her rockfin account and um interrogating the cold war or called the video is entitled interrogating cold war 2.0 very important analysis we had patrick wood on the show a couple months ago a uh, fantastic interviewee um it was a, a pleasure and an honor to get the opportunity to have a discussion with him alongside richard and i he made a very astute observation that if they had to talk about embracing free market capitalism or embracing technocracy, they really embraced um, the uh, latter and not the former. They did not embrace cap. Yeah, they, they call ca uh, ca uh, communism with uh, Chinese characteristics or something like that. Um, but uh, it's it's a full. It, that's sort of just a euphemism for the fact that it's really just state-controlled entities that are allowed the facade or veneer of. Um, participating in sort of competitive standpoints. By the way, this is the same, or competitive markets. This is the same system that Bill Gates lauded 
and envisioned for Microsoft. And currently Microsoft, basically what they do is they buy up enterprise product. I mean, they have obviously Windows and the, the Windows suite. They also have uh, um, their office suite. And now a lot of it's moving towards, much of it is really moved towards the cloud. No surprise there. But they have also enterprise solutions. And the thing with their enterprise solutions, meaning it's for big businesses. They have software for big businesses, like ERP systems, for example, uh, financial systems, uh, CRM systems, customer relationship management systems, you know, a whole host of different systems, right? And so what they do is they'll buy up these systems, maybe from independent developers. They'll get their own developers behind it to finish the sort of finish it and make it sort of uh, connect to and correspond with their other um, technologies. But at the same time, they then allow partners to come in and specialize in providing those systems to other businesses. So you can essentially modify the systems to fit each unique business that you go into, manufacturing businesses, political businesses, um, businesses of all types. It doesn't really matter. And uh, service economy it could be manufacturing or service-based commodities or labor. Like it's just all over the place. And so they're very complex systems that require a lot of um, development, a lot of... Uh, uh, manipulation and uh, to make them work for these various different sectors of an economy. But what Bill Gates does, it's all controlled, by the way, by Microsoft. They control, um, to some degree, the intellectual property, certainly, but they also own the rights to the software that then you're competing against with other partners, selling to a lot of the same institutions, the same businesses, depending on what markets you're going after, with the same software, but you essentially just provide unique solutions based on your own team of developers manipulating the software in a subtle way to make it give yourself a niche. So it's this facade. This is it's this illusion of competition. While it's still owned by one giant entity, that being Microsoft, this he Bill Gates lauded that he took this model from the way the Chinese did it when it was opened up thanks to uh, um, Kissinger. I mentioned earlier, but Brzezinski obviously was the major player there. And the Carter administration, obviously, the, the trilaterals over Washington, uh, his work with Patrick Wood's work with Anthony Sutton in regards to um, uh, the trilateral commission and how much, you know, back in the 80s, they were attempting to expose this long before the Internet existed. It's very interesting sort of history there. But I just want to point out that, like, technocrats, to his point, love this model. Bill Gates is a technocrat. They love the, the Chinese model because they largely build it up to be this way. It's a facade. It's an illusion of competition. It's an illusion of free market control when in fact it's owned by the same multinationals or private investment equity firms at the very top of it to Castor and Alton Fitz's point. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Um, it's the, this idea that the CCP or Russia is really a hedge against Western capital, Western investment, Western technology is a facade. Uh, it's the same way that when we look at what Maddie's work showed earlier in regards to vaccine research, it's like, yeah, they can report Rajiv Shaw. We can talk about Tom Inglesby. We can talk about Califf. Um, but these individuals are backed by pharmaceutical companies, right, in many respects, or they're connected with DARPA or CDC or NIH. And um, they sit at the head of then these boards that then come up with the, the solutions, on a national scale, on the government scale, the Co National COVID Commission, for example, they're trying to push through um, uh, with the Pandemic Act, Pandemic Prep Act or something, not the Prep Act, but I've, whichever one it was that Maddie referred to. Again, you see like there's this unholy alliance with the government is many layers removed from ultimately what the source of the income, the capital is going to say to do. We build up, you know, we look at the railway system. Uh, Patrick Wood alluded to this in regards to the, it's, um, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. 
I think the believe I believe that's the name of the book. Richard and I utilized that heavily back in 2010, 2011, 2012, and it worked uh, directly with Rich. And I remember one of the big things was talking about the railway system. The fact that he's, for example, Patrick was referencing that uh, Bay Area engineering firm in the 70s that already did 18 infrastructure problems. Like, you know, so we're talking about like Moderna and Sanofi and Pfizer, BioNTech more specifically. They're already developing the vaccine. Tom Eaglesby is talking about the, vac- the vaccine, the vaccine, like this universal vaccine, mRNA uh, gene therapy platform. They're building the infrastructure. Then all of a sudden the miracle of COVID-19 comes out. Well, what do you think they're doing? Like the, the infrastructure is being built as an analogy being built in the 1970s by this uh, Bay Area firm, the Bay Area engineering firm. So then when Western capital, when they open up, when China opens up the Western capital, they're already set the profit dramatically from it and grow exponentially. It's exactly what's happened. Um, you know, they, they sort of set the foundations, the preconditions for that one manifest later once it's signed into law, even though it was illegal at the time. And that's, exactly the vaccine modernization act and this stuff happened 27 2018 then 2019 or 20 i think it was 2019 end of 2019 uh trump signs the vaccine modernization act but the foundations have been laid multiple years before that moratorium was lifted in 2017 the talk of universal vaccination the need for gain of function and um durc ppp research pathogens of uh, pandemic potential it's the same analogies being played out here Russia and China and their political organizations are doing nothing to stop this, and they're going to be taken to the cleaners, just as every other nation in history has been taken to the cleaners uh, in regards to how these oligarchs operate. And so, unfortunately, I don't see the evidence that's a, a significant hedge against what has been sort of the roundtable initiative from Rhodes, um, you know, carried out by William T. Stead and then Lionel Curtis and uh, Milner. Lord Milner and you know this is this Anglo-American establishment that established these roundtable groups that then carried forward an initiative of world order you know as a first a world financial order that quickly sort of outlines in his book now I think I agree with Patrick Wood it's it's trans it's gone through a sort of transformation um, from financial control to actual technocratic control over one's biology. That's what China has embraced the most. Social credit scores, um, top-down total digitization of their economy, um, you know, uh, complete uh, control over their population, lockdowns in Shanghai, which I'm, we see what lockdowns have done in the West in regards to the Johns Hopkins study. You know, we saw a video of what was happening in Shanghai. It's no surprise uh, just how pernicious and destructive it was over there for a population that has been socially engineered. That's what the 1930, I think he's referring to the Columbia University document that stated it's technocracy is about social engineering. And now we're back to the Rockefeller Foundation and their support of the social sciences that I alluded to earlier in Foundations of Power and Influence. And in fact, I pulled out this book. I can't do a deep dive in it, but I almost want to see all these bookmarks. See you. Of like a lot of them are stuck together so there's like four or five of them in there that i just did to prepare for this show and this is uh rebecca uh work in regards to world as laboratory talking about the rockefeller foundation more than just the rockefeller foundation and their interest in behaviorism there's like three ways of it there was philosophical behaviorism and then there was you know the sort of operant conditioning behavior behaviorism of skinner that was like third wave behaviorism there's sort of blending of the two in the second wave. it doesn't matter the idea was about social control. The idea was about social engineering. Technocracy is embedded in that because now they are envisioning a world where not only can we understand the behaviors and mechanisms behind behavior um, in the human in human biology, 
or in biology in general, animal or human alike, but we can actually not only affect that behavior um, through stimulus response and all these different things as Pavlov Skinner, but we can actually modify and augment or, or manipulate that through digital technologies. That's China. That's to a much lesser extent Russia. Uh, in Russia, it's being done through their 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 credit system. And I, I agree that Catherine Austin Fitz. Maybe the transfer of wealth is through the sanctions. Okay, it didn't happen during COVID, and we didn't open up the Russia because of the whole Cold War thing, as we did in the 70s and 80s with China. So we're, we're now just getting caught up with, for whatever reason, throwing, um, we're, we're transitioning the placement of power, which is going to be the same pernicious top-down uh, hegemonic force it's always been whether it's under under a capitalist or communist regime whether it's under a democracy or communism i should say and uh that's the unfortunate truth and what we have to do is sort of hedge against that and find what unique ways to work our way out of that um develop strong communities um develop skills that can benefit those communities uh, become more self-sufficient you know embrace um you know, things of better, more skills, homesteading, um, preparation for worst case scenarios in regards to food preparation. And that's what it's going to take to sort of on a micro level hedge against the macro level of these, this movement towards uh, world dictatorship through essentially China as being the model. If you look at the Foreign Affairs magazine, I've said this before, Council on Foreign Relations has been on this for decades. They have been in effusive support um, of China since especially the COVID-19 lockdowns are long before they are. They praise China endlessly. Uh, in fact, it was thanks to Daniel McCarthy, someone who I had on the show uh, for my first roundtable. I think I conducted when I had the host back in like January or something like the end of January, early February, somewhere in there. He did a private um, talk for the autonomy riches course uh, for his community. Where and I forgot to put my cell phone. I oh, know it is on. Where by which um, he went over all these foreign affairs articles, um, showing that how much praise how much these world leaders, how much these epidemiologists and scientists were lauding Bill Gates, especially China and China's response and China this and China that. It just, it was very clear that this is being built up and supported by the same coterie that built up and supported the United States or Nazi Germany or the USSR. And that's what we're dealing with. And they operate in the shadows and sort of a specter that's hanging over us that we, for some reason, it's amorphous and ill-defined that we can't quite... Uh, come to a good strong boundary or definition of what the thing it is that we're dealing with because it takes a lot of abstraction a lot of nuance a lot of discovery a lot of forensic historical analysis in order to do so <sighs> okay my brain can't work anymore uh i want to thank everyone um there's a ton of i guess i'll just show on here we had to skip which a lot of stuff with the culture obviously same stuff there um, the Roe v. Wade thing is a big topic we're not going to get to tonight. The uh, Greg Reese had a couple of videos, fantastic, in regards to individual rights, individual liberty, and the original ideas of constitutionalism in America. Also talked about, he talked about the shots for children as well. Uh, this is a number of things we can't get to. Jason Burmis, the Nick Bryant reveals the darkest secrets of power. I'll bring this up. This is a fantastic interview. This is my initial um, intermission until Dylan, shout out to Dylan or make me aware of the Whitney Webb um, panel that she conducted. But this was very intense. So if you're interested, check this out in regards to sort of pedophile organizations and their association with uh, high profile individuals and organizations. Um, 
and there's a number of other topics in regards to vaccines advocacy there's a robert malone or i guess brett weinstein interviewed robert malone that was very good that was interesting a lot of stuff we skipped to russia and the ukraine and uh you know just there's so much each week that we just can't get to but i really want to go back and thank uh brett Vinat first and foremost for coming on he has a podcast that he's they're in the working stages of developing. Um, they did some pilot episodes. We're going to have him back on to promote his new podcast. He's a, a brilliant orator, and he has so much knowledge from his experience being podcaster for over 12 years uh, when it comes to the School Sucks podcast. I encourage everyone to check that out. I want to thank him for coming on the show and going over the current project he's working on, which is um, consolidating the 50 most important episodes associated with his, his project that ran, his podcast that ran over 12 years and uh, make that available for parents who are trying to get a roadmap of schooling and how best to move forward with solutions and that sort of thing. So shout out to Brett for coming on. Um, shout out to Richard and LD and Michael Delaney and um, Howard and Ernie Hancock for uh, popping on the show, having a discussion, give us an insight into what it looks like to participate in a the sort of uh, in pork at pork fest, a libertarian established sort of community where people are uh, sort of in their own recognition, honoring the non-aggression principle coming together, their own volition and uh, free will to um, interact with one another, sharing community, have a good time together and to be outside get away from all this nonsense, get a chance to decompress a little bit, meet like-minded individuals and network together. So that was absolutely fantastic. Get sort of a little bit of an insight what's going on there. It's cool to see how they were able to set up, you know, shout out to Elon Musk, wink, wink, lol. Uh, it's a big joke, but you know, Starlink for the win. I guess Starlink, you can utilize their technologies against them. So that's what they did. So that was awesome. And obviously massive shout out to Maddie. I cannot give her uh, enough praise for the amount of work that she's put into her COVID uh, collaborative and uh, the research she's put into what's going on behind the scenes in regards to the COVID narrative. So incredible work all around. Awesome episode. I want to thank everyone that has somehow, um, you know, uh, was able to stay along with me throughout this journey tonight. Um, I know it was a long and winding road in regards to uh, all the myriad topics we discussed, but I want to, you know, just awesome community. Uh, really appreciate everyone on Rockfin. No, I wasn't on there tonight, but, you know, always shout out to you guys. And uh, LD will be back next week, obviously, with Richard, and we'll go over all the thanks because I wasn't on Rockfin to dick that would have been possible for me to be able to take down any of the uh, donations that people um, uh, participate in through the Rockfin um, and I want to thank you, everyone, so much for those that did uh, g- uh, give us some money, give us some small donations through Rockfin. It means a lot to us. It was part of what keeps us going. I want to encourage everyone to check out Grand Theft World. Let's see if I bring it up here. .com. Oh, oh is the website down? The law? Well, that's a great. Let's see if I can try this again. Well, it's not working. So, well, go to grandtheftworld.com and it's working. <laughs> Go to the top right corner, join community, um, choose your level of donation or subscription level, I should say, and you know, join a research community. I host a town hall every other week. Last week we had another, what's, it was sort of at seven, so it went like six hours, went to one in the morning, and it ended with a very special musical presentation by very own Yona, so shout out to Yona, and uh, that was very entertaining, so if you want to catch some of the... Uh, Oh, what's the sort of eclectic 
craziness that manifests itself on the town hall and all the different topics we talk about. Definitely check out, uh, become a subscriber. You get access to that. You get access to all the other town halls, which is really their own self-contained podcast at this point, as well as the Library of Cognitive Liberty, Rich's old unpublished work, obviously, this Peace Revolution podcast, 9-11 Synchronicity, um, all the good stuff. And um, I think that's in. Check out, if you're interested, the Autonomy Agora Marketplace and uh, see if you're interested in any of the solutions that we provide in order to step in for staff and build a communities. Melissa Miles and Permaculture, Lisa Manfredi with Finance, um, myself with Logic and the Trivium, um, Benny Wills with Rhetoric. Uh, there's a whole host of, I mean, Daryl Beckert, uh, Compassionate Communication. There's a number of individuals that we support that have, I'm forgetting anyone, I don't mean to, I'm just going off the, my memory at 4.30 in the morning. But um, check out the Agora Marketplace. There's a lot of fantastic, uh, many of them free courses. Um, some of them are paid for courses. And you can uh, develop some skills that can, what we find to be, that we found to be useful in regards to uh, solutions out of the, this, the tyranny that we're experiencing today. So with that, I'm going to, I guess we'll just play an outro clip because that's what we always do. Let me see if I can come up with something very quickly as I talk here. Uh, oh, wall, not even logged in. What? Okay, so give me a second here. Okay, here we go. Uh, we'll just do JP Sears play us out. A little cliche, but uh, he does fantastic work, but we do use him all the time, but I didn't get a chance to actually come up with anything else. So with that, I want to thank everyone for tuning in and not dropping out. Rich and LD will be back in their normal positions next week. It'll be a normal show as we normally run it. And uh, you won't have to deal with me being both the host and control room. Although it went much more smoothly than I anticipated. Knock on wood. Don't want to attempt fate. So thanks everyone again for tuning in, not dropping out. Here's JP Sears to play us out. Oh man, you think Biden's policies are hurting America? Like, what, what are you mentally competent or something? Let me dumb it down for you to help you understand Biden's eight most misunderstood policies that are actually helping the country. Like number one, inflation. Most people mistakenly believe a good way to fight inflation is to stop causing it. But the Biden administration knows the best way to fight inflation is to keep printing money. That way inflation's protected from ever dropping. In border security. The best way to have a secure border is to eliminate security at the border. Biden understands that an open border is a secure border, just like the best way to lock the front door of your house is to keep it open. And then you have racial unity, and nobody symbolizes racial unity like Biden. His policy on creating racial unity is to divide people based on race because a divided people are a united people. And injecting critical race theory into every educational program helps with this. And Mr. Biden, a very racially diverse white man himself, telling black and Hispanic people what they're supposed to think is another key for creating racial unity. Then you have fuel costs. They're going way up, but that's completely inconsequential on people who don't own a car. Plus, Biden lifted tariffs on solar panels, which is super sweet and should help a lot. And if you still don't like it, then the Biden administration wants you to know that if you can't afford $8 a gallon for gas, then you should just buy a $50,000 electric car. And because we learned math is racist, we really have no way of knowing if $8 is more or less than $50,000. So it's pretty clear and straightforward that fuel costs are completely under control. Then you have his policy on free speech. Now, freedom of speech is fundamental to having a democracy. 
So freedom of speech must be protected and strengthened at all costs. That's why Biden heavily supports censorship. It protects freedom of speech from being used by citizens. Then you have his policy on leadership. I mean, Biden is a prototypical example of great leadership because everyone knows a great leader takes the responsibility upon himself to always blame someone else for what he did especially if their name's Putin or Trump. Then you look at his education policies. Biden makes it possible for today's youth to have a brighter future by ensuring they get a great education. And how's he do that? By withholding school lunch programs to coerce schools into teaching children misinformation about gender so they can have the education necessary to succeed at being groomed at an earlier age. I mean, starving children to feed pedophiles is at the heart of Biden's progressive education policies. I love his gun control policies. I mean, you probably already know that the Second Amendment exists to allow citizens to protect themselves against a tyrannical government. But what you might have failed to understand is that Good gun control policy involves being a tyrannical government who takes the guns from the population so they cannot protect themselves from the tyrannical government, which the tyrannical government does for the protection of the citizens. And that's it. His policies fully explained. <laughs> I assume this clarifies how Biden's policies actually work to create a better country full of people who hate their country. Conspiracy is a story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.